Voices from the Ledge, a novel by J.T. Fisher, narrated by Mandy Grant Grierson. Dedication. Dedicated to Daniel and Natalie Fisher and their daughter Amelia, my children, who are ever examples of why life must continue to make the world a better place. Dedicated in memory of Daniel S. Bernheim, Jr., who made Camp Danby a place to build strong, lasting friendships, and in honor of Jay Toporoff, who continues those traditions today. The real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. Marcel Proust Chapter 1 Does your life really pass before your eyes right before you die? Or do you really see a bright light that you're supposed to walk towards? Now I'm going to find out. These are the last questions, the burning ones, to which I want to know the answers. I'm not having some existential crisis, so don't get that idea. I'm not insane either. I'm just at a place in my life where I just don't matter much anymore. In fact, I've decided that I've had enough of life all the way around. I just don't want to go on anymore. I know you're going to think this is stupid by the time you finish reading this, but I wanted to answer this bunch of questions for myself, not for you or anyone else. If you keep reading, you'll eventually understand the reasons behind what I'm doing. Again, I'm not trying to be funny here, because I really want to know the answers. It's not like I'm going to be able to impart that information to anyone if I'm successful in this endeavor. Julie sat cross-legged with her laptop in front of her, perched precariously on the firmest pillow she could find in the five-star hotel she had rented for the night three days ago, during which she had been writing furiously. Her suicide note, at least that was her intention when she started, had gone from one page to dozens, an entire volume of stories and anecdotes about the many times she had been ready to end her life. It really had started out as a short note. Her initial intent was to ask one simple question, but in writing, many others arose. As she typed, her mind began to wander, remembering all those terrible times. As she wrote, though, a strange thing was happening. She was recalling some of the good times, too. She remembered intense conversations and little vignettes from her childhood, arguments with her husband, and silly things her daughters did. It was all spinning into a cyclone in her mind, none of it making much sense, and the process was launching her to elation and plunging her into tears. The room service trays and dishes had piled up on the desk and dresser. The food dried onto the plates. The honor bar was nearly empty. Her towels were damp and smelled of mildew, although it didn't matter. She probably would not be taking another shower anyway. In any case, she had hung the Do Not Disturb tag on the door handle, letting housekeeping know she would not be requiring their services. No one knew where she was, not her mother or her husband or her kids. She had left her phone on the charger in the house and the car in the driveway so that no one could track her down. By now, they may even have called the police. Come home, they would have said to her. Why would you want to leave, they would have asked. She wouldn't have had an easy answer. When she thought clearly about her situation, she was quite aware that she had an easy life, a good life. 
She lived in a beautiful four-bedroom pool home in the posh Emerald Hills section of Hollywood, Florida, and was married to a prominent physician. Her children, two girls, were grown and had solid careers and strong marriages. She had friends, or at least she always thought they were friends. They were all people she knew from work, her temple, or the country club. She had been a reporter for a local television station, active in the sisterhood at the temple and chair of the women's division at the club. Even her 86-year-old mother was still around and in good health. Some would call that a double-edged sword. With her mom came the blessings of longevity, of companionship, and the love of family. But it also came with the obligatory Jewish guilt. But Julie wasn't thinking clearly. Her real problem, and it was a significant one, was that she had lived her whole life inside her head, in a whirlpool of anxiety and depression. She was self-absorbed and selfish, according to her daughters. Her husband often told her she worried too much. When she was quiet, her husband would get frustrated, knowing she was sinking into that abyss where she couldn't be either reached or reasoned with. He would ask her what she was thinking about, and when the answer was nothing, he would tell her to think about something else. Julie didn't see any of it that way. It wasn't as if she chose to be like she was. Who in their right mind would choose to live such a dark and lonely life? That should have been a signal to somebody that something was terribly wrong. Everyone did notice, except Julie. She wasn't aware that anything was wrong or different in her at any particular time. She thought she was normal, but just having periods of moodiness. Everyone but Julie understood that she had, in fact, a depressive disorder of some kind. She didn't know anyone else suffered the same way she did, or even that it was an illness and not just a bad mood. Julie only knew that her mind controlled how she thought, felt, and acted. She didn't know that what she was dealing with was a treatable mental health disorder. She was completely unaware that her feelings of sadness and loss of interest in her family and friends or activities she once enjoyed wasn't going to be with her forever. Despondently, Julie had been planning on this visit to the Intercontinental Hotel in Miami for months, with a permanent solution in mind for what was a temporary problem. The last time I used the words, I can't do this anymore, was when I was about to throw away our marriage. I had already contacted a divorce attorney, and I had run numbers through my head a thousand times, trying to reassure myself that I could survive on my own. I was worried only that you would be cruel and nasty in the divorce because when we fought, you were cruel and nasty. You would take on a persona that scared me, and I had seen your ugly side too many times. I wasn't going to kill myself then. I just wanted to get away from Morty. What stopped me was something a former boss of mine had once said to me, and that was, murder, yes, divorce, no. Julie fell back against the pillows yet again. The thought of her old boss made her smile. Nora had been a strength to her in so many ways. She didn't just steal Julie at the time her marriage was rocky, but Nora had given her new perspectives about a lot of things over the years. As she laid back against the pillows this time, she noticed her own stench. She decided that maybe she should take a shower after all. Sitting back up, Julie saved her work and turned off the laptop. Cautiously, she moved it to the side of the bed and tried to stretch her legs out. Her knees were stiff and cracking. 
She had no idea what time it was or even what day. She had been sitting like that for hours, pecking away at her old work-issued computer. It was obsolete, so they let her keep it when she walked away from the station. At one point, she had worried that they would be able to track her location with it. So she disabled the internet and location apps, and by so doing, she figured she would be okay. You can't even run away from home in peace these days with this frickin' technology. When she attempted to stretch out and swing her legs over the side of the bed, she laughed to herself and wondered how she would ever climb out on the ledge if she can't even climb off the bed. Her body had begun to defy her a long time ago. She had started sprouting a few gray hairs in her early 30s, but she accepted this as genetics. Her dad had gone completely white by the time he was 40. What she was having trouble getting used to was being exhausted all the time. Ever since she went through the change, her energy level has been uncharacteristically low. And now, if she sits in one place for more than a few minutes, she creaks like the Tin Man. Gradually making her way to the luxurious bathroom, Julie disrobed, dropping one article of clothing with each step. She found herself reflecting on the thousands of times she must have reprimanded Allie and Sophie for doing the same thing. They were such slobs. They never put anything away when they were finished with it. The piles of clothes on the floor of their rooms probably had three or four layers to them. And you know what? So what? What was the big deal? The clothes eventually made it into the laundry, and both of my girls keep beautiful homes now. Oh well, maybe at the time I thought that was good parenting. It took a while for the hot water to make it up to the higher floors, even in luxury hotels. Julie didn't mind waiting, there was no rush. Some of her ramblings in her suicide note had started her thinking that maybe she had a bit more to write. There were some things she hadn't said yet, some unfinished business. She reminded herself that her daughters had come a long way over the years, but maybe they would need her when they started their own families. Maybe not. Maybe I hadn't done such a great job with my own life, so who am I to give guidance? They are way more well-adjusted than I am. Julie's older daughter had always been very pliable and easy. She did what she was told and never really had to be punished or reprimanded. Even as a teenager, Allie wasn't too difficult. She dated nice boys who didn't make Morty feel threatened. He would joke that he didn't feel the need to chase them away with a baseball bat. Allie had been an excellent student, was active in a lot of school activities, lettered in two sports, and yet still she was a homebody. All the kids gathered at her house, which thrilled Julie and Morty as they were able to keep an eye on them. They even had to force her to go on the class trips to various places around the country. Allie was prone to separation anxiety since she was a baby. I had to peel her off me when she was in daycare and preschool. And it wasn't just the first day. It was like that every day for three fucking years. The funny part is she was so easygoing and friendly, I never understood where all that shit came from. Sophie, on the other hand, couldn't wait to get loose. She was more of a challenge from the beginning. She let go of Morty's hand when he dropped her at daycare and never looked back. She was always more adventurous and is, to this day, more well-traveled than both of her parents put together. She made friends wherever she went and knew people on almost every continent. She explored every avenue available to her, and while Julie and Morty wanted her to be more like her sister and bring her friends home, they were a bit intimidated by some of the characters with whom she was associating. They were grateful when she finally settled down and got married, finding love and a career right in Florida. 
Julie leaned against the marble walls, cheating her arm behind the shower curtain to check the water temperature. She felt a chill. The water can't be taking this long. Maybe I'm a little hungry or dehydrated, too, she thought. As the goose flesh became more prominent, Julie took a deep breath. Bunching her shoulders up to prepare for the shock, she pushed the curtain aside and then swung one leg over the oversized tub side. Placing her foot down, she realized the water was just right. She hastily stepped in all the way and positioned herself directly under the shower head. Mmm, that feels good. I forgot how much I love a hot shower. What has it been, two or three days since I've done this? Or was it only yesterday? She turned around and glanced at the soap dish. While it wasn't wet, it appeared to have been used. Fine hotels always have obscure brands of shampoo and conditioner, soaps, and all kinds of other things for hoity-toity people to perform their daily ablutions. Just give me my pert and I'm fine. Oh, but this does feel good. Julie let the water run over her head. She stood there under the steamy cascades, her mind wandering back to the days when the kids were still home. She used to love her time in the bathroom. When everyone else had finished showering, when the laundry was done, and when the dishwasher had finished the wash cycle, she would sneak back to her sanctuary, as she called it, and soak in the tub for an hour. She would then let the water run out, stand up, and turn on the shower. She would scrub with a scented body wash, primp, and go through all kinds of cleanliness and beauty rituals. That was a long time ago. But what's the point now? I don't have to wrestle with the girls for bathroom time or hot water. Morty barely looks at me now anyway. He's barely ever home. Talk about an empty nest. That house is so quiet all the time. Maybe having a bunch of high schoolers, wacky or not, was better than the eerie silence. Sometimes the echo from the sound of my slippers sloughing along the marble floors towards the kitchen for a glass of wine while waiting for Morty to get home is the only sound in the whole damn house for the whole damn day. She glanced down at herself again. I guess I could take a little better care of myself. I don't remember the last time I bought any new clothes. Everything is stained or torn, except a couple of decent suits I was wearing to work. But now that I've been replaced, I guess that doesn't fucking matter anymore. My shoes, even my good ones, are scuffed. I don't think we even have any polish in the house anymore. It's one thing Morty used to do for me that he doesn't do anymore. Polish my shoes. He used to bring me coffee in bed in the morning. He used to stop and bring me flowers or chocolate on the way home from the hospital. I used to catch him watching me get dressed. Oh well, it's not going to matter anymore now. Julie's stream of consciousness was interrupted by the phone ringing in the bedroom. Nobody knew she was there, so she assumed it was the desk or housekeeping again, she let the phone continue to ring, forcing them to leave a message, since she was still dripping wet. She stood totally naked in front of the steamed-up mirror in the bathroom. She couldn't look at herself in the eye. However, she had no problem being critical of every inch of the rest of her body. She had gained over 80 pounds since she first walked down the aisle to marry Morty almost 35 years ago. She had stopped coloring her hair six months ago, leaving it totally gray and lifeless. She now tells everyone she is a purist and refuses to color her hair. That's just an excuse. The real reason was that she had heard that hair dye caused cancer, and Julie was always worried about her health. Julie didn't know why she wasn't more concerned with her appearance. 
She found herself constantly judging all the other women her age for their liposuction, their Botox, their endless trips to the doctor for yet another cosmetic surgery procedure. They spent thousands on their makeup, gym memberships, and wardrobes. For what? To be ignored by their husbands? Nope. No plastic surgery. No hair color. No need for gobs of makeup. I was supposed to be fine with the way God made me. If it's good enough for God, it's good enough for me. And it better be good enough for everyone else. And if Morty thinks I'm not sexy enough for him anymore, then that's his problem. Besides, our marriage shouldn't be based wholly on our sex life and my appearance. At least not anymore. It should be much more intimate than that by now. I know sex is important, but if that's how he thinks, then I don't want to be with him anyway. He needs to understand that women change a lot when they get to be my age. After menopause, they lose their svelte bodies, and with that, a great deal of their libido. I love him more today than the day I married him, and I show it in myriad ways. I'm just not interested in sex. I mean, for God's sakes, it hurts to do it. It could be the drop in my hormones, my low self-image, my medications, or all three. She noticed that her body was nearly dry, yet she hadn't picked up a towel, not realizing that she had been standing there for ten minutes fighting with her husband. The mirror was only damp, and she could now fully see herself. You know what? I need to add this question and talk about this in my suicide note or letter or whatever the hell I'm writing. This next question would be why men equate sex with love. I mean, why does Morty feel I don't love him just because I'm not as interested in sex as I used to be? Let me go get this down. I do love him. I do. I'm just not interested in making love. Julie grabbed the robe from the hook on the back of the door. Shoving her arms through the sleeves, she realized that she had left the sleeves inside out the last time she used the robe. Pausing and listening to herself think, she tried desperately to remember the last time she showered. She patted the pockets of what was once a plush white terry robe, packed neatly in a thick plastic bag. Her heart skipped a beat. Her cigarette pack was in there. Did I use the robe yesterday? Did I shower yesterday? When did I go outside to smoke last? Frozen, Julie began rocking back and forth, trying to remember the events that led up to her hanging the robe in the bathroom with her cigarette still in the pocket. The robe still smelled of smoke. This was that same panicky feeling she seemed to be getting more and more often. She couldn't even remember the last time she ate anything or even how long she had been at the hotel. The mirror was completely dry, as was her hair. She tried to focus in on her face, but without her glasses, she could barely make out the fact that her complexion was pale, her lips gray. She backed up and found her way to the side of the tub and sat on the edge, holding on with both hands. She shook her head like a dog would after coming in from the rain, as if to evoke a memory or two. Oh shit, here I go again. Not realizing how lightheaded she was, that little shake knocked her off balance and Julie fell backwards into the tub. She couldn't hold on to interrupt the fall. All she could think of to do was to avoid hitting her head, so straining her neck forward, she landed on her left shoulder, the rest of her body slinking and sliding in after. Phew, that was close. Funny, though, if I had just hit my head, it could have all been over. I guess that survival instinct that lives within all of us kicks in unless we are being single-minded of purpose. 
I mean, I didn't plan to do it that way, so I saved myself. Hmm. Graceful. Maybe I just wasn't supposed to die today. Maybe there is still some sense of self-preservation deep down inside me. Julie pulled her legs back over the side and into the tub so that she could gather herself and stand up and climb out like a lady, as if she were being watched. It was a strange sensation, one she hadn't felt in a long time. It was as if she was on show. She tried awkwardly to cover her naked body with the robe. Julie had played so many roles in her lifetime, but now she had concluded that she had none left to play. She was no longer a full-time mom, nor a full-time employee, nor a full-time wife, if a wife at all. Hell, even her mother had more on her schedule than she did. Nobody needed her anymore. She was relatively sure nobody wanted her either. She pulled the ties of the robe and loosely tied them together. I just have this great big pity party to which I must go. That's all. This is not so out of the ordinary. Oh, wait, now I remember. I had this thing on over my bathing suit when I was checking out the logistics. The damn rooftop pool is only on the fifth floor. Fifth floor isn't going to be high enough. I took the smokes with me so I could have a cigarette outside without having to sneak out a side door. Don't want anyone to recognize me. I'm sure by now there's a missing persons report out and my picture has been circulated. Still can't remember how long I've been here. Floppy hats, sunglasses, and bathrobes poolside is not too suspicious. But that wasn't today. It wasn't even yesterday. Wait, what time is it? Julie returned to the bedroom, put her glasses on, and looked at the digital clock at the bedside. 3.15. She then saw the light blinking on the phone. She worried for just an instant that she had been discovered. Blowing the fear off, she dialed the automated message system. Relieved to find they were only concerned that she hadn't had housekeeping in for the three days, she called and asked them to send someone up in about a half hour. I'll just leave the room and take a walk down to the pool for a smoke with my disguise. Throwing a bathing suit and the robe on, Julie made a manual note of her shower epiphany, fully anticipating dealing with it in her letter when she came back upstairs. Morty should learn from this, but she was not going to be objectified as a woman anymore. He and his cronies with their trophy wives and their artificial bodies can go fuck themselves. At least Morty hadn't asked for a divorce. Yet. Wait, why do I keep doing that? It's not like it's going to matter tomorrow. I wonder why I keep going back to acting like I'm teaching Morty a lesson. I'm not checking out because I'm angry at Morty or because I want to teach him a lesson. I just hurt inside. I just feel like I don't want to compete with those other women anymore. Or am I the only one competing? Who is competing with me? Does anyone care? Julie grabbed the gray floppy hat that she had gotten at Allie's bridal shower. Her friend Natalie was so creative, having an afternoon tea and having all the ladies dress up. They had all gotten the floppy hats as party favors and played such cute games. It was nice for once to go to one of these things that wasn't all about male strippers and sex or having to reveal deep, dark secrets. Julie paused for a moment. If my daughters knew some of my secrets, I wonder if they would have understood me better. I wonder if they would have had a little Rachmanis or empathy for me. I know they would comprehend better some of the reasons I reacted the way I did to some of the things they went through. Jilted out of her thoughts when there was a loud rapping on the door, Julie sat back on the bed. 
What part of half an hour didn't they understand? Julie spoke aloud as she grabbed her sunglasses from the nightstand and hastily maneuvered them onto her face with one hand and smashed the hat over her hair with the other. How keeping? Just a minute, Julie was immediately relieved. How keeping? She decided that since that was a Spanish accent, the lady wouldn't recognize her anyway. She got up from the bed, picked up her beach bag, and slipped her laptop into the main section. She walked over to the door and unlocked all the extra security locks to let in the maid. I'll be at the pool for a little while, Julie breezed past the maid. Yes, Mrs. Yes, Mrs. So now there's another question. If I feel so misunderstood by the people that are close to me, to the point that I end up here, like this, how come this little Spanish lady somehow makes me feel important? All she did was refer to me politely by calling me Mrs. That's her job, I know. Maybe she doesn't want to get in any trouble. Maybe she's one of those illegals. Now I know what the question was that I wanted to write down. The question is, did I? Julie pushed the button on the inside of the elevator, grateful that she was alone, knowing full well that she would remember about the question, and blurted out loud. Oh, yeah! She even startled herself. The whole point of this was to answer the question of whether your whole life passes before your eyes right before you die. That's where I left off. I guess I'll find the answer out tonight. Or maybe tomorrow night. Chapter 2 Finding an empty lounge chair around the side of the pool at the hotel was not an easy task, especially during convention season in the winter in South Florida. Not only were there people from all over the country, but this area attracted a lot of international travelers. Julie had little patience for the fact that the quaint hometown in which she had grown up was like a foreign land to her now. Nobody spoke English anymore. The pounding of the beat of the Latin music even irritated her, and she loved music and dancing. Ever since she took early retirement from her job at the TV station, or rather she was pushed, she firmly believed, because of her age, her gray hair, and her weight, she couldn't find even a part-time job because she didn't speak Spanish. After a few minutes, a chair opened close to the outdoor bar. That was fine with her. She rushed over to grab it, but somebody beat her to it. Excuse me, but I think I was here first. Yo no hablo inglés. Julie cringed at her youth and beauty. Her body had not one ounce of fat, and she had the most gorgeous flaxen hair cascading down her evenly tanned back. She stared at the woman or girl as if frozen. A familiar feeling of inferiority overtook her. She suddenly felt uncomfortable in her own pale skin. Yeah, well, go home. I thought they all had dark hair. There I go again. What do they call it? Profiling, that's right. Jeez, I hope she didn't understand what I said. You're not a bigot, Julie. You're not a racist. You always used to embrace the melting pot culture of this town. What the hell is wrong with you? Julie turned around and there, right in front of her, was another chair. She tossed her bag on it, forgetting that her laptop was in it. Shoot. The Latin beauty smiled at her, pulling at what little there was of her bathing suit bottom to get comfortable. Julie forced a smile back and turned to get herself comfortable, too, although she didn't have a wedgie. She didn't take off her robe, as that would have made her extremely the opposite, very uncomfortable, again. She pulled a towel out of the bag and spread it on the chaise. Next, she formed a pillow with another towel, 
Last, she rummaged around the bottom of the bag for her room key and headed over to the bar. This won't make my problems any better, but I don't think things can get any worse. Can I have a lemon drop, please? In fact, I'll take two. That way I don't have to come back in five minutes. The bartender looked at her, half smiling, half smirking. It was a knowing look, one she had seen before when she ordered like that. She wasn't worried that he recognized her. She did, however, look over his shoulder at the television that was hanging unsteadily in the corner of the little bar while he was mixing her drinks. The red banner flashing across the bottom said, Breaking news. There it was, my name in lights. It took this to make me famous. Oh, what an awful picture. Why would he use my driver's license? It looks like a prison mugshot. Jeez, Morty, you could have used a picture from Allie's wedding at least. I mean, at least then I was thinner, decently dressed, and had some makeup on. Oh, I remember that day like it was yesterday. Allie's wedding was just magnificent. That was a much better time. I don't remember feeling like this on that day. Julie handed the bartender her room card, but then pulled it away. Wait a minute, I'll be right back. She rushed over to her chair and grabbed her bag. I don't want any more charges on my room. I don't want to have to go back to the front desk now that my picture is all over the local news. Someone might recognize me. She reached into the zipper pocket and pulled out two $20 bills. Julie nearly ran over someone on her way back to the bar and then slapped the bills down on the wet counter. She picked up her drinks, one in each hand, and boldly declared, That ought to cover it. She looked up at the television one more time and that red banner was still there. The bartender glanced over and noticed the $40, but by the time he reacted and tried to tell her it was too much, she was gone. Heading back toward her chair, Julie couldn't help feeling a little remorse. I don't really mean for them to be upset. I don't. God, they even have it on the news. I just don't know what else to do. I can't stand feeling this way anymore, and nobody seems to notice. No remedy seems to help. I mean, I don't want to drink myself to death, and I know I've really been overdoing it lately. I don't really feel like playing golf or bridge with the girls anymore. I don't really want to do anything anymore. My whole life has gotten to be such a bore. The conversation's mundane. Nothing seems to matter much anymore. Even the girls are too busy for me. My role as mom is pretty much over. After squirming around on the chaise lounge with her laptop on her lap, she finally found a position in which she could see what she was doing outside of the glare of the sun and out of view of people sitting near her. She had already figured out that she would tell anyone who asked that she was writing a blog, whatever that is. Scrolling through the paragraphs she had already written, it looked more to Julie like the rantings of a serial killer like Ted Kaczynski. This was supposed to be a simple letter of farewell. She began to read, Dear Morty, I'm not even sure what my intention was when I left the house. All I know is I can't go on like it is. I was warned about the empty nest syndrome. All the girls at the club, the girls in the sisterhood, they all started talking about it a few years ago, but I blew it off. And now it's happening to me. Allie and Sophie are both in happy marriages and have great careers, but they're so busy they barely even call me. After all those years of placing their needs ahead of my own, the cooking, the schlepping, the worrying, I feel like they don't need me at all anymore. It's an empty feeling. I feel like I'm not a mom anymore. I guess this is what I wanted for them, but suddenly I feel useless. 
I've watched some of my friends lose their husbands to death or to younger women. And let's face it, Morty, you pay very little attention to me. I'm not sure if you are seeing someone on the side, but I'm pretty sure it's a matter of time. I mean, look at me. I'm 50 pounds overweight. I'm totally gray. I don't respond to you when you do try. I imagine if I were you, I would at least be looking. Frankly, I wouldn't blame you. I don't have a job. After so many years of pouring myself into that industry, there was no gold watch. There was no retirement party. Nothing. I used to be good. I was attractive. I was sharp. I don't fit the mold of what the South Florida audience wants or needs to have anymore. Face it, I've been supplanted. My ability to remember things is sketchy at best. Sometimes I think I have the early stages of Alzheimer's disease, but when I express my concerns to anyone about my memory loss, everyone, including my doctor, just laughs at me. The doctor said that if I am so cognizant of my memory loss, then I don't have the big A. I just have normal decline. It happens to everyone. That doesn't make it easier to contend with. In fact, it scares me. There's nothing to do all day, so I drink. I drink my lunch, watch television, and sleep all afternoon. I mean, I don't think I have a drinking problem. I just do it to pass the time. I drink enough to make me go to sleep. If that happens every day, does that mean I'm an alcoholic? I still fix dinner most nights, when you don't have your poker night or a late night at the hospital. And it really isn't every day, because I was still going to the club to play a round of golf with the girls occasionally, although that hasn't happened much lately. Julie stopped reading and slowly closed the laptop. She stared out in front of her over the pool, watching the nubile bodies spraying and splashing around. The young women, whose string bikinis were barely covering anything, were flirting and teasing with tanned, buff, and handsome young men who Julie thought were sporting erections in their tiny, tight bathing suits. We never behaved that way in public, did we? They're obnoxious, aren't they? Huh? Julie looked up to find three overly made-up, middle-aged women standing over her. I'm sorry, what did you say? Those kids, don't they make you feel old? Rachel Goldstein wasn't shy. That's the one thing about this hotel. It attracts all the beautiful people. She waited for a response. Or maybe it's just Miami. Yes, I noticed. Julie wasn't in the habit of striking up conversations with strangers. It wasn't her nature to be outgoing, and lately it wasn't even her nature to be friendly. She had been enveloped by a negative attitude that wouldn't let go of her, and most people could sense this, so she wasn't often approached. But it didn't stop this lady. I'm Rachel. Rachel Goldstein. Rachel pushed Julie's bag to the side and sat down on the end of the chaise. Are you here alone? Because if you are, my friends and I are going to the inside bar for a drink. If you want to join us, it's nice and cool in there. No, thank you. This was Julie's immediate response, always. I was just getting ready to go back upstairs, but thank you for the invitation. No problem. I'm here with my girls, announced Rachel. Your girls? Your daughters? Nah, my friends. We do this every year. We take a getaway vacation from New York. Rachel tried to stand up gracefully, but she was no gazelle. After she gained her composure, she tried again. We have a lot of fun together if you change your mind. Thank you. I'll see Oh, my name is Julie, by the way. As soon as she said it, she regretted it. What if they stop partying long enough to watch the news? Maybe I'll come down later. How long will you be here? Well, we are planning a trip to South Beach to go to Jones Stone Crabs for dinner tonight. 
We were going to make an 8 o'clock reservation if you want to join us. We're taking an Uber from here at 7.30 and there's room for you. Rachel stopped her chatter for just a moment. We'll be around the pool or the bar until about 5. She started to walk toward the entrance to the building but turned back. Think about it. Julie did think about it. She decided that meeting these ladies and taking her mind off everything might be a good diversion. Reading what she had written so far had only cemented her resolve, so this might be an opportunity to have a laugh or two before tomorrow. And Joe's was one of her favorites. I didn't get an invitation, but perhaps if I had a drink or two with Rachel Goldstein, was it? Maybe I can snag an invitation to dinner, too. She'll find out that they don't take reservations, unless you know somebody. Returning to her room, Julie had found her bed made up and turned down, fresh towels in the bathroom, including a new bathrobe still in the plastic cover hanging on the hook. All the dirty dishes were gone, and the honor bar had been restocked. I guess I better find out how much I owe them and drop some cash off at the desk. I don't want to leave a bill. Julie tossed her hat on the floor and then slipped out of the dirty robe, this time remembering to put her cigarettes back into her purse. Funny, she thought to herself. I went all the way out there with the intent merely to smoke, and I was there for over an hour and never once lit a cigarette. I guess that's good. Not because I care about my health, but because I won't run out before tomorrow. Ha! <laughs> tomorrow. Now I'm thinking there will be a tomorrow. The bathing suit wasn't as easy from which to disrobe. It wasn't wet from the pool because she never considered taking off her robe around those beautiful people, but she had perspired profusely, and the dampness forced her to peel the suit down from each side of her a little at a time. By the time she had finished, she was out of breath. Julie walked back into the bathroom and sat down on the edge of the bathtub. She looked around her. She was amid great luxury. She chose this location because if she was going to go out, she was going to do so in style. But before she did, she was certainly going to pamper herself. She stood up again and glanced quickly in the mirror. It was then she decided to make a few subtle changes to her plan. Climbing into the shower, Julie found herself humming. This was something she almost never did anymore, and it caught her by surprise. She was humming a song from way back in the 70s when she was as young as those people by the pool. A love song, one that made her think of Morty in his prime, when he looked like that, in med school, before the kids. The hot water ran over her back again. She had just been in the shower two hours ago, but it had made her feel so much better. This time, she didn't linger. She spent the few minutes anticipating the evening. When she was finished rinsing off, she climbed out and wrapped a fresh towel around her and almost hopped back into the bedroom. She hadn't packed much in the way of dinner clothes, but she did decide, while in the shower, to join Rachel and her friends. I guess the white jeans and this blouse should be okay. I'm only going to be with them for drinks and maybe dinner anyway. It's not like we're going clubbing afterwards or anything. Julie threw on the clothes haphazardly, as she usually had been doing recently, but then interrupted herself. She decided that for her last night out, she was going to make herself as beautiful as possible. She primped and fussed with her clothes until she was happy, and then dug around in her purse to try to find whatever old makeup might still be there. She found a partially melted dark red lipstick and some almost dried mascara. I can just hear my mother carping on me to put on a little lipstick. Not that one. It makes you look like a whore. Try something a little softer. Just the thought of her mother and that ritual conversation gave her pause. Her immediate thought was her mother's nagging about lipstick, but further, the lesson she took from Morty in dealing with it. 
He always used to tell her that this is rule number one, that she could tell him what to do or how to do it, but not both. That rule applied to anything and everything that would appear on the honeydew list over the years. Julie laughed out loud. She made her best effort to use what she had, half apologetic to her mother and half sarcastically thinking otherwise. Sorry, Mom, you lose. I'll have to look like a whore tonight, but at least I'm wearing something. She finished putting on what little other makeup she had and threw the rest of the makeup in the trash can. She fussed with her hair for a moment and sighed. She took one last cursory look around the bathroom as if she were forgetting something and then shrugged her shoulders. With one last glance in the mirror and one last deep breath, Julie spoke aloud. Well, here goes nothing. Chapter 3 Okay, where is that chick? I was only upstairs for about 45 minutes. I rushed like hell to get down here and there's nobody here. Julie glanced around the lobby, straining to look inside of the bar. She could see most of the patrons, except for the tables around the back. She hadn't brought the floppy hat down with her, but was still sporting her sunglasses. Tipping them up, she spotted the restaurant in the distant corner of the lobby. Assuming now that she had some time, Julie made her way to the front desk and waited her turn while a young family checked in. I know I've amassed some more charges, and I don't want to be in the red. I'd like to pay for a few more nights and give you some more money toward incidentals, if that's okay. I mean, that is, if my room is still going to be available for the next two or three days. Julie felt her heart flutter. She never imagined she would be alive in a few days, much less staying at such a posh hotel. Her original plan had been to find a dive somewhere up the East Coast, until she figured she deserved to live it up before she died. What if the room isn't available? The clerk looked up from his computer and said, It'll be the same rate for two extra weekdays, ma'am. You still have a small credit on your account, so the total for you for two more days would be $487, unless you want to add some more for incidentals. Terrific. Julie rummaged through her purse and found her change purse, in which she had rolled up her bigger bills. She pulled them out and peeled off seven $100 bills. Here you go. She handed them over. That should take care of it. Keep a C-note for your trouble. Thank you, ma'am. It isn't often a desk clerk receives tips, so the young man was more than gracious. It was my absolute pleasure. Julie barely heard him as she turned to walk toward the center of the lobby. He stuffed a crisp $100 bill in his pocket and immediately recorded the transaction, including the tip, on the computer. I'm just going to sit still for a little while and see if she shows up. She probably forgot that she invited me anyway. Either that, or she thought better of it and intends to leave me out. That's happened before in my life. I remember that feeling. Fuck it. I won't have to deal with that kind of shit much longer anyway. Julie sank back into the couch, getting swallowed up by the plush cushion. Her eye was drawn to the center of the atrium. It was likely the largest phallic stone sculpture she had ever seen. It was sitting in a fountain of some kind, but the water was calm. Or is it phallic? Probably just in my mind. The late afternoon sun must have been reflecting from the bay off a disco ball somewhere because the lights were dancing all over the lobby. Julie decided that just sitting there was not doing her any good. She dragged herself out of the couch and decided to give herself a tour around the lobby. Stopping at the beauty salon, she had an epiphany. She could change her appearance, and then she could lose the sunglasses and the hat. She walked in and asked if they had time enough before closing to take her. 
Sitting in the chair facing the mirror, Julie proceeded to tell the stylist, a young, patently gay young man, that she wanted a complete overhaul. She told him she was feeling icky and wanted to pick me up. Oh, honey, I get it. I've been here since nine this morning, and I could really use a couple of mojitos right about now. An hour later, Julie emerged from the salon with a short blonde bob cut and a colossal headache. She wasn't sure if it was from the smell of the chemicals or the constant babbling of the stylist. She tipped him well, which shut him up. Go have some fun down on South Beach tonight. When she turned to leave, she dropped her floppy hat back on her head, which made him groan. Barely out the door, she heard someone calling her name. Shit, who found me? Julie spun around to see Rachel waving both her arms over her head from across the entire lobby. She was standing at the edge of the restaurant bar. Julie, we're over here! Julie was embarrassed to be singled out, especially by name. Forgetting that she didn't look the same, however, she slipped her sunglasses on, making the lobby seem much darker than it was. She acknowledged Rachel and slowly made her way to the bar. Rachel and all three of the other women were standing there waiting for her. She must have remembered the stupid hat. The Uber is coming at 7.30, which gives us an hour and a half for drinking. And it's happy hour. Beth Stein stepped forward from behind the other women. Hi there, Julie, is it? I didn't get a chance to introduce myself. My name is Beth. What do you have? I'm buying the first round. Ah, uh, thanks. Hi. Julie was taken aback by how open and outgoing these women were. It's nice to meet you, Beth. You don't have to buy me a drink, but thank you. Julie was contemplating what to order, trying to see if the others already had drinks. Were they into wine, beer, or mixed drinks? I don't want to look like a lush. Of course I do. That's the way we roll. We all buy around. Now, what do you have? Rach? Linda? Deb? White wine for me, volunteered Rachel. You know I have to watch my sugar. Let me just have some Maker's Mark rocks. I need something stiff. Debbie was usually heavy-handed, or she was, until her son's problems bubbled up. Since she'd started going to those Al-Anon meetings, she slowed down her drinking a little. Linda stood pensive. I imagine a few beers won't hurt this week. Can you find out what's on tap? You know what I like. Linda had been told that anything she eats or drinks that can be converted to sugar easily will feed any cancers in her body. Even though she's a three-year breast cancer survivor, she remains vigilant, if not panicked, that it might come back somewhere else in her body. Okay, honey, that leaves you. Their variety of drinks they ordered isn't much help for me in deciding, but then again, it doesn't seem like they'll judge me either. Julie barely raised her head and chimed in. You know, I could use a good stiff drink myself. How about some Canadian club on the rocks? You got it. Beth disappeared again back toward the bar, which was now three people deep all the way around. Happy hour there was a busy place for young downtowners. The in-crowd? Was it the new hot spot in downtown Miami? Or was it just the closest and safest bar to hang out around before going home to whatever obligations and misery they had waiting for them? Still standing, with her head tilted slightly down, Julie backed away a bit, receding once again into her own head. Her thoughts returned to the suicide pondering that she had been in the middle of writing when she made the decision to join these strangers for dinner. She had originally planned for this night to be the night when she would finally end her pain and find the answer to that question. What the fuck am I doing down here? Other than spending more money.
She began to fidget at her shoulder, only then remembering that her long hair was gone. The reality of that endeavor made her realize that maybe she wasn't in as much of a hurry to complete her mission. Hey, girl, Rachel nudged Julie on the arm. We got a great table in the corner of the bar. And the best thing? She paused and glanced around at her posse. Beth was trying to balance a small tray with all five drinks on them. Linda had lifted a bowl of pretzels from the bar. Debbie poked her head in between them and they all chimed in together. It's close to the restroom! They laughed out loud, almost embarrassing Julie with their heavy, strident snorts and cackles. She always used to judge New Yorkers for being boisterous and outspoken, but these girls were funny. Rachel took Julie by the arm and dragged her through the layers of young people. This was not an easy task as they were both middle-aged women attempting to stay young. Rachel had recently had a facelift and some liposuction. Her preoccupation with her appearance was evident. Julie thought she wore way too much makeup. Julie wore almost none. When they broke out into the open, Rachel let go of Julie's arm and made a beeline to the table in the corner. Julie followed her and, for the first time that afternoon, picked her head up and walked tall. She glanced at the televisions hanging around the bar and confirmed that they were all on sports channels or music videos, so she felt safer in exposing her face a little. The three other members of Rachel's posse found them at the table and, delivering the drinks and pretzels, promptly plopped themselves down on the booth side while Julie and Rachel both sat in two chairs with their backs to the door. After a minute or two of situating themselves, their purses, their drinks, and their personalities, Julie asked a question. So, tell me again, how do you all know each other? Big mistake, Julie thought as they all began talking at once. Friends from camp, New York, husband, Little League, chocolate ice cream, cruise. Wait, wait, Julie tried to interrupt them. Please, one at a time if you don't mind. You all have so much energy. The sun took a lot out of me and I can't absorb you all at once. She laughed and smiled. I don't remember the last time I felt like giggling. As usual, Rachel took over. We all went to camp together in the Berkshires 50 years ago. We all came from the Scarsdale area of New York. We all grew up in and around the same area, and we're all Jewish. We even belong to the same temple. Rachel glanced around the table. These women know more about me than I know about myself. We've lived each other's lives, raised our kids together, reveling through all the good times and holding each other up through all the hard times. And believe me, there have been plenty. As if almost on cue, the four women took each other's hands and became suddenly silent. Beth broke away from her grip and reached across the table to take Julie's hand. Julie was stunned. She cocked her head to the side and slowly glimpsed at the faces of the other women. She felt tightness in her chest and tears welling up in her eyes as she sensed their approval. Taking Beth's hand with her right hand, she reached for Rachel's with her left. Rachel nearly grabbed it, saying, Always room for one more, even if it's only temporary. Julie sat quietly as her four new best friends interacted. She watched intently, trying to learn as much as she could about each one of them. They were all about trying to top each other with questionable jokes, funny stories, and reminiscing about the days when they were young and uninhibited. Chapter 4 There was barely enough room for four, much less five, hefty women in the Mercury Marquis with the Uber symbol on the windshield that pulled up in front of the Intercontinental Hotel. The driver seemed irked that he had gotten this call, openly resenting the fact that tipping was supposedly included. 
the women fit four in the back, sitting on top of each other, with Rachel in the passenger side of the front. She sat turned entirely around, completely ignoring the driver, who was doing his best to be cordial. You girls want the scenic route or the fastest one? The driver tried to talk over the crowing and cackling women. Excuse me, are you in a hurry or do you want to take the scenic ride down Miami Beach? Rachel turned around and laid into the unsuspecting driver. He was an older man, older than the women, and Rachel was indignant. First of all, we are not your girls. Since they wouldn't take a reservation, I'm assuming we have time. Please go by way of the beach. She squirmed back around in the seat to try and see the rest of her friends around the headrest. Take it easy on the guy, Rage, said Linda. He didn't do anything wrong except ask a question. The driver muttered something under his breath and drove off, navigating the traffic around the downtown circle to access the highway out to Miami Beach, where he picked up A1A. A weeknight had traffic moving slowly but steadily. The car gradually made its way down to Fifth Street and then to Washington Avenue. Soon the women were climbing out of the car as clumsily as they got in. Rachel turned around to the driver and said, Hey, I'm sorry if we were rude. We do this thing where we get to see each other only once a year and we have a lot of catching up to do. She paused and reached into her blouse, pulling a wad of bills from her bra. She peeled off two $20 bills and handed them to him, humbly adding, I hope this makes up for it. Have a great evening. Whoa, hey, no, I'm not supposed to accept tips. Okay, so make-believe it fell out of my purse on the front seat and you didn't notice until you were long gone. When you went back to the restaurant to return it, you couldn't find us, okay? Okay, night. Rachel slammed the door shut and strutted toward the door of Joe's. The driver shrugged. Okay, if you say so. Thanks, I guess. He knew nobody could hear him, but he kept talking as he drove away. Beth met Rachel at the door. No wonder they don't take reservations. The place is mobbed. We can go to the bar, but it'll be at least an hour and a half till we see a table. Okay, by me. Rachel had no problem when it came to waiting for a table if she knew it was going to be a great meal. This place is supposed to be legendary. We always said we'd come here when we were in South Florida, but we never got here. Rachel brushed by Beth. To the bar. She pointed up in the air and followed her own order. Julie had followed Linda and Debbie into the bar to try to find either a table or an area at the bar they could secure. She decided to pick up the next round of drinks so the other women would feel comfortable that she wasn't horning in on their evening. She remembered all but one of the five drinks and had to be reminded what Rachel was having. Okay, I got it. The waiter brought the drinks over to the high top around which the five women hovered. Julie paid him in cash with a substantial tip and picked up her drink. Here's to new friends in old places. The rest of the girls repeated the toast in unison. To new friends in old places, Rachel joined Debbie in adding, and to old friends in new places. They were all startled by the fact that they said it together, so much so that the whooping and laughing started all over again. Geez, everyone is looking at us, Julie was embarrassed. She inched her way to the corner and found herself hiding behind Debbie and Beth, who were standing together. Yeah, so what? Rachel was once again indignant. Big fucking deal. Let them look. Just jealous because they're not having as much fun as we are. You just don't know. You don't know that I am afraid I might be recognized. I have plenty of friends that come here all the time. This was a big mistake. Maybe I should beg off and just go take care of things. Shit. Here comes that feeling again. Let me take a drink.
Um, I don't think they're looking at us anyway. Turn around inconspicuously. Rachel tried to whisper, but she wasn't very good at it. Standing by the bar, merely three feet away, were Gloria and Emilio Estevan. Although they were attempting to maintain a low profile, they were surrounded by a cadre of adoring fans. Linda, who was never impressed by stardom, in fact, never swooned over teen idols, ignored the whole thing and spoke up. So, Julie, you're a Floridian. Besides the stone crabs, what should we be ordering here? I mean, if you don't mind, I'd like to get insider information, especially with doctors and restaurants. Well, let's see. Are we starting with appetizers? Julie spoke with authority, all the while trying to get a glance at the stars. Of course! Rachel wouldn't miss a course at a place like Joe's. Clearing her throat, Julie took the invisible podium. If you do soup, do the clam chowder. Or if salad, the chopped salad is outrageous. If you want regular apps, the calamari or shrimp cocktail. They're both standard fares, but huge and good. When ordering the stone crabs, order the select. The mediums are okay, but the select are really the best for the money. Then we should order three sides to share. They're huge portions, so it should be enough. I'll recommend four or five and then let you fight it out. Julie stopped talking. Her new friends were staring at her, mesmerized by the information she was imparting. For the first time in forever, she felt important. She felt like her opinion counted, a far cry from how she had been feeling at home. Okay, hash browns, grilled tomatoes, spinach, grilled asparagus, Brussels sprouts, and if you want to do a second potato, I suggest the garlic Parisian potatoes. Julie was almost out of breath, but she was able to ask one more question. Are we staying for dessert and coffee? Even I know what you order for dessert at Joe's, said Rachel. We have to order the key lime pie, right? She spoke with confidence. That's correct. You win the prize. What's the prize? Rachel was curious. Julie announced, the dinner check. Julie was expecting the same response that she had been hearing each time one of the others told a joke. This time, however, there was no reaction. In fact, they seemed stoic. What did I say wrong? Nothing. We split the check, even Stephen, no matter what anyone orders. I hope you're on the same page, Linda offered up the explanation. We've had issues with other guests to our parties that were kind of picky and wanted to split checks to the penny, paying only for what they ate. We don't roll like that. Hope you're okay with that, she explained. Oh no, sure, that's fine. I was just trying to make a joke. Julie was confused. One minute they're laughing hysterically and the next they are as serious as shit. I'll just have to keep my mouth shut. What do they want from me anyway? I don't know you, you bitch. That's what my husband and I do too. We have sometimes had to stop socializing with people that are that cheap and penny-pinching. <sighs> Rachel seemed relieved. For a minute, I thought I misjudged you. I'm really glad, because I really like you. She lifted her glass. To new friends in old places. Ditto, said Linda. Debbie just held up two fingers of her free hand and made a V sign while picking up her drink with the other. Beth just drank. When the conversation turned to plans for the next day, Julie's mind wandered back to her writings. She barely heard her company's chatter. I don't have any idea what tomorrow will bring. It's actually kind of nice not to have to worry about plans for tomorrow when I know there won't be one. I wonder how late we'll be getting back tonight. I know they refilled the honor bar this afternoon while I was at the pool, 
So if I don't get the nerve by what I put down here, I can always empty it out. After all, I did pay for two days and some extra for incidentals. I can't possibly drink that much. Drinks are really good here. Man, I can't believe how much I've already had. Julie's thoughts meandered back to the table, but she wasn't sure if it was because the waiter was placing a new round of drinks on the table or if somebody spoke to her. Acting casually, she reached for her empty and handed it to the server and then slipped her hand around the fresh cocktail glass. Whose turn is it? Debbie cocked her head to the side. Were you in a different astral plane or something? We just had that whole conversation. I got this one. The confusion on her face remained, begging an answer. Um, I was thinking about something, offered Julie. I'm sorry. I mean, thank you. Rachel piped up. Love means never having to say thank you. Oh, God. Beth made motions as if she were sticking her finger down her throat. Really, Rach? Are we doing that tonight? Again? Why not? It's always good for a few laughs, Rachel responded. Well, we better let Julian on this. Beth wasn't a big fan of this game because she was never up to speed on current movies or songs, but she explained the game to Julie. Okay, we do this game when we go out to dinner, just to mess with the servers. Whenever we talk to the servers, this is after we're seated, of course, other than when we place our orders, everything we say has to be a messed up movie line or song lyric. Beth rolled her eyes and continued. Did you notice what Rachel said to you? It was a spoof on the line from Love Story. Yeah, I just thought she got it wrong. I was about to correct her, Julie whispered. Ah, replied Beth. You see, she would have gotten a point if you had corrected her. You must make it really obvious without laughing or being obnoxious to try and get the total strangers to correct you. When we get up to leave, whoever has the most points wins. I know the prize isn't the check, Julie pronounced. Debbie sniggered. Bright one we have here, not so slow on the uptake. They all laughed, including Julie. So let me ask a question. Does making a toast to new friends in old places count? You know, like looking for love and all the wrong, you know the song? That would count, but only if you said it to the server, and it would only count for a point if he or she corrected you. Get it? Beth confirmed the example. Got it. Good. Julie laughed again. What is going on with me? This is not so bad. That heaviness on my chest isn't there right now. I can't remember the last time I didn't notice that. I don't even feel the flutter in my head. I'm concentrating on a conversation for a few minutes at a time. God, that feels good. So, you're the local yokel. What do you suggest we do tomorrow? We want to see some sights. Rachel directed her questions solely to Julie. Wait. Linda interrupted. We're not the touristy type. Is that a word? I mean, we don't need to see SeaWorld and shit like that. I mean, we like historical stuff, but more off the beaten track, like what the locals might do. Okay, uh, let me think. Julie really had to think. She was a resident for so long, she hadn't been out and about much in the tourism world. After her girls had left for college, she had been living a country club life until she got bored with that, and then she had become more of a recluse. People who don't do the tourist trap things here in South Florida, like the Parrot Jungle or the Seaquarium, and don't have kids with them, usually gravitate toward places like Vizcaya Museum and gardens near Key Biscayne, or the Murakami Gardens up in Boca Raton. There's also the Holocaust Memorial on Miami Beach, and the Jewish Museum that's run by Florida International University. No Jewish stuff, please. Beth broke in suddenly. Just please no. 
No busman's holiday for me. Okay, no Jewish stuff. Julie was caught off guard, but shrugged and returned to her role as vacation guide. If you like outdoor stuff, you can visit the Everglades and learn all about Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. If you want to take a day trip, Key West is about three and a half hours to the south. I wouldn't recommend the Middle Keys right now. They're still recovering from Hurricane Irma. Julie stopped to catch her breath, eyeing her new friends suspiciously. Did I say something wrong again? I broke my own rule. I was going to keep my mouth shut. What is it about these women? Is it because they're New Yorkers? Is it because they're snotty Jewish women? Is it because I'm a plain Jane? Why are they looking at me like that? For God's sakes, I have something stuck on my teeth? There's that flutter in my chest again. This time, it was Linda that volunteered the reassurance that Julie apparently needed. Not at all. We were thinking, at least I think we were thinking, okay, I'll just say it since nobody else has. Why don't you join us for the day tomorrow? Julie was taken aback. She leaned back against the wall behind her. Again, she felt the flutter in her chest. It's a weekday, so if I go, we can go either here in Miami or up to Boca or something. That way I won't likely be seen by anyone I know. And would anyone really take a second look with my hair this way? Hmm. I could probably do that. Can I let you know in the morning? I mean, I may have assignments tomorrow. Shit, what am I doing? I can't tell them who I am and what the fuck kind of assignment. Shit, think fast. Sure, I guess, but we should decide what we're going to do tonight anyway. We may have to rent a car or order an Uber in advance. Linda was always the planner or the camp counselor. What else you got in ideas? Okay, well, if you want a little taste of the mixed culture in Miami, you can visit Little Havana. Go over to Calle Ocho and have lunch at Versailles Restaurant for some classic Cuban food. It's a landmark. All the politicians visit there when they're campaigning. Have you ever had a Cuban sandwich or a croqueta? I love Cuban food, Rachel announced. Rachel, you love every kind of food. Debbie elbowed her in the ribs. Rachel returned the elbow and gave Debbie a sarcastic sneer. Hey, I'm proud of my 50-something-year-old body. And by the way, I don't care what anyone else thinks. I'm happy with me, and that's all that matters. I've got nothing left to prove. In unison again. Amen. Man, these girls are of one mind. They answer together. They know what each other is thinking. They could probably order for each other. I have a question. Julie waited for a sign that she could ask it. Go ahead. You don't need our permission to speak, Rachel giggled. But if you did, you'd have to ask me first. Hey, who died and made you queen? Linda and Beth sang together. Ah, there's one, Julie exclaimed. Funny, that's my question. How long did you say you've known each other? I mean, you like finish each other's sentences. Sometimes you even answer each other's questions, two of you at the same time. It's almost eerie. I guess it's been about 45 years now, Debbie began. We were actually in two different elementary schools, none of us in the same classes. We didn't get to know each other until we went to a sleepaway camp together. Yeah, continued Linda. The camp was in Massachusetts in the Berkshire Mountains. We all started camp the same year in 1970. We were only seven years old. Linda stopped, staring straight ahead. It seems like a lifetime ago, but it seems like yesterday, too, if that's possible. I feel that way, too, Beth chimed in. It's not just the friendships that the four of us made and maintained all these years. The memories we made through all those summers are so vivid. And the camp, the way it was, it was just so special and meaningful. 
The same stare descended over Beth's face as her voice trailed off. It's like it never leaves you. Even now, I can close my eyes, smell the lake, and feel the cool summer breezes. I can picture the campfire down by the lake, or feel the cramps in my calves from running up the hill to the mess hall because I was late for lunch. Even Rachel got lost in her thoughts. No matter how hard Julie was trying not to engage herself with these women, she could not help but get swept up by the conversation. Their descriptions of this place made it seem magical. Remember those little yew trees that were planted along the path up the hill? Debbie asked. Remember how we used to jump them on the way down for rest hour after lunch? Sure, Rachel snapped out of her trance. That was so much fun. I was heavy even then. There was that one about halfway down that was too tall for me to make it over. I tried and tried and kept falling on my face. It wasn't until the third or fourth year there that I had lost enough pounds and gained enough inches. The problem was that over the same few years, the tree was growing too. Once again, the chuckling and snickering garnered the attention of everyone in the bar at Joe's. Hey, do you got a problem? Rachel asked a particularly tall and beautiful young blonde woman standing back to back with her. Rach, don't start anything. Linda was always the first to pull in the reins on Rachel, who didn't like to be admonished. What? We have every right to enjoy ourselves, too, Rachel snapped back. Well, let's not enjoy ourselves right out of here before we get a chance to have our stone crabs, okay? Linda softened. She knew if she pushed Rachel, it would only get worse. Two years ago, on their getaway weekend to New Orleans, they got kicked out of Antoine's. To be fair, all four of them had had too much to drink and were all being way too boisterous. They had been doing their annual update, and it got overly emotional. I just don't want another Antoine's. You're right. Rachel reached up and tapped the woman on the shoulder. I'm sorry if we were disturbing you. We just hadn't seen each other in a very long time. We'll attempt to keep it down. The woman nodded and smiled. Rachel turned back and whispered, I don't think she understood a single thing I said. Julie nodded. She understood your smile, and that's it. That was enough. She craned her neck to see around Rachel. She looks European, probably doesn't understand a word of English. Anyway, after that first summer at camp, we found out that we all lived in close proximity to each other. Debbie picked up the story. Two of us were in the same elementary school, and two of us went to a different one. The following school year, I was in Rachel's class, and Linda and Beth were in the same class at their school. Linda took over. The next summer, we all four of us requested to be in the same bunk at camp, and the rest is history. We ended up in the same middle school, and then when our days as campers were over, we went back as junior counselors and then counselors all the way through college. Beth went on. We were each other's maids of honor or bridesmaids. We all bought homes in the same neighborhood at first and started out raising our kids together. Yep, until our husbands or our careers took us different places, we were together for almost 25 years. Rachel slowed down and glanced at the glasses on the table. The second round of drinks were all gone, so she raised her hand and when she got the attention of the server, motioned for him to bring another round. We've gone through everything life tossed our way together. Almost everything, the three other women nearly sang the two words in harmony. There was an uncomfortable silence following those two words, a silence that seemed to Julie to have a sense of foreboding. This was a feeling she knew. It was less foreign to her than the laughter. All four of the women sat silent and motionless, waiting for the next drink. This is weird, making me feel really uncomfortable. 
I'm going to go to the LR and give them a minute without me. I feel like they all regret inviting me. I need to use the ladies' room before we get seated. I'll be right back. Julie twisted her way out of the corner. Man, this place is mobbed tonight. Hope I don't see anyone. Julie tilted her head down and used the direction that people's feet were pointing as a navigation tool to wend her way from the bar to the ladies' room. She knew the restaurant well. She and Morty made their annual sojourn down from Hollywood with a few friends every year in October or November. Joe's was only open in months that had an R in them. Morty had a friend who knew Roy, the maitre d', very well and was always all full of himself because he always thought Roy was doing him this big favor. His buddy said, if you slip Roy a 50, he'll take good care of you. Shit, Morty. Any maitre d' would take care of you if you give him 50 bucks. Jules, is that you? Julie stopped suddenly. She could feel her heart pulsating in her neck. Slowly, she turned her head to the right and saw a woman waving in her direction. She didn't recognize her, but then she had been to so many hospital and medical dinners. Jules, it's me, Evelyn! Julie looked directly at the woman and motioned her finger to her chest as if to ask, me? The woman seemed to look past her. Just as Julie took a deep breath of relief, she felt a jarring shove from behind. Excuse me, ma'am. A tall yet frail man seemingly had tripped and tumbled into her, and she had broken his fall. Evelyn, it's been ages. I'm so sorry, ma'am. I didn't mean to tumble into you. Julie was so relieved that it wasn't someone who recognized her. She was more congenial and kinder than she can ever remember being. Not at all, sir. Are you hurt? Can I help you? What the hell am I going to do to help this guy? No, I'm fine. Thank you. Julie left it at that and slipped into the ladies' room, again with her head tilted down. Joe's had a lovely facility, she thought, but she wondered how long she should stay away from those ladies. It sure got antsy there. I have no idea what I'm going to do in here. I don't even have to pee. How are you this evening? Julie attempted to strike up a conversation with the attendant. The little woman simply nodded. She was sitting in a chair next to the bank of sinks with a stack of towels and a small dish that was obviously meant for tips. Well, have a nice evening. Julie started to leave the room and the little woman stood up, reaching out with a towel in her hand. Julie didn't use the toilet or even the sink. Her hands weren't wet and didn't see a need for a towel and therefore a tip. Towel, missus? No, thank you. No towel, missus? She shoved the towel closer. Shit, guess I'll have to wash my hands, take the towel, and tip the lady. I guess this is her living. Julie threw her purse over her shoulder, leaned over the sink and rinsed her hands, and graciously reached out for the towel. Thank you. She dried her hands, reached in her purse, and pulled out a couple of singles and put them on the tip plate. Gracias, missus. The little woman glanced over at the dish, and while she was thanking Julie... The expression on her face revealed another feeling. Julie had a habit of assuming she knew what other people were thinking, and in her typical self-deprecating way, she told herself that even the ladies' room attendant didn't care much for her. Geez, lady, I didn't even need to use the restroom. I only rinsed my damn hands to appease your begging for a damn tip. What, wasn't two bucks for doing nothing enough for you? Just because I'm eating at Joe's doesn't mean I'm made of money. Julie pushed open the door, right into Debbie. Ooh, I'm sorry. No worries. I came to get you. Our table is ready. Debbie motioned for Julie to follow her. That was quick. Julie didn't look at her watch. She only noticed that she was still holding the towel. Why doesn't Joe's use paper towels like everyone else? Shit. Hold on, Debbie. I have to drop this back in the ladies' room. Hurry up, because I didn't exactly see where they went when they were seated, although we'll probably hear Rachel anyway. 
Debbie held the door. Are you okay? You left the table kind of suddenly. Julie took the weight of the door from Debbie and made something up. I felt like my hands were dirty after riding in that Uber, and since I'm probably going to order stone crabs, I know I'll be using my hands to eat. Yeah, that sounds good. I'm not a germaphobe or anything, but it is still the tail end of flu season, and you never know, you know? Debbie shrugged. I guess. Her eyes darted from right to left, looking for Rachel's bright magenta blouse and Linda's cream one, figuring that those two together would stand out. She spotted the lady Rachel had the words with in the bar first. You scan to the right and I'll look left. Why don't we just ask the desk where they seated our party? Now you made me feel dumb. Debbie's smile morphed into a mock pout. However, Julie didn't know that she was kidding. I'm so sorry. I just know the way they run this place. God, girl, I was kidding. You are certainly the sensitive one. She took Julie by the arm and pulled her along. I see them. Before we sit down, you better lighten up. Quit taking yourself so damn seriously. Got it? Who the fuck are you? I don't do that. I'm just trying to fit in. Julie smiled uncomfortably. I'm sorry. And quit saying you're sorry all the time. The two women approached the table. Again, they were seated in the corner, much to Julie's pleasure. The two remaining seats would have her back to the rest of the tables in the large dining room. We thought you must have fallen in. We brought your drink. Rachel wriggled around in her seat. This menu is gargantuan. She scanned it all over and decided to go with whatever everyone else wanted to order. Julie, why don't you order for us? Nobody has allergies or aversions. We just want the best Joe's Stone Crab restaurant experience we can have, and you seem to have all the answers. Oi, you're putting a lot of pressure on me. What if you don't like it? Julie was tentative. I mean, this is your big weekend, isn't it? Debbie elbowed her. Remember what I just told you. Now, when the waiter comes, you do the ordering for all of us, okay? And don't forget the game. Debbie picked up her drink. How is everyone doing on the third round? I'm almost ready, Linda volunteered. Me too, said Beth. Okay, so we'll order another round when we order dinner. Debbie seemed to have taken over Linda's role as the secretary of the group. Then another during dinner, and then maybe an aperitif with dessert. Does that sound good? That's an awful lot of drinking, isn't it? Julie wasn't used to doing this much drinking away from home. She did plenty of heavy drinking in the afternoons when she was home alone and didn't have to drive anywhere. Oh, right, Uber. They actually have a huge selection of after-dinner drinks here, and they also have amazing coffee drinks if you like them. That's more like it, Julie. Linda closed her menu. Now, let's plan tomorrow before we get too hammered. Linda, who usually was overly concerned about her alcohol intake, seemed to be leading the way into this oblivion the women were headed. I like the idea of that Vizcaya place in the morning, and then maybe the keys in the afternoon. Sounds good to me, added Beth. Beth was agreeable to everything everyone said. Julie was suspicious of people like that. It reminded her of herself. If I just go along with things, nobody will question my choices or ask me what I'm thinking about. That won't work. If you want to go to Key West, you need to give it an entire day and in tonight or even plan on staying overnight. It's about a four-hour drive from here. Even if you leave really, really early and get there for lunch, if you don't stay for the sunset, you've missed the best part. And then you still have a four-hour drive ahead to come back, she thought for a moment. I don't know about you, but for me, that's a terribly long day. You could do a morning trip to Everglades National Park, have lunch in Coconut Grove, and then visit Vizcaya in the afternoon. Then you could come back to the hotel to freshen up before you go to dinner. Julie felt quite satisfied that she had planned the perfect day.
This way, I won't have to go. They'll leave early enough so as not to find anything out about me, and by the time they get back, the hubbub will have quieted down. That sounds terrific, and you, my dear, will be our tour guide. Rachel made this pronouncement as if there was no discussion to follow, no arguing with her. Uh, I may not be able to. I may have some work to get done. Julie had to come up with some way out of it. There was that lie again, and now I'm going to have to embellish it for sure. Really? Hey, I never did find out what it is that you do. Linda seemed genuinely disappointed, as did the other girls. Oh, that's right. I was the one who met her at the pool. Julie is a writer of sorts. Wait, you never told me what kind of writer. Rachel realized, too, that she knew very little about their new companion. I think you said something about an assignment for, what, a newspaper? Julie had to think fast. She had no idea what these women knew about the local news. They only knew that her first name was Julie. I have to start making up a whole life here. This should be relatively easy. I won't see them again, for one. And two, I'm good at making up stories. I always do it when I travel alone, just for the fun of it. I've been everything from a surgeon to an elementary school teacher. I've been a dope dealer and a piano tuner. So, hmm, what do I write? It's not very exciting. I'm a tech writer for an auto parts manufacturer. I write user manuals and parts replacement manuals. I also update instruction manuals for those DIY folks out there. The funny part is that I personally know nothing about cars. Julie laughed. It's the kind of work I can do from home or from poolside at the hotel. My husband is away on business, and we had this free weekend he won in an auction, so I used it. That's why I'm here. Yawn. Rachel was crestfallen. I thought you were going to tell us you wrote sexy hot novels, the kind we read alone, you know? Sorry to disappoint. That should take care of that. At that moment, a young lady appeared at the table. Good evening and welcome to Joe's. She looked too young to serve drinks and too small to carry some of the large trays the women had seen carried past their table. Are you ready to order? Would you like another round of drinks while you decide? Julie thought for a second and then replied, Crabs, glorious crabs, we're ready to order. Isn't that from Oliver? But it's food, glorious food, isn't it? The waitress corrected her. No point, yelled Rachel. Yes, why, yes it is. We'll all start with the chopped salad. Can you bring us, like, three different salad dressings on the side? The server nodded as she wrote down the first part of their order. We'd also like to have five orders of the select stone crabs, and we'll do one order each of hash browns, grilled tomatoes, and the spinach. Julie glanced nervously around the table. The women were mesmerized, as if dreaming about the food about to be served to them. Feeling confident that she had placed a good order, she quickly added, This is all we'll have tonight, unless dessert is really right. That's all. That's all. Okay, you got it. The server flipped her pad shut and walked away. <laughs> she looked at you like you were nuts, but that was a good one. She's too young to know that song, that's all. Rachel was laughing out loud. I only recognized it because my dad was really into Sinatra. Point for you, Julie. Oh, I forgot to order the drinks. Julie slapped the side of her head with her palm. Linda picked up on it this time. Girl, you need to stop being so hard on yourself. It's not the end of the world. We'll get the server back here. A basket of rolls and bread and a plate of butter was slipped in front of them so quickly that they couldn't get the young man's attention. Linda attempted to flag down the next employee that raced by. They are on roller skates, no? Julie glanced down at her watch. Shit, it's after nine already. We're not going to get back to the hotel until midnight. Oh, well, tonight, tomorrow morning, what's the difference? So when will you know? asked Debbie. 
Know what? Julie seemed distracted. If you have to work or if you have an assignment. Oh, that. Uh, I won't know until about nine tomorrow morning, and you'll have to leave earlier than that. We can flip-flop the day and wait, Linda offered. I couldn't ask you to do that. You hardly know me. Ah, uh, but we'll get to know you, won't we? Rachel spoke with a sinister tone, but a silly grin on her face. Once we have you, we'll never let you go, she added. They all started wringing their hands and cackling like witches over a cauldron. You people are weird. Or maybe it's me. No, it's you. I just really want to go back to the hotel and be alone. Okay, whatever. Just give me your room numbers or something, and I'll let you know by nine. I guess one more day isn't going to hurt. I must figure out when I can shake these broads, though. They're actually harmless, but they're really getting in my way. Chapter 5 Lime pie, very pretty, and the lime flower is sweet, sang Rachel as the server placed a slice of Joe's famous key lime pie in front of her. Again, the server shook her head, confused. She served the other three women their pie and then a slice of the deep-dish apple pie in front of Linda. I can't believe you are not having the famous key lime pie, Linda. Never been a fan of key lime pie, Linda said. Besides, look at this pie. Debbie spoke with a mouthful of whipped cream and pie. Mmm, this is heaven. So, Rachel, you were the scorekeeper. Who got the most points? I think since Julie did all of the ordering, she had the most chances, but that's okay. Well, you're right. She had the most chances, and except for the first try, she got a point on every single one. Rachel stuffed another bite of the pie in her mouth. She figured out the trick after the first try. I did? What was the trick? Julie asked innocently. You mean you really didn't know? Linda was asking sarcastically. If you have young servers, always use old songs or classics. If you have older servers, use hip-hop lyrics. Rachel let out another one of her obnoxious guffaws. Nobody around them seemed to notice. They had taken so long to eat, most of the tables near them were empty, cleared away, and already set for the next day. This time, when she snorted, whipped cream came out of her nose, and they all started laughing uncontrollably. Oh, my God, started Debbie. You're such a pig. That reminds me of Songfest at camp that time we were the first ones in the mess hall for banana splits and had that whipped cream fight. I forget, were we still campus then or were we student counselors? We were student counselors. That's why we got in so much trouble, answered Beth. Don't you remember? Don took the golf cart up the hill, so he was the first one to come in and he caught us right in the middle of it. You should be setting a better example, young ladies, Beth started laughing again. And then he took one of the cans and sprayed all of us. He was such a good guy. He made us clean it all up, but appreciated the fact that it was good, clean fun. I love Don. Me too. Me three. And I make four, said Rachel. He was every girl's dad at that camp. He had a way of making us all feel good about ourselves, but ran the place with an iron hand. My dad could have learned a lot from him. Camp. It was such an amazing place. It wasn't a co-ed camp. Julie couldn't imagine going for a whole summer with just a bunch of snobby Jewish girls. She had a hard time growing up in an upscale Jewish neighborhood. She had never had a strong sense of self-confidence, and she was always a target for bullying. She got picked on incessantly because she didn't have the latest styles, and her parents didn't drive the fanciest cars. 
Her few friends were more like her, also victims of the clique. Most of her other friends were the nerdy boys who were also afraid of those girls. Nope, just girls. It gave us all a chance to be ourselves without the pressure of being around the boys. There was no competition for boyfriends such as they were when we were ten, Linda tried to explain it. We made lifelong friends, as you can see, because we could be close without having anything come between us. And we all keep in touch with so many more friends from camp. And since Facebook, it has been nothing short of amazing. We've been able to reconnect with so many more. That sounds so nice. I wish I had that. Julie really was a little envious of what these four women had. She kept in touch with one or two friends from high school, and most of the friends she had now were very superficial. There are a few couples that Morty and I see, only rarely these days, that we befriended while the kids were growing up, but now nobody seems to have time for us. Probably because they don't like to be around me. I'm such a stick in the mud. And I absolutely hate his doctor friends, mainly because of their snotty wives or worse, the new trophy wives. The older women have had more plastic surgery so that their real features are hardly recognizable and the trophy wives are beautiful, nubile young things who have no idea what's going on in the world. Rachel had cleaned her nose up and was unusually quiet now. She had put her fork down on her pie plate and her hands were crossed over each other in front of her plate. Hey, Rach, what's in your head? Linda could read people so easily, and Rachel was particularly easy because she was always animated. You got quiet quickly. I was just thinking about Don. It's been over a year since he passed away. You know, even though we haven't seen him in years, I still feel like I lost part of my own family. I think of him all the time. Julie noticed that Rachel's eyes were reddening and tears were forming at the corners. I know what you mean, Debbie added. He really was a father figure to me. Remember, my dad really did die when I was young. In fact, you all may not know this, but Don used to check in on my mom, sister, and me during the year. It wasn't just a camp that he looked after us. Wow, he really sounds like a special man. He really was, Julie. He really was, Beth said. He was the reason that camp was so special. I heard that the guy that owns it now is keeping a lot of our old traditions and stuff. Some of the people I know have even been sending their daughters there. He's apparently the same kind of person as Don. He's planning a big reunion for the camp's 60th anniversary and is inviting everyone who ever attended back. It will be his 30th anniversary. I am so happy to hear that. Who remembers the song they wrote about Don for Songfest? I forget which year it was. We were little, and I forget some of the words. Before she knew it, Julie's new friends had launched into a medley of their old camp songs. Between the four of them, they were able to remember all the words to their color war fight songs, the alma mater, and some of the novelty tribute songs that had been written for some of the favorite camp characters over the years. I think now is the perfect time to excuse myself and go to the ladies' room before I throw up. Julie pushed her chair away from the table. When she turned around, she realized that their table was one of only three or four left in the dining room. The waitstaff was pacing, anxiously awaiting their departure. She stood up and stretched. I'm running to the ladies' room. Here's a sea spot. Is that enough to cover my dinner? I bought one round in the bar. Am I good? What, are we embarrassing you? 
Rachel loved to antagonize people, especially when she or her company were behaving badly. Don't want to be seen with us while we're being obnoxious. No, I just really have to pee. And yes, you are being obnoxious. That word has come up more often than not since I've been with the four of you, and it fits. It really does. Boy, you are easy to rattle. Go pee, and we'll meet you outside. Rachel pulled out her wallet, threw in another $100 bill, and then took out her phone to call for an Uber. The other three women followed suit. Linda called the server over, and after glancing at the check, handed her the five crisp $100 bills. The server tried to stop the women as they half-stumbled, half-waddled through the restaurant. Excuse me, but I think you gave me too much. Do you want to wait for change? She asked, hopefully. No, keep it, Linda called over her shoulder. She then whispered to Debbie. She probably thought we'd be cheap tippers because we were a table full of women. Debbie slowed her pace and hung back. I'll wait for Julie. Debbie stood outside the ladies' room for a few minutes, and when Julie didn't come out, she opened the door and called in. Hey, Julie, are you okay? When she got no answer, she went in. Nobody was in there, not even the attendant. She let the door swing shut as she turned to run out to the front of the restaurant. She found Beth, Rachel, and Linda talking with the valet, but no Julie. Hey, guys, we lost Julie, she said breathlessly. What do you mean we lost her? asked Beth. I mean she wasn't in the ladies' room. Just as she finished her sentence, Julie came strolling around the far corner of the outside of the restaurant where the takeout door is. Where did you go? Debbie yelled. Took the long way home, sang Julie. It's take the long way home and not funny. We thought something happened to you. Oh, man, I'm sorry. I went back toward the kitchen. I used to know one of the sous chefs, and I wanted to say hello if he was still there. You should have told somebody. By the way, the game's over. You won already. Rachel put her opinion on the record. Oops, here's the Uber. I got shotgun. When the car pulled up to the curb outside of Joe's front entrance, there was only the one single valet attendant on the street. It was minutes before midnight and the streets were quiet. While Rachel hopped into the front of the Lincoln town car, the other four women squeezed their way into the back seat. Beth spoke up. Hey, Rachel, next time, why don't you request a minivan? This is a bit uncomfortable, especially after we just stuffed ourselves silly in there. Besides, you always seem to get that front seat. The driver spoke up. There's room up here for two ladies. This is a full bench seat here, if one of you doesn't mind sitting next to me. There was silence. He cajoled them. Come on, I won't bite, and it's not that long a ride. I'll move up there, Julie volunteered. Of course you will, sneered Debbie. You're sitting in the middle, so we all have to climb out. I'll do it. Debbie opened the door and climbed out and then opened the front door. She stood there in silence as Rachel had already turned around to begin the gab fest and hadn't even noticed that Debbie was standing next to her. Ahem. She waited another few seconds and finally leaned over and flicked Rachel in the shoulder. Hey, that hurts. Rachel swung around to see Debbie standing with her hands on her hips. What was that for? You're holding up the works. Either slide over or get out so I can get in the middle. Oh, shit. Rachel pondered which would be easier for her to do, considering the ride and the conversation to follow, and eventually opted to climb out and let Debbie sit in the middle. Why is everything always a Broadway production with you? Debbie taunted. You'll be swell. You'll be great. Just get in. Rachel climbed back in, reached for the seatbelt and strapped herself in loosely, and then wiggled around again so that she was able to guide the conversation once more. 
Because I'm the director of this Broadway show, that's why. Now, where were we? The driver pulled away quietly and headed toward the interstate. It was late, and he was already suffering from a headache, so he was in no mood to listen to a bunch of middle-aged ladies bickering. Linda picked up where she left off. So, we're going to the Vizcaya place in the morning after we find out if Julie can come, and then we'll go to the Everglades for the afternoon. Are we all on the same page here? The women all started talking at once. I'm good. Fine with me. Okay by me. Where are we going for lunch? Rachel always had to know where her next meal was going to be. Linda knew exactly who said what and responded accordingly. Rach, aren't you worried about breakfast first? Aren't you the comedian? I already ordered my breakfast through room service because I knew we were going to be out late. Ha! Huh. Rachel knew Linda was kidding her. Food had always been Rachel's passion. It wasn't always about eating the food, but more about the cooking. Rachel had been at one time a gourmet cook, and she entertained often. Her focus had changed, though. She didn't cook much anymore. Now it was more about eating, and her waistline showed it. Nobody ever went too far to tease her about it. They were good friends and would never hurt her by going past a certain point. Julie was starting to see that all these women had their breaking points. I wish I had kept my mouth shut. I've probably said hurtful things without knowing it, and now I've lied my way into having to spend the day tomorrow. I'll think of a way to get out of it. What am I talking about? There's always the ledge. The driver never spoke a word. He silently drove the empty streets back to the hotel. It seemed to Julie that the ride back was much faster than the ride to Joe's. She was feeling a bit woozy, but wasn't sure if it was from the hour, the rough turns, or from the drinking. They had been there for almost five hours and had downed five drinks. It didn't seem like that much because it was so spread out. She was, she finally decided, just plain sleepy. The Uber driver came to an abrupt stop in front of the Intercontinental Hotel exactly at midnight. When Julie glanced at her watch, she realized she had survived another day. I guess today will be the day, not yesterday. Or maybe tomorrow. Maybe I'll go with them. After all, I told myself I was going to live it up a little before I died. I only need some time to finish writing. Tomorrow night. I'll do it when we get back tomorrow night. The five women piled into the lobby. Unlike the streets outside of Joe's, the lobby at the hotel was abuzz with activity. The bar was busy and some of the shops were still open. Almost as if on cue, Julie's companions all began to yawn at the same time. It's been a long day. I'm going up to bed, Beth declared. Me too, said Debbie. Lightweights. Rachel was always ready for more. I'm spent, said Linda. Oh, well, I guess it's you and me. Rachel looked hopefully over at Julie. Sorry, Rachel, I need to get some sleep, especially if I have to work in the morning. Oh, wait, I need to get at least one of your room numbers? Julie was kicking herself. She could have just forgotten to do that. She would have been off the hook. None of them knew her last name, so they wouldn't be able to find her in the morning. 11.02, offered Linda. Call me as early as you want. I'll probably be up and going by six or so. All five of the women were stepping into the empty elevator when Julie realized that if she got off on her floor, they would know where she was. Shoot, I need to check something at the desk, she quipped, as she hastily pushed her way out of the heavy mirrored doors of the elevator as they were closing. Night all! Good night! She heard them all sing as the doors were suctioned shut. 
Julie waited around by the elevator, looking up to watch the numbers climb. After about five minutes, she pushed the up button and waited for the doors to open once again, hoping that the car would be empty on her ride up. She got her wish a minute later when the elevator arrived with no other passengers and no one else waiting. As the doors opened, Julie fumbled through her purse frantically looking to find her hotel room key. She couldn't remember where she had put it. There was a time when she was ordered and organized, but lately she had been so much more impulsive and confused. Chaotic is a good word to describe my thinking. Damn it. Where the hell did I put that fucking key? Did I leave it in the room? I bet it's in the pocket of the bathrobe. No, I emptied the pockets when I found my cigarettes. Speaking of which, when's the last time I had a cigarette? Let me go back down and have one before I go to bed. Or at least before I go back to the room. Lord knows, sleep hasn't come easy. Julie pushed the down button and reached back in her purse to pull out her cigarettes. There, slipped inside the cellophane of the pack, was her room key. She shook her head, feeling the familiar self-loathing feeling. She didn't even bother to beat herself up this time. She just thought of one sarcastic word. Surprise! When she reached the ground floor, Julie headed directly to the main entrance. She walked outside and several yards to the right, where the hotel had graciously supplied a smoking station. Julie was tired of being treated like a second-class citizen simply because she was a smoker. There was no cover if it rained, no place to sit down, and no shade from the South Florida sun. I know smoking is bad for you. I'm not stupid. I've tried to quit a thousand times. I never smoke in front of family or friends. I haven't smoked in my house in 30 years. For God's sakes, what do they want from us? It would be nice if they could at least put a bus bench with a cover. She lit up her cigarette and clutched her purse under her arm, although she hadn't yet been accosted by anyone the few times she had smoked out front. In fact, nobody ever joined her when she was out there. By the pool bar, there were a lot of smokers. I wonder if the outdoor bar is even open this late. I could use a nightcap. Nah, never mind. I want to go up and write some more of the note. I haven't even really thought about it all evening. Snubbing out the butt on the side of the Smoker's World post, Julie dropped it in the hole and headed back to the entrance. Her drive to go up and write was waning. She was much readier to sleep than she had realized. She pushed the number 11 on the elevator and waited until the doors opened again. This time, she already had the key in her hand and she was ready. Nobody was in the hallway, but she didn't want to take the chance of meeting anyone, so she bounded down the hallway to her room, shoved the key in the door, and pushed her way in. Once inside, Julie leaned back against the door and let out a huge sigh. Nobody was there to hear her, yet she spoke aloud. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. Hey, that would be a point since nobody challenged me. Does that count if there's nobody here to challenge me? She pushed herself up and away from the door, tossing her purse on the desk chair and dropping the room key on the desk as she breezed by. Man, how much did I have to drink? She smacked her hand on the center of the bathroom door and found herself urgently trying to unbutton her white jeans. Ugh, there is no better feeling. When Julie was finished, she kicked her jeans off and carried them into the room into the closet. I better hang these up. I have nothing else to wear if I end up going with these women tomorrow. Look at me. I'm making plans. She carefully draped them over a hanger and then dug through the tote bag that had been carelessly tossed on the floor earlier that day. There is not one clean top in here, nor is there anything clean for me to wear to sleep. 
I never thought I would last this long, did I? Julie pulled the tote bag over to the edge of the bed and pulled out two tops that would wear well with the white jeans and then took them into the bathroom. She filled the sink with warm water and shampoo and then rinsed the shirts, paying extra attention to the armpits and to any stains she might find. She then laid the two shirts across the vanity. Julie pulled down the hairdryer and plugged it in. I didn't take this good care of myself before I went out tonight. She laughed out loud as she dried the shirts. When they were almost completely dry, she pulled the mini ironing board down and plugged in the iron. Waiting for the iron to warm up, Julie stopped what she was doing, long enough to catch a glimpse of herself in the mirror of the bathroom. It had been a few hours since she had seen her reflection in the mirror at Joe's. Her eyes were a little red, likely from the hour and the alcohol. She was pleased, though, because it wasn't from crying tonight. This is the first time in a long time I've come to a midnight without tears in my eyes. She quickly touched up the two blouses and hung them in the closet with her pants. She pulled out the oversized T-shirt that she had slept in the first few nights, looked it over, and shrugged. Deciding that one more night wouldn't make the difference, she pulled off her shirt and bra, tossed them into the toad, and squirmed into the T-shirt. One more thing before I hit the hay. Just want to glance at where I left off in my letter to Morty and the fam. After brushing her teeth, she slid the laptop out of her beach bag, pushed the power button, and waited. Sitting cross-legged on the bed with the pillows crunched up behind her, she read, Hmm. I was talking about not doing much anymore and not seeing my friends much. I was talking about how maybe he was having an affair. I have a lot more to write. Maybe I'll go with those girls in the morning and then finish writing this in the afternoon. I'll see what I want to do for dinner, and then tomorrow night is the zero hour. I really need to take myself out of my misery. I really should take myself out of everyone else's misery, too. Chapter 6 Julie rolled over in bed. For a moment, she had forgotten where she was. She thought she heard a banging. She did. There it was again. Mrs. Howkeeping, Mrs. Howkeeping. Shit, did I forget to put the do not disturb sign on the door? What time is it? She rolled back to face the other side of the bed where the tiny digital alarm clock was sitting on the nightstand. It was blinking 12 o'clock, as was the red light on the telephone. At first, she was going to set the clock, but then decided that time didn't matter to her anymore. And she did wonder who was calling her. Just a minute, she called out. She threw the covers off and swung her legs over the side of the bed. She had left the robe in the bathroom, but at that moment she was far from modest, so she answered her hotel room as she was. She didn't even apologize for her appearance, because the lady on the other side of the door wouldn't understand her, and because she just didn't care. She would just say, Yes, Mrs. Howkeeping, Mrs. When Julie finally had a chance to look at her watch, she realized it was past ten. She noticed her pulse speed up. Now, why do I care if I missed a trip to Vizcaya? I've been there a hundred times. Maybe it's guilt because I told them I'd join them? No, I hardly know them. What do they care about me anyway? She slowly walked over to the bed and sat down on the edge. Hesitating, she picked up the phone, pushed the flashing light, and listened. After a few seconds, she slammed the receiver down in its cradle and stared ahead. The housekeeper came out of the bathroom and spoke to her. All finished, missus. Thank you. Julie didn't hear her and continued to stare forward, her eyes fixated on the door. She failed to see her leave the room. I didn't want to go anyway. Who the fuck is she to say I'm inconsiderate? I only slept late, that's all. 
I didn't commit mortal sin here. It wasn't anything personal, for God's sakes. Bitch. Don't bother coming back here to pick me up to go to the Everglades National Park this afternoon. Who would want to spend time with a bunch of self-righteous snobby bitches anyway? Julie interrupted her internal tirade to dial the front desk again. She wanted to listen to Rachel's message one more time. Or did she? She put the receiver back in its cradle. She had done this kind of thing a thousand times before, especially with Morty. She would misunderstand something that was said and then fly off the handle. Her self-deprecating imagination would then get extremely defensive and bring out the worst in her. Most times, it would start with a tirade against whomever angered her, whether real or imagined, and eventually, she would turn the anger inward and ultimately be projected at anyone in her path. They are probably glad I'm not with them. I'm such a stick in the mud anyway. I was probably keeping them from really having fun. I mean, they came here to be together, and here I was, horning in on their special reunion. I should have just kept to myself. And now look what I have left. I'm exactly where I left off just one day later. I think I'll just make some coffee and go down to the pool with my laptop. Maybe I can finally finish what I started. Julie went over to the kitchen and put up a pot of coffee. She loved the smell of freshly brewing coffee, but rather than stand there waiting for it, she went into the bathroom and pulled down her bathing suit from the curtain rod over the tub. It had dried enough, so she tugged at her t-shirt and yanked it off over her head. Then she twisted out of her underpants and let them drop to the floor. It was much easier getting into the dry suit than it had been getting out of the wet one yesterday, she noticed. The fresh new white robe, still in its wrapper, came next. She would have snuggled in that robe sitting on the hotel room bed all day long, but she had enjoyed the freedom her new hairstyle had given her. She glanced in the bathroom mirror, this time very quickly, and went out to retrieve her morning kickstart. Sitting on the armchair in the corner of the room, she held the steaming cup of coffee in front of her face, reveling in the aroma, before she took the first sip. I wonder if after you die, you have the capacity to remember or miss the things and people whom you loved? Not once had it dawned on her that the people whom she had loved in her lifetime would miss her. Being so self-absorbed with her own pain, she was not able to broaden her thought process far enough to let that part in. She didn't know that where she was living between her own ears was a very dark and dangerous neighborhood. She only knew she couldn't cope with the sadness and emptiness anymore. When the coffee cup was empty, Julie stood up and put the cup back over by the pot. She flicked off the switch, thinking she might reheat the other cup when she returned from the pool. Her attention turned to her laptop. She picked up her beach bag and swung it over onto the bed. Laptop, check. Notepad, check. Where did I put my cigs? Oh yeah, in the purse. And my room key. On the desk. I remember putting it there. She gathered everything together and packed up her beach bag, adding two bottles of water from the refrigerated honor bar and grabbed a few twenties from her wallet just in case she got hungry. Peeking at her watch, she figured she had an hour and a half poolside and that would give her enough time to come back to the room, shower, and be ready in case they decided to come back for her. Bitches. Julie let her room door slam behind her as she bounced down the hall toward the elevator. She heard something humming that song from the show Oliver as she stood in an empty car. Good glorious. When she realized it was coming from her, she stopped cold. I'm actually thinking about last night. I thought they had a good time. I thought they liked me. 
Why would women our ages be so nasty and so catty? They hurt my feelings. Bitches, I don't need them. They'll be sorry. When the elevator doors opened on the fifth floor, Julie stomped out and headed toward the pool door. She had now taken on a defiant attitude. She was ready to finish that letter. She was sure she was finished feeling that way, and this night was going to be the night. Julie barreled through the door to the pool and marched her way to an ideal chaise lounge by the pool, one far enough away that splashing wouldn't get her laptop wet, yet one close enough to some shade from some rooftop palm trees if she needed a break from the hot Florida sun. She also made sure she was close enough to the bar in case she needed to refresh her refreshments or get a snack. She placed her bag on the edge of the chair and pulled out the hotel beach towel. The swimming towels had to be checked out at the bungalow in the corner, but the room supplied the large chaise towels. She shook the towel out to cover the chair and then swung her leg over to sit down. Slipping out her laptop, she positioned it on top of the bag. She opened the lid and pushed the power button. While the computer warmed up, Julie opened a bottle of water, took a sip, and then placed it on the ground beside her. She tilted her face up toward the hot sun. She hadn't put any sunblock on her skin. She figured it didn't matter because even if she did get a burn, two days wouldn't be enough time for a cancer to grow, and even if it did, so what? There was something soothing about the warmth of the sun. It relaxed her muscles as well as her mind. She glanced back at the laptop and flipped the lid shut. Not now. I'm going to enjoy the little peace of mind I have right now. It's true what they say, I think, that once you've made the decision to end your life, the pressure is off and it doesn't matter if something is insurmountable or impossible. Nothing is scary or terrifying. There's no more anger or angst, fear or frustration, panic or pain. I like this feeling. Or do I? After a few minutes of facing the sun, Julie began to feel the intensity of the heat. She opened her eyes and was shocked to find how dark everything looked. Her eyes soon adjusted and she realized that it wasn't darkness but light blindness. Slowly the brightness of the colors returned and the flashes of light off the pool water were overwhelmingly penetrating again. She pulled her sunglasses off the top of her floppy hat and put them on. After the laptop was securely hidden in the bottom of her bag. She laid back on the chaise, took a deep, thoughtful breath, and closed her eyes. Before she could fall off to sleep, her serenity was rudely interrupted by a grating voice. Ma'am, I didn't mean to disturb you, but you're getting very red. Did you want to borrow some sunblock? Julie half opened her left eye and squinted directly into the half-blocked sun, focusing on the silhouette of a towering figure. She only knew it was a male who was standing over her. He was holding out his hand with a tube of what she assumed was the sunblock he had offered. She felt the heat on her face, more so in the shadow of this man. Thank you, but no thanks. Okay, I just hope you don't overdo it. That can be miserable. The silhouette of a man turned and walked away, leaving Julie staring directly into the sun again. She clenched her eyes shut immediately. When she opened them again, she glanced around the pool area, trying to determine which of the tall, lanky men it was that spoke to her. That was kind of bitchy of me. He was just trying to be nice to me. Am I that way all the time? I guess I'm just a bitch. There are some people who are nice, and there are some people who aren't. I thought I was just moody. No wonder people don't want to be around me. I should go up and listen to that message again. Maybe what she said was right. Or was she kidding? Maybe I took her too seriously. I'm such a fuck-up. I have no idea what I'm doing. 
Where did that man go? I should apologize. When does the bar open for liquor sales? I could use a drink. Julie sighed. She was caught in her head again. She was thinking too much or trying too hard. That's what her father used to tell her, that she was trying too hard. He had no patience for her moods, especially when she was lost in her blue moods. He tried for years to get her to do self-affirmations to make her feel better about herself. He'd have her stand in front of the mirror and say things like, Every day in every way I'm getting better and better, or I'm strong and I'm capable, all I have to do is try. Eventually he gave up, hoping she'd outgrow it. She didn't. Her mother, unfortunately, never noticed, just thought she was a typical moody teenager. Julie's thoughts turned to her daughters. Allie and Sophie were always trying to get her out of her moods. Come on, Ma, let's go do something. Want to go see a movie? How about if we go get a makeover? That'll make us all feel beautiful. Let's go shoe shopping. You love shoes. Julie remembers just shaking her head and telling them, You girls go. Get my purse. I'll give you my credit card so you can both buy yourself something nice. After a while, the girls got so wrapped up in their own lives, they stopped trying to make plans. They had new marriages, new careers, and new homes. They would call often and keep trying, but even the calls stopped coming. Finally, they went into their, you don't have to live this way speeches, that there are people out there who can help you. Help me with what? I'm just in a bad mood. I don't need anyone's help. Were they talking about sending me to see a shrink? I don't need to go tell some stranger my problems. I'm just a little moody, that's all. All those women at the club are in therapy. It's like the in thing. My therapist says this, and my therapist says that. That's all bullshit, if you ask me. Same at the temple. The sisterhood was rampant with women who were taking sedatives or antidepressants. No wonder we have such a drug crisis in this country. Look at the example people are setting for their kids. Now they don't bother calling me at all. Julie found herself speaking aloud. Julie turned her head towards the bar again. It was 11 o'clock on the dot, according to the clock hanging over the middle of the thatched roof. At the instant she felt her frustration rising, a young man, whom she assumed was the bartender, strolled out from behind the structure and opened a lock on the near side of the bar. He pushed open the accordion door and locked it in place on the far side. Julie immediately scooted to the side of her chaise, reached in her beach bag, and pulled out a $20 bill. By the time she got over to the bar, there was already a line forming. Although she was short on patience, she had little choice but to wait, reminding herself that she could have brought a drink with her from the honor bar, but she chose to bring only the water. When she reached the front of the line, she quickly ordered a screwdriver with double vodka and a bag of pretzels. That should take care of me until lunch. That is, if they come back for me for lunch. While waiting for her drink, Julie checked the television in the corner of the bar. There was no news on, just sports. What's today? Is it the weekend? Or do they just have the TV on a cable sports station? Nobody would recognize me with this Florence Henderson haircut. The bartender placed her drink on the bar and spun around to grab the pretzels. Julie slapped the money down and took her purchase back to her chaise. She kept an eye out for the silhouette man, but couldn't decide who it might be. This was her big mystery. It's not like anything would happen between them. Even though she knew this would be her last chance to do so, throughout her 31-year marriage, she had always been faithful to Morty. She was pretty sure some of her friends had affairs, and many of the husbands had had them. She was, if nothing else, monogamous. Her conscience never would have allowed her to live with herself had she stepped out on Morty. Julie knew she wouldn't be able to cope with the internal chaos and anxiety that would have created. 
There had been plenty of times when she wanted to, and there had been plenty of opportunities, but she had never acted. Morty recently had made her feel undesirable. Or was it that she felt that way herself and assumed he felt that way? When they had rough times early in their marriage and there was a lot of fighting, she had a wandering eye, but she was always of the mind that it doesn't hurt to look. She and Morty had a deal from early on. They had promised each other to look the other way if either of them were able to get their Hollywood crush in bed. He had picked Victoria Principal, and she had picked Paul Newman. Obviously, neither scenario came true, although for April Fool's one day, Julie had sent flowers to the hospital for Morty, and the note had said, Dear Morty, thanks for last night. You were wonderful. Love, Victoria Principal. And she didn't feel like being with her friends much anymore. All they did was gossip, and she was convinced that when she wasn't with them, they were talking about her. She wasn't one to talk about other people in a nasty way because it's just not nice. Morty had no problem chiming in with them. He grew up in a household of gossipers. It always made Julie uncomfortable. But then she found herself thinking a lot of nasty things. Her friends had started to ask her what was wrong, and she never had an answer, so she would make shit up just to get out of socializing. Ultimately, she found herself alone. A lot. This would leave her only one place to reside. The pity pot. Nobody wants to be with me, so I don't want to be with them. I don't need them. I think that's part of the reason I'm here. They won't miss me. Everyone seems to do just fine without me. You know what? I'm going to down this and get back upstairs where there aren't any distractions and get this letter finished. Julie guzzled her double vodka screwdriver. It went down easily since it was sitting in the sun for a few minutes. The ice had melted and watered it down. It was barely even cold. She stood up quickly, resting the glass on her chaise. Packing up all her belongings, she had to move the glass to the ground next to the chaise so she could fold up the last of the towels. She did a cursory check of the area to be sure she hadn't missed anything, and then bent down to pick up the glass. She found it humorous that she was still considerate enough not to leave the glass behind. Everyone else around the pool area left glasses and garbage around for staff to clean up. She had always cleaned up after herself in public places. She tossed the strap of the beach bag carelessly over her shoulder, nearly forgetting that her laptop was in it. It smacked against her back. Ouch! I warned you that you were getting burned, came a voice from behind her. It's not that, she answered mindlessly. My laptop hit my shoulder blade a little hard. Do you need help carrying something? Julie looked back over her shoulder. It was Silhouette Man in the flesh. She didn't want to engage with him. She just wanted to get upstairs. Thanks, I got it. Okay, said the man. I've got two free hands, though. Just saying, he added. You could return my empty glass to the bar. I'm kind of in a hurry. You can just leave it. They'll pick it up. Not my style. Never mind, I'll take it. Julie headed over to the bar, laughing to herself. If this guy thought he had a chance with me, he just blew it by acting like an entitled slob. I'm perfectly capable of cleaning up after myself. I seem to attract all the finest of men, don't I? He's not too bad-looking, except for the belly. But I guess that comes with age for men, too. Thanks anyway. See you around. She picked up her pace to try to lose him, dropped the glass off at the bar, and headed for the door to the hotel. Having lost her gentleman friend, Julie pushed the button at the elevator. She poked her head around the corner, looking for a clock. She had forgotten to check the time at the bar before she left poolside. She knew she hadn't been there too long. No luck, the elevator doors were already opening. When she reached her hotel room, she placed the key in the door. 
Her room had been cleaned and freshened already, so there wouldn't be any more interruptions. First, she checked the bedside clock. It was only 11.40. She decided that a shower was in order, as the sun not only burned her, but heated her up and with that, soaked her in perspiration. She went through the same rituals the day before. However, she did so without the questioning and panic. Within 10 minutes, she was dried, dressed, and sitting cross-legged on the bed, laptop open. Chapter 7 Julie typed away for what seemed like hours. She felt no hunger, no exhaustion, no sadness. She felt nothing at all. She just typed. The numbness had overtaken her almost as soon as she had started work on what had now become nothing short of a diatribe. Her anger at every aspect of her situation, her husband's lack of interest in her, her daughter's lack of attention, her career's abrupt ending, her changing body, the current political landscape, the fumbling of her opportunity to make new friends at this hotel, all was swirling around in her heart and her head. Since I made this decision, I don't feel the sadness and emptiness anymore. I'm angry, yet relieved that I've finally come to this conclusion. There isn't any need to beat myself up over any of it anymore. I find it funny that nobody in my life even noticed that I've been so unhappy. Neither of the kids, not you, Morty, none of my friends, not even any of my former colleagues have even bothered to invite me to lunch for weeks. Julie had flopped back on the pillows. She noticed that her knees were achy and her lower back was twitching. This prompted her to look at her watch. It was almost one. If those bitches were going to come back for me for lunch, I would have heard from them by now. Trying to remember where she left the room service menu, Julie saved the last of her work. Her note had gotten up to over 20 pages. She slowly got up from the bed and meandered over to the desk, thinking that the housekeeping lady would have put the menu away since everything else had been straightened up. It was indeed sitting on top of the pile of welcome folders and hotel brochures. She sat down at the desk and scanned the menu. Nothing was jumping out at her. She was startled by the shrill ring of the phone. The red light was blinking, but it was not in sync with the sound of the rings. Julie got up and walked over, wondering why she even noticed something like that, and further, why that was so annoying to her. She picked up the receiver and answered it abruptly. Yes? Whoa! Who peed in your Fruit Loops? The voice on the other end of the line was the sing-song twang of Rachel Goldstein. Are you going to be able to get away to go to the Everglades with us or not? Julie wasn't sure what to make of this. She was sure they didn't want her to go with them based on the message she got in the morning. Um, I'm not sure. Where are you? We're in the lobby waiting for you. You coming or not? I, um, I haven't had lunch yet. Julie was searching for words or an excuse. She didn't feel like being around anyone. She was determined to finish her written project, have her last supper, and get this whole thing over with. That's why we came back. We haven't eaten either. We rented an SUV and we figured we'd pick up something and eat on the way. It's kind of late already, so we decided we'd take our time and whenever we get back, we get back. That was a lot for even Rachel to get out in one breath. She paused, took a deep breath, and dove in again. We're showing our age, you know. We decided to just stay in tonight, so we'll eat here at the hotel restaurant for dinner whenever we get back. Again, she paused. This time, the pause was long and uncomfortable for Julie. She wasn't sure who was supposed to say something next. Well, Rachel asked finally, well, what? 
Are you joining us? I'm about to gnaw on the strap of my purse. I'm so hungry. Give me five minutes. I'll be right down. Julie hung up the phone and anxiously tried to put herself together. The first thing she knew she wanted to do was to take care of her project. She saved her work again, just in case, closed the lid and slipped her laptop under the mattress. She ran into the bathroom and quickly ran a comb through her short bob. All that remained of her makeup was her mascara. She rapidly brushed it across her lashes, paying little attention to the tiny clumps she was leaving. I'll just throw some lipstick on in the elevator. Who the fuck cares anyway? She grabbed her purse and was almost on her way down the hall before she realized the room key was still sitting on the desk. Before her door closed completely, Julie was able to get back and get her foot back in the door. Ouch, shit! She pushed the door open all the way, limped in, and grabbed the key. It wasn't until she spun around to leave for the second time that she noticed the scrape on her big toe. Damn it, the door must have done that. She made a quick detour back to the bathroom to clean up the blood. It wasn't too bad. Nobody will notice. I better get my ass downstairs. She slipped the key to her room in her back pocket, threw her purse over her shoulder, and took a deep breath. This time, she was sure she had everything. Everything except a reason to be going. When the elevator doors opened, the posse was waiting. They seemed genuinely happy to see her, all four of them. She had forgotten to listen to that message a second time. Julie was starting to question why these girls ran so hot and cold. Or did they? Her plan for the afternoon was to play tour guide and nothing more. She was in no mood to make any lifelong friends. Funny, I guess they would be lifelong friends now, wouldn't they be? Hi, everyone. So, what's the agenda? Julie made every attempt to put on a good appearance. This was the way she seemed to always live her life. It never seemed to matter how she really felt inside. She wasn't permitted to let down her guard or show her emotions. She had to live up to the expectations of so many other people. Her husband, her children, her employer, her parents, her temple cronies, the board at the club. She was so busy being so many things to so many other people, she never knew who of her many personalities was appropriate when she was forced into new social situations. She would today, like so many other times, go along with whatever anyone else wanted to do, even if she didn't want to, because she didn't like conflict and wouldn't stand up for herself, whoever that was at the time. We were thinking about stopping at Publix. They told us at the desk that Publix has really good hero sandwiches. Linda was taking over the planning aspect of the day's festivities. Is the Publix restaurant near here? Julie laughed out loud. No, not at all. Publix is a supermarket chain down here in the southeast, but they do have excellent subs. Normally, Julie would make a snide remark, but she didn't want to start off the day in the negative. I'll check with the desk where the closest store is. Not to worry, already have it on the GPS. The van is in the driveway. We can just hit the road unless anyone wants to use the ladies' room. Julie wished she was as organized and as calm as Linda. Her heart was still thumping in her chest from gathering herself to meet them. She glanced down at her toe. The bleeding had stopped. The five women paraded through the empty lobby. It was a beautiful day, and everyone else was engaged in vacation activities, work, or conferences. These ladies were late getting started on their sojourn to the national park. They piled into the SUV. Rachel drove, and Linda served as navigator. Debbie and Beth flanked Julie, who was awkwardly perched in the middle of the back seat. After a stop at Publix, as brief as it could be with five middle-aged women trying to agree on any one thing— they got in the express line to pay and exit the store. 
Rachel couldn't decide what kind of sub to get. Linda had to ask a thousand questions about the ingredients. Beth wanted to know if the salami was kosher. And Debbie kept wandering off, people-watching. This is like having a matinee show with lunch. These people are just plain nuts. This was a mistake. I'm going to lose my shit and say something I don't mean to. Oh, fuck it. Who cares? Are we going Dutch for this? It'll take forever to check out if we do this all separately. Linda was watching the clock. It was 1.30 and they still had a drive ahead of them. One could almost see the wheels spinning as her mind was busy calculating time and distance for the commute, how long it would take to go through the park, time for the gift shop, and stops for the restroom. By the way, I heard about a produce place we can stop at on the way back that supposedly has killer milkshakes, ones made of all kinds of tropical flavors. It's supposed to be world famous. They even make a key lime shake. So put the desserts back, you piglets. Mmm, that sounds good. I bet they have coconut and mango, too. Rachel was nearly drooling over the thought of a milkshake. She was the one that was always talking about her next meal while she was eating her current meal. This time, she hadn't even purchased it. She slid the package of Milano cookies behind her sandwich so nobody would see that she wasn't about to put her dessert back. What's the name of the place? Maybe we can stop there on the way into the park and have them to drink while we're there. Nope, according to this brochure, we'll come out of the park in Homestead, and the place is called Robert is Here. Kind of a weird name, but I've heard of it a couple of times, and apparently the guy Robert has been there for years. Debbie wandered back into the line as they were just finishing up. Everybody speaks all different languages here. It's like being at the United Nations. She put her sandwich, an apple, and a bottle of water on the belt. I heard Spanish, of course, but I also heard Russian... German, Hebrew, Portuguese, and I think Chinese. It was really cool. This place is a real melting pot of the world. Yes, everyone comes here for the weather in the winter. Julie finally volunteered something, innocuous as it was. She wasn't about to introduce anything controversial to the conversation, nor invite any kind of response or question. She was still feeling remorse for having left the quiet comfort of her hotel room. Her comment did elicit a quiet stare from her companions. Okay. Debbie took her change back from the cashier. Thank you. Come on, ladies. Once again, they were on the road. Linda had the GPS humming. Rachel had her sandwich open and resting on the console. Debbie, Beth, and Julie were spread out in the back of the SUV, eating and chatting. When the food was gone, Debbie collected the garbage and tossed it into the back seat of the van. Julie, confident that Linda and the GPS would get them to the park without a problem, slid down and rested her head on the individual headrest in her seat. She had just enough buzz left from her morning hit of vodka to help her doze off, and evidently she did so just in time. Hail to Camp Wysocket, began Rachel. The camp songs rang out for the next hour as the SUV made its way west of Miami to Everglades National Park. They sang songs from Color War Competition and from Songfest, and while they argued here and there over some of the lyrics, they passed time quickly while Julie slept. When they ran out of camp songs, they began reminiscing about counselors and socials, camping trips and field trips, concerts and competitions. Before Julie awoke, Rachel was pulling into the driveway, past the ticket booth, and into the parking lot of Everglades National Park. Rachel jammed the SUV into park, jarring the vehicle. Don't freak, I did that on purpose to wake up Sleeping Beauty. She turned around and started singing in her scratchy, invasive voice. 
Good morning to you, good morning to you. You look kind of sleepy, in fact you look creepy. Is that any way to start off the day? When Julie barely roused, the other three Wysocket camp girls chimed in and sang the second verse, changing the last line. You look kind of drowsy, in fact you look lousy. Huh? What? Are we already here? Julie stretched and pulled herself up on the headrest in front of her so she could sit up straight. She slipped her sunglasses up on her head and planted her palms firmly in her eye sockets and rubbed vigorously. How long was I asleep? Over an hour. You missed the whole camp concert, laughed Beth. Come on, let's get out. I need to stretch my legs. She unlocked the door and slid the arm of the SUV's back door open, yielding air-conditioned comfort to hot and sticky, humid tropical air. Hey, we need sunblock, cold drinks, and fans, girls. It took a good five minutes for five women to put themselves together enough to even start toward the welcome center. Linda was pacing back and forth behind the van, watching the clock on her phone. Come on, it's already after three. You girls are impossible. And you're a pain in my ass. Rachel was never good at speaking under her breath. Her natural tone was raucous and grating. She was inherently unable to whisper, so Linda could always hear her offensive comments. Rachel was always defending herself or speaking her mind, even if she didn't mean for anyone to hear her. Linda poked her head around the side of the van with a sarcastic smirk on her face. Oops, did I say that out loud? Now come on, Lynn, you know I was just kidding. It's getting to look like rain. We only have about an hour or so according to this weather map. Linda ignored the apology. She had heard so many of them after so many nasty remarks. This was Rachel. After so many years of friendship, she had become immune. They all loved each other so deeply that there wasn't much any of them could do to really hurt each other. The women strolled along the boardwalk, reading some of the signs and learning about the flora and fauna of the Everglades. They read about Florida panthers and white-tailed deer, manatees and bottled-nosed dolphins. And they not only read about but came face-to-face -face with alligators— Four pampered women who spent their entire lives in the northeast suburbs and the city were not accustomed to standing within ten feet of a seven-foot alligator. Is this safe? I mean, should we do something? Should we run back the way we came? Debbie was in a state of panic. I think your best bet is to maybe take a picture. There is a fence between us, just so you know. Julie was speaking almost in a monotone. I'd be more concerned with what's on the other side of the path. The four novices spun around to find a congregation of alligators by a rock, 15 yards up a slight incline, that did not have a retaining fence. This is very common here. Just keep walking down the path. Don't scream. Just walk. Julie began walking on ahead as if she was on a mission. Her four partners in crime followed suit, but hand in hand and on her heels, their anxiety visible. Only one of them was unable to stay silent as they ambled along the pathway, out of harm's way. So how often are there alligator attacks here? Has anyone been eaten alive? Julie, aren't you the least bit scared of what might be around the next turn? Frankly, I'm ready to go see that Robert guy for those milkshakes you promised me. Jeez, girl, don't you know when to shut your pie hole? Beth wasn't usually outspoken, but she was at this moment noticeably shaken. All you're doing is making those creatures aware that we're here. Can you please be quiet? Sorry, but that's how I react to fear. We all have our ways, you know. Rachel was angry, but she begrudgingly complied. 
They walk silently for another 50 feet without stopping to read or look at any displays. Stopping on a footbridge that was arched over a marshy body of water, they stopped and released a collective sigh of relief. On the bridge, there were several small plaques and pictures telling the story of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, the American journalist, author, and conservationist who was a staunch defender of the Everglades. Oh, so that's why they named that school where that shooting was after her. She was some lady. Linda liked to read everything she could when she was at museums and parks. I didn't know they wanted to drain the swamp here, too, and then develop the land. She continued reading, going right down the line to the end of the bridge. So she wrote this book, River of Grass. I wonder if they sell it in the gift shop. You think? Debbie was getting hot and tired, so she too was getting short-fused as well. Linda, do you think we could keep moving, or are we still on schedule? Ouch! That sounded like you got burned. Rachel made a simple observation as she strolled by and down the ramp of the footbridge. Come on, Deb. I see a bench in some shade over there. We can wait there for Linda. Boy, these bitches sure do get testy. I wonder how they would treat each other if they weren't best friends. Still sorry I came. I'll make the best of it. I'm definitely doing a key lime milkshake, and I don't even care if it spoils my dinner. I may not even have dinner, so there. Julie joined Debbie and Rachel simply to get out of the sun. She pulled a warm bottle of water out of her purse, opened it, and poured some over her head. She motioned to the girls to see if they wanted some of the same. When they let her know it wasn't necessary, she put the bottle to her mouth and chugged the rest. Beth and Linda joined them three minutes later. Okay, we're ready. You guys good to go? Yup. Rachel popped up with the energy of a teenager, as if there had been no crosswords or indignant facial expressions, no catty gossip or whispering behind backs. Debbie stood with the same demeanor, but less energy. Julie was astonished at how quickly these women forgot their anger, at how forgiving they were. They go from cutting each other to loving each other from one minute to the next. I never know what to expect. It's pretty confusing. Man, if a friend of mine called me a pain in the ass to my face, that would be it for her, at least for a week or two. Then right after that, Rachel basically called her stupid, too. Not sure I get these broads. You, Jules, you coming? Rachel called back to Julie, who had been lost in thought just long enough to fall behind her four traveling companions. She turned around and realized they were way up the boardwalk, about to take the turn for the home stretch. Coming, keep going, I'll catch up. The gift shop is down that last strip of boardwalk. Julie looked around for a recycling can. The park had banks of them for paper, plastic, and metal, right next to the trash cans all over the place. She started power walking down the path, figuring she'd eventually come across one. Her daughters had been unrelenting about recycling since they were tiny girls. Consequently, she had been brainwashed and now came by it naturally, especially in a national park. As she turned the corner on the boardwalk, she found the recycling center and dropped her plastic bottle. She then spent the next three minutes picking up bottles and cans that didn't quite make it in the receptacles. By the time she finished, she had lost sight of the women. Figuring they had found the air-conditioned gift shop, she broke into a trot down the last leg of the self-tour. As she opened the glass door to the gift shop, Julie was thinking to herself that it really hadn't been that bad an afternoon after all. She still had some questions about these women, but she wasn't too concerned. Those were fleeting thoughts, and the answers wouldn't matter to her tomorrow. The more time she spent with them, the more she understood that she had no idea how to relax and have fun, 
and that she didn't have any real friends with whom to do it. Rachel, Beth, and Debbie were already in line at the cashier, arms full of souvenirs. Linda was still browsing. The only thing on her arm to purchase was a copy of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas's book. She wasn't a big shopper, although she did enjoy looking around. Julie sat down on a small couch by the exit door, normally reserved for husbands, she thought, and waited. When the shopping excursion had come to an end, the women streamed out the door of the shop into the parking lot. Rachel's energy level, again, was high, but then she always seemed to get a boost when she anticipated eating something she was looking forward to, usually something sweet. As they walked to the car, Rachel confided in Linda that she had checked the GPS to be sure Robert is here was already loaded. Linda laughed out loud. Rachel, baby, you are too funny. When all five women were strapped in and the car was running and cooled off, Rachel put the car in reverse. She put the satellite radio on one of the soft rock stations. The first song that came on was Carol King's You've Got a Friend. Once again, the traveling choir sang. This time, even Julie found herself singing along. What the hell? I don't even know these people, yet I'm singing what used to be my favorite song with them. All I know about them is that they've known each other for years. They fight a lot, but they love each other a lot. I wish I had some friends like that. But I don't. Trying like hell to remember. 1971, was it? That album came out in the summer of 71. I was, what, six? But the song is kind of timeless, I guess. I remember once when my old friend Mindy sang it to me in high school. But she was gay. Thinks she wanted me to be gay, too. That woman who worked in accounting at the station thought I was gay, too. Think it's because since they took me off air, I stopped wearing makeup. Maybe I do look a little less feminine now. That's not right. That's profiling again, isn't it? I wonder if that guy will be at the pool later or around the lobby. Maybe I'll see if I can get a little lucky later. Ha! <laughs> what am I talking about? Hey, Julie, are you still with us? The radio had long since changed genre into hip-hop, at which point Rachel turned the volume down. You're like a million miles away. I was just thinking, I'm sorry. Do you know a better way to get back to the hotel? The traffic is horrendous and people drive like nuts around here. Rachel jammed her foot on the brakes as a black sports car suddenly cut in front of her. Jeez. It's rush hour and this area is getting more and more crowded as each day goes by. A lot of people drive like maniacs, very selfish, very dangerous. Julie wasn't sure if she knew a better way. She thought about it for a minute. From Turnpike, um... You can either take 836 over to I-95 or take 874 up. I'm thinking stay on the turnpike up to 836. It'll likely be faster, although it will probably have worse drivers. Rachel forced her foot back on the gas pedal and swerved out to the right from behind the little black car. Reaching down with her left hand, she thrust her finger on the button, impatiently waiting for the window to come down. You son of a bitch, where'd you get your license? Online? Bet you have a primate membership too, asshole. Rachel, damn it! Beth lunged forward, grabbing the headrest of the driver's seat. Stop it! You're gonna get us killed! Beth, Julie had thought was the quiet one, but not this time. I've heard terrible things about road rage and drive-by shootings in this city. You never know who has a gun or when they're gonna blow. Please roll up your window and back off. Rachel had always been an aggressive driver. In an environment where she was intimidated, there was no telling what she might do. Her friends knew this about her. 
They've had to bail her out of several uncomfortable situations, once literally. Her mouth did not go over well with the state trooper outside Las Vegas four years ago. Beth had always been the voice of reason, but even she couldn't talk the officer out of the ticket. Rachel had been overly contentious, and the result was a four-hour stay at a small-town jailhouse, $400 bail, and an apology begrudgingly made to the judge and the arresting officer by an extremely disagreeable Rachel. Oh, all right. Rachel eased her foot up on the gas pedal. The black sports car forged forward and eventually cut in front of yet another SUV. Wouldn't want to repeat a Vegas or a New Orleans, for that matter. Julie was almost afraid to say anything. She sounded a little sarcastic, so I wonder if asking her will make it worse or break the tension. Julie took a deep breath and asked, What happened in New Orleans? There was a short silence as the three women who weren't watching the road glanced back and forth among each other. Well, began Linda, it was the summer of 2005. We happened to have yet another lucky pick for our location and timing because we were staying in the French Quarter right when Hurricane Katrina hit. There was a collective groan from the other members of the girls' getaway group. We had no idea what we were facing nor what to do. We had been planning on going down there for Mardi Gras that spring, but something came up, which I won't go into, so we postponed and went in August. Linda fidgeted around in her seat. She seemed to be in a permanent pause, so Debbie picked up the story. It was Rachel's idea to act as if we were celebrating Mardi Gras. She had even brought a bunch of props with her. I guess you could call them. She had masks and beads and the fixings for Mardi Gras cocktails we could mix in the rooms. She even made a few signs that said things like, So we're a little late to the party. Happy Mardi Gras! Or better late than never. I'll show you mine if you got some beads. They all started to giggle, remembering the planning and the trip. Rachel likes to party, in case you hadn't noticed. I'm figuring that out. Julie was intrigued. Part of her liked hearing the story, but the fearful side of her was worried that Rachel might misbehave while she was tagging along and get her in trouble. It was Beth's turn. So we weren't really paying attention to the weather reports. We were doing a lot of drinking and shopping and sightseeing. The second night we were in town, we were planning on dinner on Bourbon Street, but we got a little shit-faced in the room and all those rum drinks. Rachel hung the signs out over the balcony and made us all put on the masks. Before we'd even gotten out there, the whistles and catcalling had started. We stood out on the balcony, and without batting an eye, Rachel took off her shirt, lifted up her bra, and then paraded around the balcony, bouncing her boobs, smacking them together, and howling. Rachel chimed in. I promptly tossed my cookies over the side rail from our third-floor room, and that's when the trouble began. What happened? Julie was on the edge of her seat. It sounded as though they were having a great time. Rachel was never the best athlete, you have to know. Linda started to laugh. She couldn't hit the broad side of a building with a volleyball from ten feet. But that night, with her puke, she hit the head of a New Orleans cop. Oh, geez, I hope he was wearing a hat. Julie was laughing out loud for the first time in a long time. Linda continued. He was not. She swallowed hard. That didn't stop him from looking straight up at us. Unfortunately for Rachel, she was still kind of hanging over the rail, and she was still half naked. The tenor in the car got serious. The police officer didn't find this funny. 
because he was knocking on our hotel room within two minutes. Oh, my God. What happened? Did you get in trouble? Girl, you sound like a frickin' schoolgirl, Rachel exclaimed. Of course we got in trouble. Everyone laughed. The voice of reason, Beth, resumed the story. It was a long time ago, but if memory serves me, he was angrier about the fact that we weren't preparing for the hurricane than he was about how rowdy we were behaving. Between you and me, I think he didn't mind getting a close-up view of Rachel's boobs. He was pretty long in the tooth, so I'm guessing a pair of nubile firm titties was a welcome sight. He was more tough on us about not heeding the warnings about the storm, though. We had to sober up PDQ. Linda was checking her GPS to see how much longer until they reached the hotel. Traffic had opened up and it was starting to get dark. We went down to the corner quick mart and bought some drinks and snacks. We got some cheese sticks and granola bars and stuff that would sustain us for a day or two in case the hotel lost power. We had been running around for two days, paying no attention to the news, so we had no earthly idea what to expect. It never dawned on us to try to leave town. Yeah, that cop did like looking at me, but he smelled like rum and puke. Rachel was focused on her driving and had dropped out of the conversation when they started talking about the hurricane. She enjoyed how that old cop had made her feel, and she was lost in it. We did sense that the locals were a little on edge. Beth was good at reading people. Even the waitress we had for dinner the night before seemed a little testy, but then they all are testy with us. We're always such a pain in the neck when we're together. We have to be. We only get to spend these few days together once a year, complained Debbie. So much to talk about in so little time. It's almost impossible to fit it all in. I don't think we're rude or anything. Maybe we are, maybe not, but maybe we should be better tippers, at least. Linda, who didn't want to be bothered with the math, was always appalled at how cheap her friends were when it came to tipping, but she never liked to make a scene at the restaurants. She left that to Rachel. She did, however, take every opportunity to mention it when they were out and about. We got the not-so-subtle message, Lynn. Rachel had returned to present conversation. Anyone else getting hungry? Linda, how far out are we? Should we call ahead for a reservation, or do you think they'll have a table? I mean, it's not a weekend or anything. It's already almost seven, and I don't know about any of you, but I need to run upstairs to freshen up before we eat anyway. Shut up already. Linda was tired, and once again, her patience was thin. Let me at least answer one of your questions. God, girl, you are rapid-firing again. Not nice. You have diarrhea of the mouth again. I had to do something to interrupt you. Sorry. Linda condescended to apologize. They were all generally used to Rachel's occasional outbursts of motor mouth questions. We're about 20 minutes out. We should be there about 7 or 7.15, depending on traffic. Jules, is this rush hour? It's getting close to the end of the worst of it. Shouldn't be too bad from here on in. The turnoff isn't far from here. So should we call for a reservation for like eight? Rachel, when she was hungry, was more than focused. She was fixated. I don't think that'll be necessary. Linda, the planner, was back to calculating and figuring. It's a weeknight, and we probably won't be sitting down until close to nine, so they probably won't be that busy. Just asking. Rachel drove on in silence. In fact, they were all quiet. It had been a long day and a hot one. Julie sat back in her seat. I still don't know much about any of these women. They are all kind of quirky. I never know when they're serious. 
and they sure do snap each other's heads off a lot, and they can be really hurtful. Maybe it's a good thing I don't have friends like this. I'd probably be in tears half the time. Maybe not. Maybe it's better than being alone with myself all the time. I mean, look at me. I'm a mess. The only reason I met these particular women is because I'm at this particular hotel, intending to throw myself off the ledge and plummet to my death to end my miserable life. Oh, and to find out if your life passes before your eyes just before you die. God, I'm such a dimwit sometimes. That's only in the movies or books or something. Wait, where's my purse? Oh, there it is. Julie, why did your heart skip a beat? If you lost your purse today, what would be the difference? Charge dinner to the room, which would be covered, and you won't be here tomorrow. Shit. Julie's stream of consciousness was interrupted by a rumble in her ear. Debbie had fallen into a deep sleep and had started to snore. Her head had slid over and was resting on Julie's right shoulder, making her extremely uncomfortable. Get the fuck off me. Jeez, this is just what I need. Julie decided to cough to try to rouse her, but it didn't work. She shifted forward as if to try to see where they were. Oh, look, we're close to our exit. Good, I'm about to start nibbling on the steering wheel. Rachel's voice was the answer. When you're sound asleep, the penetrating quality of this was worse than the sound of the squeal of tires directly behind you when you brought your car to a sudden stop. Debbie opened her eyes and slowly picked up her head. Are we there yet? Yeah, get out. Rachel was getting snarky. What are you, for? Snarky again. Sorry, I'm tired and hungry. Five more minutes, and I'm glad we decided to keep the van a couple of days because there was no way we could have returned it and then taken an Uber back here without me biting someone's head off. Does this woman ever have just one thought? Can she ever just have one question and be happy with that? I've never met anyone so hyper before. Except maybe me. It's almost like she says things out loud, the same way I think things. I wonder if I said things out loud and got them off my chest? I'd feel a little better. Nobody wants to hear this shit I think about, least of all Morty. I wonder how he's doing. I wonder if he's still looking for me. What's it been now, four days? No, five. No, it's four. It was yesterday I saw the news coverage. Or was it just today? My brain hurts. Does anyone have any mints with them? I feel like a herd of elephants stomped through my mouth with onions on their feet. Debbie was not the best at expressing herself. She was very bright intellectually, but wasn't too street smart and not quick on the uptake with sarcasm or irony. Onions on their feet? Debbie, just say you had onions on your sandwich and you could use a mint. No need to try to be creative. Beth was also being snarky. They were all pushing each other's buttons. Rachel pulled the SUV up to the valet in front of the hotel before anybody did bodily harm to anyone. They all stumbled out of the car, seemingly drunk. They were merely exhausted, hungry, and emotionally spent. Rachel gave the keys to the valet. She also handed him a 20. Can you do me a favor? Is there any way you can run a vacuum through here? We were a little messy today. Will this take care of it? Yes, ma'am, surely. The valet captain took the keys and tipped his cap. Rachel turned on her heels and followed the rest of the women into the lobby and directly to the elevator bank. None of them made note of anyone or anything about the lobby this time. See you all downstairs at quarter past eight? Linda caught the elevator door before it closed on her floor. This was her calling. She was the organizer. She waited for an answer. 
Okay, sure. 8.15 it is. Beth looked at her watch. They had just short of half an hour to unwind and refresh makeup and hair. Julie was alone on the elevator when it reached her floor. I guess I'm going to dinner with them, too. She walked off the elevator and shuffled down the hall to her room. She took a deep breath as she slid her key in the door. I don't know if I have the energy to act like nothing is wrong for another evening. I guess I don't have a choice. Chapter 8 Julie tossed her keys on the desk and went immediately over to the bed. Her initial thought was to throw herself down and collapse in exhaustion. However, at the last possible moment, she remembered that she had slipped her laptop under the mattress on the side of the bed on which she had been sleeping. She froze in her steps, and while she had no desire to write or even think about what she had been writing, she didn't want to destroy her vehicle of exit either. She reached under, slid out the laptop, and carefully placed it under the pillow on the other side of the bed. Figuring she still had 20 minutes to pull herself together, she stretched out on the bed and turned on the television for a few minutes. The remote control was on the nightstand beside her. The set had been left on a local station, and they were airing a situation comedy, which she had no desire to listen to, much less watch. Her first instinct was to watch a news station. This had always been her instinct. This had been her life's work. She was inquisitive, curious, and information-seeking. She wasn't nosy or interfering. She wasn't a gossip. She was a news person. She switched to CNN. Garbage about the president, Fox, the same, MSNBC, more of the same. Funny how they all cover the same story but have totally different opinions about the same facts. Kills me. Facts are facts. And the people in this country think they're watching unbiased news when they're watching propaganda. She clicked back to a different local station. Shit. What the hell is going on? Who the fuck is doing this? Julie sat upright, her heart in her throat. She stared indignantly at the television. There, with microphones shoved in his face, flashes going off, and tears in his eyes, was Morty. He was making a plea to a kidnapper. Did somebody have one of the girls? Who was kidnapped? Julie forced her thumb down on the volume. I beg of you, please, do not harm my wife. We are willing to work with you in any way you want. I am not working with the police as you requested. He stepped back. Please draw your cameras back and show them there are no police officers here. Please pan around and show them I'm here alone. Please. Morty, you look terrible. I'm here. I'm safe. Please don't worry. I'm not being held by anyone. Please, Morty. Julie jumped up from the bed and ran to the closet. She grabbed the one shirt that was left hanging there and quickly changed. Her mind was racing. She had no idea how to handle this. If nothing else, she didn't want Morty to think anyone else was hurting her, but no solutions were coming to her mind. She only knew she had to stop this before it went any further. Julie grabbed her purse and her key without thinking and raced down the hall to the elevator bank. She heard the door of her room slam shut, but she didn't react. She didn't panic that she forgot something. She didn't pat her pocket or rifle through her purse to make sure she had everything. She just ran. Some motherfucker was trying to take advantage of my sweet Morty. Nasty opportunists. Don't care who they hurt to make a fucking buck. When the elevator doors opened at the lobby level, Julie glanced around to see if any of the girls were down yet, although she was remarkably sure they were not, having spent a full day with them. She knew they were not the kind to rush. She spotted someone sitting in one of the deep couches where she had sat just the night before. As she approached, she came up with a better idea. 
She spun on her heels and went directly into the hair salon. Her hairdresser would most likely be able to help her. Hi, remember me, she asked. Her hairstylist from the day before looked up from the head he had been working on and smiled. Oh, honey, how could I forget? Still feeling icky? No, you did wonders for me, but I was hoping you had a cell phone I could borrow. Mine's dead upstairs on the charger, and I have an emergency. Julie wasn't very good at lying on the spot. Somehow, it was coming easy to her. While she was feeling desperate, this time, it wasn't about her. No problem. Hold on a sec. The stylist finished wrapping a piece of foil and then reached into his back pocket and pulled out his phone. Just please delete the number when you're done. My husband is so jealous. He actually looks at my phone every night when I get home. Thanks. Julie snatched the phone from his hand. No worries. Is the locations app on? Are you kidding? He'd be following every move I make if I left that on. The stylist threw his head back and laughed hysterically. Great. I'll be right back. Julie was gone before he could respond. She walked purposefully to the front door of the hotel and out to the smoking area. There was no way she would be able to do this without having a cigarette in her one hand to steady her other hand and her insides. This message is for Dr. Morton Rosen. Tell him his wife is in no danger. She is not, I repeat, not being held by any kidnappers. Some horrible opportunist is taking advantage of his situation. Oh, and his good nature. Julie hung up the phone before the voice on the other end of the line could respond or even ask a question. That might not be enough. Who else can I call? The 911 operator may not even know who to notify of the message other than the police. Reaching into her purse, Julie pulled out her cigarette pack. There were only a few left, Julie noted, but she lit one anyway. I'll have to find a place to get more, I'm sure. She took a long drag and held it in while she tried to figure out who else to call. Val, this is Julie. Please, please don't ask me any questions, okay? Julie had dialed one of the women from the club. I'm fine. I'm not being held hostage by any kidnapper. You must call Morty and tell him that. I'm fine, but I'm not coming home for a while. I needed to get away. I was having a kind of a breakdown, I guess. Julie had to stop because there was a barrage of questions and yelling at the other end of the line. She held the phone away from her ear while she took another long drag from her cigarette. When there was a break in the screaming, she tried to talk. Val, Val, stop. Just please call Morty. Tell him you spoke to me. Tell him not to pay any ransom. Tell him I'm sorry I upset him so much. I'll explain later. She hung up. Julie stood next to the ashtray, smoking the cigarette down to the very end. I never dreamed some asshole would do this to Morty. I mean, I knew he would be upset that I was missing and devastated when he found out I had off myself, but kidnapping? Ransom? That's just atrocious. And geez, I never thought about Val and some of my other friends. It had been so long since I'd seen or even spoken to so many of those people. I thought they just didn't want to be around me. I felt like such a stick in the mud. She was crazy just now. Or am I the one who's acting crazy? Jules, what are you doing out there? We're ready to eat. Once again, Rachel's melodious voice jarred Julie from her thoughts. She looked up and saw her new friend standing next to the valet desk just inside the doorway. Come on, Linda's getting a table already. Julie dropped her unlit cigarette butt in the ashtray and slowly walked back to the hotel entrance. Coming, I had to make a quick phone call. As she breezed by Rachel, she added, I need to give back the phone. I borrowed it because mine's dead. You go ahead, I'll find you. Julie poked her head back in the door of the salon. Thank you so much. She reached out to hand the phone to the stylist. 
Oh, wait, I forgot to delete the number. She fiddled with the phone, deleting both calls, and then handed it to the stylist. I didn't ask your name. It's Tony Dollface, and you can use my phone anytime. As Julie walked through the lobby toward the restaurant, her heart started that familiar flutter. What if the 911 records show his number? What if they try to call Tony back looking for me? What if Val and the police put it together? What if Tony tells the police where I am? By the time she reached the table, she was in a full-blown panic. I'm ready for a drink. Julie plunked herself down in the only available chair at the table with her back to the door. This always made her uncomfortable. She hated not being able to see who was coming and going. It was an especially intense feeling at that moment because she was now on the lookout for getting caught. Wait, will this Tony guy remember that my hair was ratty brown and gray before he colored it? I mean, he sees how many women a day? People come and go from this hotel all the time. He probably meets a hundred a week. He won't remember. He's so flighty anyway. More worried about his jealous husband. I'll be okay. I'll tell him not to give me away after dinner. So, Rachel was waiting. Are you having the same as last night? We're doing the same deal as last night. Everybody buys one round. After that, everyone's on their own. Julie, once again snapped out of deep thought, agreed to the terms. That's fine with me. As an afterthought, Julie felt the need to justify her actions. Sorry if I seem a little distracted. I'm just really tired. Great. I'll go over to the bar and get things started. Meanwhile, somebody ought to fill Julie in on what's happening tonight. She may or may not want to stay. Rachel's voice trailed off as she headed toward the bar. I'm guessing the MC is going to be Linda. Julie directed her attention across the table to Linda, but it was Beth who began to explain. Well, she began, despite the fact that we know each other intimately and we've been through all of life's peaks and valleys together, still, one night a year, we have what some people would call a bull session. This intrigued Julie. How so? Maybe there won't be all the bickering and teasing. I mean, I've kind of figured out who these people are by how they interact, but I really know nothing about them. Guess that's the journalist in me. Everyone has a story, Beth continued. We talk about where we are in our stories and talk about families, friends, jobs, etc. It's kind of like one night of an annual New Year's letter, but without the picture. Julie smiled and glanced around at the other girls. She knew exactly what Beth meant. Over the years, she had gotten a lot of letters like that from college or high school friends, all with whom she has since lost touch. Sounds like a really interesting and fun evening. It will give me a great chance to learn all about you ladies. Do I participate or am I just an audience? Rachel had returned. We'll leave that up to you. See how it goes. The server is bringing the drinks. She slid into her chair and hung her purse on the back of her chair. I don't think the bartender trusted me to carry that many drinks. Personally, I don't blame him. Debbie crossed her arms. Julie deduced that Debbie was kidding as her forced frown gave way to a smile. I say that from experience. Debbie resumed the conversation. I still can't get the Mai Tai stains out of my white pants from the Honolulu trip, you klutz. Once again, the women were laughing as they did many times that day. Julie was feeling oddly calm. Her chest wasn't trembling. Her mouth wasn't dry. She tried to remember the last time she felt at ease, especially with strangers. Well, if I'm going to go out, I may as well go out on a good note, or maybe, maybe I need to do a little more research before I write the end of this story. Chapter 9, Rachel's Story Look, none of us are perfect, Rachel began. 
for we all have goodness within us. Some of us take longer to find it than others. Rachel wiggled down into her chair and picked up her drink. It was as if she was slinking down to get comfortable to watch a long movie. Julie, these girls have heard a lot of my story. Hell, they've lived most of my story. I was the woman who led two lives. I was the perfect wife and mother. You know, the one who had the best maid on the block, but the house always smelled like a bakery because I was always home baking cookies while the kitties were at school. I played bridge or mahjong with the girls in the morning and shuttled my boys to various after-school activities every afternoon, dropping them off while I ran for a manicure or a massage. That was unless they had a game, then I would stay to watch. Otherwise, I'd pick them up and bring them home and get them started on homework while I started on dinner. Extracurricular activities were a big thing in our house. We made our boys take music lessons and they played Little League baseball and soccer. Eric played piano, trumpet, and Larry played piano and guitar. School was something we took very seriously. We had all kinds of rules about homework and grades. We knew the boys were both very bright, so anything less than a B was unacceptable. Rachel was talking as fast as she could. There was no dating unless we met the girl first, and she had to be Jewish. They had chores and other household responsibilities. They were not permitted to get jobs because school was their job. Linda, Debbie, and Beth sat there nodding their heads, yet expressing some sort of hidden meaning behind their agreement. Julie couldn't quite figure it out. Were they in disagreement with her assessment? Was Rachel painting a fictitious picture? Julie's resentment flag went up. She had a problem with always feeling judged by other women, and Rachel had just finished describing her own life, almost exactly, except that she didn't care for Mahjong. No, there's something more here. Beth interrupted. Come on, Rachel. Get to the good part. Julie thought that was the good part. Tell her about the other side of your world. Okay, so the truth is, my husband gave me a very good life. He was a surgeon, a cardiac surgeon. He made big bucks, and we lived very comfortably. What does she mean he gave her a good life? Was a surgeon, made big bucks. Rachel seemed to get more and more uneasy, shifting back and forth in her chair. I didn't always bake cookies. I bought them. In fact, I spent very little time at home in the mornings. Rachel cleared her throat. <clears throat> See, in my younger days, I was a real beauty. I was stacked and sexy, and I got a lot of attention. It seems I wasn't the best at keeping my wedding vows, either. That last statement evoked a chuckle from the other three. It was more than a chuckle. Really, Rachel? Linda was indignant. I have a shit for a husband, and I never did some of the things you did. Okay, so I was unfaithful. Rachel knew she had touched a sore spot. I'm sorry, Linda. She reached across the table and squeezed her friend's hand. The truth is, I was so bored. Ronnie wouldn't consider letting me get a job. He told me I didn't need to work, that I should do whatever I want, live the life of Riley, whatever that means. She hung her head. After an awkward silence, she continued. Ronnie said I should volunteer with a nonprofit, be one of those ladies who lunch. He gave me a laundry list of organizations. He even suggested that I become a friendly visitor at a hospital or a nursing home. Rachel took a long, slow sip of her wine. Not for me. It didn't stroke my ego. 
Okay, I admit it. I was full of myself. I was too concerned with what people thought of how I looked. And it made me feel good when I got attention from all those gold-digging young men. Rachel got quiet for a second. Truth is, I wasn't used to all the attention. As a kid, I was a chubster and got a lot of teasing. I didn't have the boyfriends, the parties, or the fun. So when the opportunity came up, I grabbed it. She blushed a little, but went on. I had a few extramarital encounters. So what? Ronnie never knew. It didn't stop me from loving him. In fact, it made me more available to him. Julie was mesmerized. In my wildest fantasies, I never once thought of stepping out on Morty. Her low opinion of herself would stop her. She honestly didn't think anyone else would want her or have her or take her passionately on the beach or in the back room of a bar or anywhere else her boring imagination could think of. It was Debbie's turn. Rachel, having been on the other end of it, I have to tell you that even if Ronnie didn't know, somebody close to you did know. Your boys knew something wasn't right. If nothing else, they knew the difference between homemade cookies and chips ahoy, <laughs> Rachel laughed. I'm still a damn good baker. Rachel swirled what was left in her wine glass around for a few seconds. I got my just reward in the end. She put the glass down on the table. When the boys left for college and we were left alone in that big house, Ronnie wanted to sell it, move closer to the hospital. That way he figured we could have more time together. He wouldn't have to leave as early in the morning and would get home earlier in the evening. Putting the glass back on the table, Rachel sat back in her chair. She dropped her shoulders as if she were folding herself up in a neat little package. Julie was confused. She didn't know what was meant by just reward and wasn't getting any signals from any of the other three. How so, Rachel? Immediately, she realized that her timing was off. This was not the time to ask her to go on. Oh, jeez, she's crying. Debbie put her finger to her lips and then whispered over to Julie. Give her a minute. The five women sat in silence for about two minutes, interrupted only by a waitress who stopped by and asked if they were ready for another round. They declined. Linda said, give us a few minutes, okay? Julie took the time for some introspection. In my entire marriage, I never once thought of stepping out on Morty. Lord knows he made me feel like I was non-existent in his world. He was often so self-absorbed that he didn't even notice I was in the room, for God's sakes. I don't think there was ever another woman, unless... Nah, not my Morty. But he sure didn't show any interest in me, either socially or even in the bedroom. God, even when I did try to seduce him, it was like I had to frickin' hit him over the head. I remember that one time when I met him at the door with a cocktail wearing nothing but a black negligee, and he told me he only had ten minutes because he had a frickin' racquetball game set up with this guy, Lenny. Oy, I was so mad. Finally, Rachel rejoined the party. I guess there really is such a thing as karma. We moved closer to the hospital, which meant we moved away from my other life. It was then that I became the good little wife that Ronnie thought I had been all along. We bought this magnificent condo, the works, including marble floors and in some rooms marble walls, for God's sakes. We had a kitchen that a professional chef would kill for. We had a superb library and entertainment room, two guest rooms for the kids when they came home. There's a doorman, a gym, and a spa in the basement of the building. There's even a hairdresser and barbershop in the lobby. It's like hotel living. 
So what's so bad about that? Now Julie was really bewildered. You have this beautiful place. Now you are being true to your marriage. I don't get it. You didn't tell him, did you? Rachel clammed up again. Want me to continue? Beth asked Rachel. Rachel slightly nodded her head. Both the boys went on to medical school and everything was fine. For a few years, Rachel made some new friends, wives of doctors and all. She did finally get involved with a couple of agencies on a volunteer basis. Beth looked over at Rachel for approval. And then it happened. What? What happened? Julie had no idea where this was going. Ronnie dropped dead. Gasping, Julie could hardly find the words. Oh no, I'm so sorry. What happened? Of all things, Beth continued, Ronnie had a massive coronary. You know, the one they call the widow maker. He was only in his late fifties and it had no warning. They told Rachel that it must have been a congenital defect because being a cardiologist, he naturally would have taken good care of himself. Go ahead. Rachel was still slumped in her chair. They found him in the doctor's lounge. He had been with a young nurse. They only know that because they found him only half-dressed. There was an investigation and Rachel asked for an autopsy. The nurse finally admitted that they had been doing it when he grabbed his chest. See what I meant by karma. Rachel wiped a tear away and picked up the wine glass, which had only a small mouthful remaining. At any rate, I missed out on a lot, but I caused a lot. I had no idea he was unfaithful, but then I don't think he knew I was sleeping around either. I loved Ronnie. I really did. I still feel so guilty over the life I had been leading. Sometimes, even today, I, I can't look at myself in the mirror. But that was in the past, Rachel. You didn't kill him. Julie tried to offer some solace. You changed your whole life around before that even happened. I learned a huge lesson. Rachel's introspection yielded to a sermon. The one great lesson I think I learned here is like old Uncle Billy said. Who's Uncle Billy? Julie asked innocently. When the boys took advanced placement English in high school, their teacher used to refer to Shakespeare as Uncle Billy. So as Uncle Billy said, to thine own self be true. And if I'm ever bored again, I need to do something for the betterment of someone other than myself. It's much more rewarding. Like the golden rule, not that I'm a Jesus freak or anything, but do unto others, you know? My boys still don't know the truth about either their father or me, and I pray they never do. They are both within a breath of taking their medical boards, and I don't want to mess that up. Someday, I'll tell them at least my side of the story. I only want them to learn from my mistakes. I don't ever want them to know anything about the circumstances of their father's death. They should only have good memories of Ronnie. Rachel seemed exhausted. Like I said, we're not one of us perfect. I believe to this day that Ronnie loved me in a way he loved no other woman. The hospital antics were just that, antics. I'll never know, nor do I want to, if that was the only time he was fooling around on me. I do know that we were pretty good parents, but even there we made our mistakes. You know, you can't be too lenient or too strict with kids. They need to make their own way and find themselves. Rachel picked up her nearly empty wine glass, swirled it around, and finished it off. Here's a perfect example. Let me tell you a funny story about my oldest son when we first took him to school. It kind of ties into that whole thing about teaching them to make their own way. Julie said, 
Please do. This was getting a little intense. Well, we thought we had prepared our children for college. When the time came, we found out that in several small but significant ways, we had failed. More than once. Their entire lives, she repeated. We had stressed the importance of education without stressing them out. Our intent was to teach them to put their maximum effort in. And that would certainly be good enough because, as with most parents, we saw our children as brilliant. They both took school seriously, excelling in advanced placement classes, and scored quite well on college entrance exams. They both were extremely active in extracurricular activities, clubs, and sports. Their social lives were vibrant. What I didn't tell you was that we had also spent a lot of time talking about college on a different level. As important as classes were, Ronnie and I both felt it was equally important that they grow emotionally and socially, learning to make good decisions and learning to rely on themselves. When Eric was accepted to six out of eight colleges to which he applied and waitlisted on one, he chose to attend Georgetown University. We packed with great anticipation to take him there for the new student orientation. After our arrival in Washington, we went our separate ways, he with the students, and us with the parents. He would learn Hoya cheers and get a tour of the campus. We would learn about academics and student safety in Georgetown. We weren't to connect again until dinner. He would settle into a dorm room for the two days, and we checked into a nearby hotel. Midway through the afternoon, I got a text from him. Hey, Mom, I forgot to pack underwear. That was our first clue that he wasn't ready. I calmly stopped at a store, bought some underwear for him, and discreetly put it in the top of his overnight bag with a note that said, This is the last time I'm covering your behind. Love, Ma. We delivered the bag to him at dinner without a word about his faux pas. All four of the girls laughed out loud. Seeing it as a good time to interrupt, the waitress came by with a second round of drinks. It's happy hour still, so I owe you these. The next morning, he was to meet his registration counselor at 9 a.m., we arrived at 8.30, grabbed a sorely needed cup of coffee, and began anxiously to wait. I knew which direction he would be coming from, and he would be carrying a neon orange bag so I could spot him quickly. Rachel paused as if she was reliving the moment. This is the hard-to-let-go mothering instinct that was still obviously very strong in me. Ronnie sat and read the paper. When Eric hadn't shown up by 9.05, I was sure I had done a terrible job in preparing him to be on his own. At that moment, he came bouncing out of the registrar's office with a grin that lit up the entire west side of the campus. He was already registered and raring to go. Okay, so maybe he was ready. Later that morning, we went to work on his dorm room. The next step was stocking his pantry. This was my final moment to shine. We went up and down the aisles of the grocery store, and since he had very little idea of what he wanted, much less what he would need, he pretty much left it up to me. When I picked up a package of baggies, he wanted to know in what aisle he might find the twist ties. Okay, one step forward, two steps back. We dropped everything off and then took him to dinner. The next morning, we took him to breakfast one last time. When we dropped him off, we met his roommates and turned on our heels to leave. Cuh, I bet you thought I was going to talk about long, tearful goodbyes. Rachel took pride in being a tough cookie. Her demeanor only faltered when she found weakness in herself with which she couldn't come to terms. Well, I made my mind up not to look back, as did he, but I was choking on my tears before we even got out of the dormitory driveway. Fifteen minutes down the highway, I said to Ronnie, Why hasn't he called yet? Typical Jewish mother, eh? 
Rachel took a big swallow of her wine. Oof, I better slow down with this. She put the glass on the table and mockingly pushed it away from her. So the end of the story is that two years later, after Ronnie was gone, when I had to go through the same motions with Larry. Same university, same orientation, and same text. Forgot to pack underwear. And there it was, that same loud cackling and chuckling. You never told me that story, Rachel, Linda squealed. I would have loved hearing that when my kids were getting ready for school. Of course, Larry was a totally different kind of kid all along. He always seemed to march to his own beach, you know? Rachel sat back in her chair and glanced up for a few seconds, leaving the conversation temporarily, as if she was having an outer-body experience. Her eyes glazed over, but nobody was able to determine if she was lost in thought, drunk, or having some sort of seizure. The four women watched her quietly for a few more seconds, before they were interrupted by yet a new server who broke the silence. You girls ready for another round? This tiny little girl startled all five women at once with her shrill voice. My turn, called Rachel. Rachel looked to Julie as though she needed a drink more than the others, so she wasn't about to argue. Please, yes, we'll all have another of the same, thanks. The server spun on her heels. Oh, Rachel bellowed. And some more of these pretzels, please. The server kept her spin to complete the full 360 with a thumbs up. They're really nice here. Don't get service like this for so cheap in New York. Julie was dumbfounded. You find this place inexpensive? Maybe I need to pay more attention to the bills Morty pays. If I want to book a hotel room near Broadway for a friend, I always have to tell them it's upwards of 500 bucks. And a drink? Rachel was used to paying Manhattan prices. Forget it. Things must be really expensive in New York. How much do you pay for a pack of cigarettes? It was Linda's turn. None of us smoke anymore, so we don't really know. But the machines in the bars charge $13 a pack, I think. Linda continued. I haven't bought cigarettes in almost six years. That's terrific. I've tried to quit a thousand times, began Julie. I have no willpower. Can't quit cigarettes, got hooked on digital games, and don't put anything chocolate in front of me. That's my biggest indulgence. Why am I telling these total strangers all this stuff about me? I don't know them, and I'll never see them again. What is wrong with me? A stern look came over Linda's face. Do not compare cigarettes with chocolate or video games. They are entirely different. She threw herself back in her chair just as the server returned to their corner table. Under her breath, she muttered, What is this girl, an idiot? The server slid the tray onto the edge of the table and, noticing the quiet, silently and gently placed the appropriate drinks in front of each of the women. Almost afraid to speak, she faltered, Do you want the check now? Not yet, Rachel snapped. We may not be finished. In fact, it looks like we have a lot more to do. We'll need menus. Okay, just let me know. The server cut away from the table like an ice hockey player dodging an opponent and made her way back to the bar. Julie had heard what Linda had said. What the hell did I say? How am I supposed to know what's off limits? I only met the bitch tonight. She decided to mollify the situation anyway. I'm sorry if I said something to offend you. I didn't mean anything by it. Beth reached over and rested her hand on Linda's arm. The two women had a lot of emotions in common, although for different reasons, and understood more than anyone else why she had reacted so vehemently in the conversation. She leaned over and whispered to Linda that she shouldn't take what Julie said and insert it into her own personal context. 
she couldn't possibly be making light of a situation she knows nothing about, right? Linda gently nodded and then looked at Julie. I'm so sorry, hon. I'm always too raw when people talk about smoking. Let me tell you why. Chapter 10. Linda's Story Linda was indeed a former smoker, as were all the women. In fact, they all experimented first with cigarettes, then with pot, then with alcohol and cocaine. In retrospect, these experiences were all framed as rites of passage in their minds. All of them stopped with the illegal things when they finished college. They still drink, and Linda had been using medical marijuana for a short while, directly after her surgeries and during chemotherapy. I guess it's my turn, Linda began. She was hesitant, knowing that every time she talked about this stuff, she tended to get overly emotional, often reliving some of it. I hope I don't lose myself in this. Why don't you start off with something fun? Uh, tell us some stories about the kids or something. Beth and Linda raised their kids together at the same schools, the same extracurricular activities, the same clubs, and the same music teachers. Oh, sure, I can do that. You all know I love talking about my kids. She leaned forward, lost in thought, but this time with a happy look glazed across her face. Oh, I have a cute one. We were all outside playing one day, and our daughter went inside and locked the door. This could have presented a plethora of problems. Linda liked to use big words. She had always claimed to be an aspiring writer and had written a few manuscripts, but was too afraid to pull the trigger when it came to sending them off to publishers or trying to get an agent. Linda went on, This is an old story, but Melissa has always been an aggressive kind of kid. Now she's in law school, so that'll serve her well if she decides to be a prosecutor. Her repertoire of happy stories always took her back to when her kids were little. This happened when the kids were little, during my skinny period, and I was able to climb through the dining room window, grab my keys and my child, and go back outside. Just as a point of reference, even today, I don't go anywhere without my keys in my pocket. All four of the girls snickered, each one trying to picture themselves climbing through the window. They were all having their own forms of midlife crises, yet they were all feeling good after going to work on the second round of drinks. Wait, it gets better, Linda interrupted. Later that summer, Danny was outside playing with the kids when my Melissa came running inside to use the phone. She was all of four. I said, who are you calling? She said, 911. What's the emergency? What's wrong? You guys know me already. I was panicked. I was almost out the door when I heard her tiny voice. The kite is stuck in the tree. Again, a raucous outburst from the women. People in the bar were starting to react with disdain, turning around and making faces. Wait, wait, it gets better. Linda's entire demeanor had changed with the telling of her little vignette. She was no longer wallowing in self-pity, nor was she proselytizing an anti-smoking campaign. My heart skipped a beat because Mel was as sharp as a tack, even at four. I was sure she had indeed called 911, so I followed her back outside. Danny and Devin were just sitting on the lawn, pulling at the long grass and trying to whistle with it, you know what I mean, by holding between their thumbs the long way and blowing through. Linda was talking so fast, she was off subject. Oh yeah, so when we got outside, I looked to the west and just as I did, a city cop car was turning down our block. My heart went straight to my throat, that is, until he drove right past our house. I took Melissa by the hand and knelt in front of her, and then I asked her if she spoke to someone when she called the police. 
When she said she didn't know, I sat back on my heels and then rolled over into the grass. So nothing happened, Beth wanted to know. Nope, just another false alarm, or I should say, another case of me overreacting. Linda had only recently learned what was important in life. I went through a lot of those moments with my raising my kids. I was a bit of a panic. A bit? Beth didn't attempt to hide her sarcasm. Look up the word neurotic in the dictionary and you'll find Linda's picture. Or at least in parenting, she was the most nervous and worried parent I've ever known. I'm pretty sure they coined the phrase helicopter parent after her. Linda's facial expression grew taut, lips pursed. The more Beth teased her, the more irritated she became. Stop, I wasn't that bad, she protested. She paused. Okay, she let down. Maybe I was, but I've come a long way. I'm not like that anymore, am I? Beth relaxed and a smirk came over her face. Oh, come on, you know I was kidding around. You've come a long way, but you went through a lot to stop doing pole vaults over mouse turds. Beth was trying to give Linda a segue into telling her story. The ritual of talking about their most painful experiences and their happiest moments is what bonded these four women together. Julie wasn't quite sure why she was being included in this ritual, nor could she determine whether it was the alcohol that was making her feel okay about it or if it were the women themselves. She only knew that she hadn't felt this at ease with herself, much less others, in a very long time. Linda, why don't you give Julie an idea of why you nearly bit her head off about smoking and why you have, as we've recently discovered, come a long way, baby? Debbie, who had just been sitting back quietly, decided to help nudge things along. She wasn't fond of talking about her issues, so she always made the effort to go last in hopes that they would run out of time when they did their annual custom. She'll get to know you a lot better, a lot faster that way. Linda sighed, her upper body and neck tensed and her teeth clenched visibly. Okay, here goes. She picked up her beer and took a large gulp. She only ever drank when she was with her girls. My story starts with the fact that I was very much a panic, my whole life, in fact. Everyone sat back in their chairs, except for Julie, who glanced at her watch, noting that they still had 35 minutes before their dinner reservation. She took a sip from her drink and crossed her arms on the table, prepared to listen. When I say my whole life, I mean it, began Linda. As far back as I can remember, my life was fear-driven and I was overwhelmingly concerned with my physical well-being. There were monsters under my bed. I thought I would get every exotic disease you can think of. I was sure that every plane I boarded would crash. At this point, Linda was talking directly to Julie. Get the picture? Julie nodded as she fully understood Linda's plight. She had never heard anyone verbalize this before, and it was almost exactly how she felt. Her mind was spinning. She tried to focus because now she was intent on listening to this woman's story. Just hearing that part, she was resonating with her, feeling her pain, or what was that word Allie would call it? Oh, right, simpatico. My two kids were smothered because of my own fears. I'm just glad Danny was around to be the buffer. He was somehow able to give them the self-confidence I never had. I'm still trying to figure out how I grew up with such a low opinion of myself because my mom and dad were really terrific. Linda stopped cold. I should qualify that. It was definitely a different time to be growing up, that's for sure. What do you mean by different, Julie asked. The other girls just rolled their eyes. Linda continued. It was a kind of simpler life. 
At this point, the other girls were saying the same words as Linda in unison. Nobody had to lock their doors. We could leave the house in the morning and come home in time for dinner, and our mothers didn't freak out. We had no... Linda stopped again and put her hands on her hips. Cut it out! They all laughed, because this happened every year. I, however, was grateful for the invention of the cell phone, because it's a scarier world out there. If Melissa was two hours late and couldn't contact me, I went haywire. Once she had a cell phone, she knew to call me and I wouldn't worry as much. Meanwhile, the kids are out of the house. Mel is living out in California, working for an entertainment company. Devin lives in Florida, working on his doctorate in psychology. Maybe I'll end up as his first client, Julie laughed. I was being perfectly serious. I'm still a nutcase about a few things. I've gotten better, but there are a few things that still really push my buttons. Like what? Julie noticed that she was the only one who was interacting with the conversation. She imagined it was because the other two had heard all of this before. I told you that I was somewhat of a hypochondriac, yes? So I ran to the doctor over every little thing for years. My doctor adopted the attitude of the little boy who cried wolf. You remember that story, don't you? Julie nodded. I was a bit of a malingerer myself. When my brother and I got our tonsils out, he had a terrible reaction to the anesthesia, so he was up all night kicking and screaming. I, on the other hand, was sitting up all night eating ice cream. Julie felt she should qualify her statement further. When we went home, I managed to stay home from school for three weeks, complaining of a sore throat every day, while my brother went back in a week. I get that. For me, it was about true fear of being sick, of dying. Julie never liked being transparent. She seemed to resonate with each one of these women in different ways and found herself letting down her guard. She wondered if it was because she would never have to see these people again, if it was the liquor, or if she just felt at home with them, but she offered up the reason she did what she did. I was just needy. I craved the attention. Never really understood why, but that's what I did. Her words hung in the air. I'm sorry I interrupted. This is your story. No worries. Anyway, when there was something wrong with me, nobody seemed to care. For instance, when everyone in the house had a cold, I kept saying I was worse off than they were. I was sure something else was going on with me. My cough was worse. My fever lasted much longer. Danny wouldn't even take me to the hospital when I couldn't catch my breath. Rachel and Beth reacted. In unison, they echoed. That's terrible, Rachel continued. What did you do? I got into the car in my bathrobe and slippers and drove myself to the ER. Turned out I had pneumonia on top of the flu. They admitted me. Linda was almost boasting with pride as she related this part of the story, as if she had a feather in her cap. She continued, I didn't even call Danny until morning. He had rolled over and gone back to sleep when I told him what I was going to do. I imagine when he woke up and didn't find me in the house, he figured it out. If it had been me, I would have freaked out but not Danny. Calmly, he called me. My mobile phone battery was near dead, so I told him to bring me a charger and some underwear, a change of clothes for when they discharged me, and nothing else. Did he at least apologize? asked Beth. Not until I got home. He wouldn't stoop so low as to do it in front of anyone. Linda sat back in her chair. He didn't change either. It was then that Julie realized this was just a side story because Linda was nursing her beer and lost in thought, as if she were contemplating the final Jeopardy question. Do, 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 do.
It was Debbie that was humming the Jeopardy theme. Julie just shook her head. How could she possibly be of the same ilk of these four women? They were total strangers only one hour ago, yet she was thinking just like them. She felt like she knew them all her life. Sorry. I went somewhere in my head for a second. Linda sat forward. So, when I found the little lump in my left boob two and a half years ago, and I tripped out of the shower to tell Danny, I got a typical reaction from him. Nothing. Linda took a deep breath. I was vigilant about doing those breast exams, not because there was any family history or anything. It was because I am and always have been a nutcase. Linda began to wring her hands, always a difficult part for her to get through when she told her story. She had flashbacks and intense emotional reactions to her feelings about her husband. Danny was trying to make light of it, but this time I knew something was wrong. Just like I knew I was very sick two years prior, but I had thrown that in his face in several false alarms, as he called them, so I guess you could say I used up my bank of sympathy by then. Tears started to well up in the corners of Linda's eyes, but she was trying as hard as she could to resist wiping them. I immediately called my gynecologist and they gave me an emergency appointment that morning. I didn't even tell Danny that I was going. When I got there, they took me right away. Linda stopped and laughed out loud. Sometimes it's good to have a reputation that precedes you. They knew I would either make a scene or drive the other patients crazy in the waiting room. In the exam room, I only disrobed from the waist up and then began pacing. It seemed like an hour before Dr. Glazer came in. I had been seeing Dr. Glazer since I was a teenager, and he had delivered both my kids. He knew me better than I knew myself. The door to the exam room flew open. What's shaking, kid? Dr. Glazer was lacking bedside manner, but I was used to it. I mean, I had to be a good sport after all the years of his antics. In a way, it was comforting. Hey, Dr. G., I have a lump and I'm scared shitless. Please tell me it's nothing. Please tell me it's just a cyst or something. Please tell me it's not cancer. Whoa, girl, up on the table and open up the gown. Dr. Glazer began his exam. I jumped when he touched me. My reflex to do so was not because I was nervous or scared. I had always flinched during breast exams. He had been doing them on me for over 35 years, but I still winced. Calm down, does this hurt? He gently pushed on the small lump he had found, the same one I had found. Yes, a little. Does that mean it's cancer? My heart was pounding in my chest. Man, I remember I could feel my pulse throbbing in my neck. Am I going to lose my breast? Am I going to die? Linda, slow down. Dr. Glaze had been through times like this with me before. Remember, I had been through a series of miscarriages before I was able to conceive and hold on to two full-term pregnancies, and he knew that making me wait for results on anything would likely cause me more harm. First of all, when was your last mammogram? I think I was due this month anyway. I had put off making the appointment because I was busy with planning Melissa's graduation festivities. Can you get me in right away? Let's do better than that. I'm going to send you over from here to have a sonogram of the lump. He was unusually serious, which was extremely disconcerting for me. Linda had to take a breather from telling her story. She made the tea sign with her hands and slumped back into her chair. The rest of the women did the same, although they were all hanging on every word. Julie found that funny because they all knew the whole story, and the outcome must have been good because Linda was still with them to even tell the story. Once she was able to get her attention, Julie waved her hand backward toward the server and then made a circular motion with her finger. 
She assumed the server would understand she wanted another round for the table. That's what Morty always did when he wanted to order another round. Apparently that didn't work, so while the group enjoyed their respite, she asked the question, Is everyone ready for another? They all nodded as the server approached the table. Ready again? Yes, please. Julie asked the girls how soon they would be ready for dinner and then added, And some menus, please. Linda sat up abruptly. Let me get through this. You already know the outcome. The journey itself is what had the most impact on me. While the rest of the girls got comfortable, she went on. I went through the sonogram and the biopsy without ever telling Danny and the kids. I figured I'd get a lot of don't worry, it's probably nothing, or stop panicking because medicine has come a long way. Linda was talking in a monotone. Julie took note that the other women were totally absorbed, as if this was a brand new story. She found out that it was. Debbie was the first to ask, You mean Danny knew nothing until the biopsy came back positive? I can't believe you did that. Who did you talk to about it? Debbie found this incredulous, knowing how codependent Linda had always been. It was time for me to grow up. Linda sat straight up. My dad had passed away already ten years prior, and my mom is just like me, so I couldn't upset her until I knew what the prognosis was, so I sought the help of a survivor's group right there at the hospital. The oncologist suggested it. At first I begged off, but after several nights of panic attacks and anxiety, I gave in, called them, and went. Best move I ever made. After another deep breath, she began again. They convinced me to go to a therapist, too. I did. And that was worth its weight in gold. Wow. Just wow. That's all Rachel could say. She had known Linda for nearly 50 years and never thought she would seek the help of a mental health professional. She had been amazed that she told this stranger that she was a hypochondriac, but this... This was more than she could handle. Why didn't you tell us any of this before? I wasn't ashamed of it, if that's what you think. I just wanted to see it to fruition first. You see, I'm living outside of my own head these days. Well, I should qualify that. Most of the time, I'm living outside of my head. I sometimes get a little overwhelmed. You know, like I just did about the cigarettes. She turned toward Julie. I'm sorry again. What other people do is none of my business. I just ask that you don't smoke around me. At any rate, when I got the results on the oncologist's scheduled surgery, I told Danny and the kids. I waited until the surgery was over and I was almost finished with the chemo before I told my mom anything. The three friends nodded knowingly while Julie was stunned. Oh, come on, you mean to tell me your mother didn't know something was wrong with you? Julie was in awe of this. She pondered her relationship with her own mother and added, my mom is like a witch. She can tell right at hello when something is going on in my life. Linda didn't have that luxury. She and her mother were estranged for years. My mother is caught up in her own Michigas. Her first thought is always about how things affect her. She wouldn't likely even come up from Florida if it meant getting in the way of her plans, so it really didn't pay to tell her anything. Linda was able to dive right back into her story without missing a beat, which saddened Julie, she disengaged from the conversation for what she thought was just a few seconds. I guess I should be grateful that I have a mother that gives a shit. I don't know if I could go through something like breast cancer without my mom. She has always been my rock. Through everything, through everything I thought I could never survive. She was even there when the girls ganged up against me about silly things when I felt I couldn't stand up for myself. She had always been in my corner. 
It never dawned on me that other women didn't have close relationships with their mothers. I guess I'm more blessed than I imagined. Hey, are you still with us? Beth flashed into Julie's thoughts. She had noticed a glazed look overtake their new friend's face. She rested her hand on Julie's arm across the table. Hey, yo, Linda's winding it up and we are getting ready to order dinner. You still here? I'm so sorry. Something she said made me think about something that made me remember something. Julie was sincere in her apology, surprising only herself. She suddenly found herself uncomfortable. Her mood had inexplicably been elevated for the first time in months, and she found herself laughing and enjoying the company in which she was engaging. Please, Linda, do go on. Anyway, now, where was I? A hypothetical question, which Linda was able to answer immediately. I finally called my mom down here in Florida after I had finished all the chemo and had gotten an all-clean report. She stopped and, with a sarcastic grin, began to shake her head slightly. You know what her response was? Again, hypothetically, she asked and then answered. She simply said, well, that's nice, darling, that they got it all and that you're all better now. She never had, nor does she have the capacity now for compassion for anyone but herself and her own problems. Linda paused, but only to catch her breath. I swear if it had been her with breast cancer, we would have had to hear every gory detail of every single fucking exam, test, procedure, follow-up, diet restriction, or whatever. And shit if we didn't say how high when she said jump. You can be sure we would have heard about it. Linda started to laugh out loud. And she called me darling to boot. Rachel interrupted before Linda exploded completely. Hey, girl, that's why we're here. You called us, and we were all here for you, right? Again, the women took hands. Linda was flushed, her eyes pulled with tears. She finally broke and within seconds was crying fiercely. The five women embraced around the corner table in the bar of the Intercontinental Hotel in Miami and cried for ten minutes together. Chapter 11. Debbie's Story. Um, excuse me, ladies? A shift change at the restaurant bar heralded a new server for the five women who had apparently staked a claim on that corner table. I hesitated to come over because I saw you were um, busy, but... No worries, said Debbie, the first to break from the embrace. I'm guessing you want to get our dinner order? Um, kind of, yeah. This server was a bit more reluctant than the last. Um, you all have had this table for almost two hours... And if you don't order at least another round of drinks, I kind of have to bring you your check and ask you to either move to the dining room or just kind of, um, go because we need the table. She looked at her feet in anticipation of a response. Okay, did you bring menus? Debbie was upbeat and amenable to the idea of ordering. Oh, I forgot. I'll be right back. Do you want another round of drinks? It was Beth's turn. Absolutely. Bring it on. Yes, ma'am. The server turned around and started toward the bar. She stopped in her tracks and turned back toward the table, squinting, attempting to see the tiny number on the side of the table. The bartender had a record of what the order was, and she didn't want to go back and ask. As it was only her second day on the job, she didn't want to make any huge mistakes. Linda finally gathered herself, wiping her eyes with a damp cocktail napkin. Wow, that felt good. Oh, how I look forward to seeing you guys when we're away from home. I know we can see each other any time during the year, but for some reason, these getaways are like a catharsis. I love you guys. I know what you mean, Lynn, Debbie jumped in. Especially lately, I've been absolutely crawling inside my own skin, 
counting the seconds until this week. Every time we turn on the news, I just cringe with what's been going on. Jerry and I have been fighting constantly because of what's been going on in Washington. And to compound things, the, quote, war on opioids that this Fakakta president promised us is bupkis. Julie had absolutely no idea what Debbie was talking about. She knew very little about either of these two remaining storytellers. She was also wondering what kind of story to be expecting from her. Debbie's problem, Julie had decided, was either politics or drugs, neither of which presented difficulties for her in her marriage, her children, or her life. She wriggled around in her chair and attempted to get comfortable, but realized she needed to use the restroom. Wait, Debbie, before you start, would you mind if I made a quick trip to the ladies' room? Rachel stood up in tandem and nodded. Sounds like a good idea to me. Why don't we decide on dinner and go in shifts, and then we'll do Debbie. If she comes back, just order me the cob salad with extra blue cheese dressing. Oh, okay, Linda added. Julie picked up the menu that the server had just dropped off at the table and glanced through it. If this is my last supper, I'm doing it upright. I'm having everything I always deny myself to protect my health and waistline, damn it. If I'm not back, please order a rare New York strip with a baked potato with everything and Caesar salad. Wow, girl, no holding back for you. Rachel put her arm around Julie as they made their way through the aisle toward the bar area where the restrooms were. I guess you don't have to worry about your weight, huh? Those of us in the market still have to watch those cobs. Rachel threw her head back and spewed her New York chortle. No, I just try never to diet when I'm on vacation. There, that sounded reasonable enough. As they swung the ladies' room door open, the conversation stopped cold. A young woman was in the corner with her back to them, leaning against the wall. She was reaching up to her left arm with her right and suddenly snapped a piece of tubing from her arm. Julie and Rachel went directly to their respective stalls, did what they had to, and then silently emerged. The girl was gone. I'm just glad it was us and not Debbie that came in just then. Rachel was whispering, not sure if they were alone. Why? Julie had no idea. I imagine you'll find out when she tells her story. Rachel finished washing her hands and smacked her hand on the electric hand dryer button. I hate these things. They never dry your hands completely. I guess so, Julie surmised. They're still better than killing trees for paper towels. Women are such slobs in public restrooms, don't you think? She didn't know if Rachel was listening, but she continued. I mean, first they are so wasteful, and then they throw towels all over the floor. And don't get me started about some of the shit I've come across with sanitary stuff. Ugh. Emerging from the restroom, both women found themselves both doing cursory glances around the bar to see if they could spot the girl from the ladies' room. Neither were successful, so they made their way back to the table. So, are we ordered? Not only are we ordered, but she brought our drinks as well said Linda as she climbed out from behind the table. She reached back, picked up her beer, and took a small sip. Julie girl, I'm glad you suggested a pee break. Everybody knows you only rent beer, and it's definitely payback time. Julie tried to laugh. She wasn't sure if it was okay to laugh yet. That was some little story and some eruption at the end. I thought all middle-aged women could relate to that, didn't even think about the beer. Linda, Debbie, and Beth headed off to the ladies' room. Rachel and Julie shimmied back into their chairs, silently sipping on their refreshed drinks. So, Rachel, is it like this every year when you get together? I mean, do you guys go through this much intense talking, crying and all, every time you get together? Rachel sat back. 
I'm sorry. This wasn't fair to you. We do this one evening every year when we get together. It's kind of like a cleansing of sorts. We get each other, and we always have each other's backs. Rachel took a sip from her wine. I guess we should have prepared you better and then maybe given you more of a choice as to whether you wanted to join us or not. She stopped and reframed her thought. But the rest of the time, we have a terrific time. A lot of laughs, a lot of fun. Hey, listen, if you want, you can cut out. I'm sure everyone would understand. Join us for dinner tomorrow night. She stopped, studying Julie's face for a reaction. Julie was in awe of these women. Actually, I think you girls are remarkable. I'm not sure I'm even going to be here tomorrow, but you know what? I'm enjoying this opportunity to get to know you, and really, this is so much better than eating dinner alone in my room tonight. Julie held her breath in hopes that Rachel wouldn't ask where she was going or why she wouldn't be here for dinner tomorrow. It really is an intense experience. I should have told you that we get into some pretty serious stuff. But, you know, we have a very special relationship. Believe it or not, Linda doesn't always talk about her cancer or her mother. We end up talking about whatever issue is at the very base of our anger or pain at the moment. She pondered for a moment, and then, as if it was an afterthought, she added more. Last year, Linda took her whole time talking about the fact that her neighborhood was trying to be annexed by a nearby city, and it just wasn't going to work. She was so animated and aggravated that she almost forgot to tell us that she had celebrated two years clean from cancer last year. Wait, did she even mention she had three years when she was talking? No, really, three years is great. Julie had a friend who just went through the same thing, but certainly wasn't nearly as forthcoming with all the emotion that Linda had just shared. So what triggered all of this tonight? She probably had another fight with her mother, probably about not seeing her while she was here in Florida, something like that. Rachel spoke confidently. She knew her friend well. Shh, here they come. The three women returning from the ladies' room were doing so full of giggles and groans. Linda is back to herself again, girls, Debbie affirmed. She was busy telling really bad jokes in the restroom, and then we heard some girl repeating the same stupid joke to her friends at the bar as we passed by. Debbie let out one of her snorts. I pity the rest of those bar patrons. Not my fault if you're too slow to pick up on the punchline. Linda slinked back into her seat. All right, Miss Debbie, your turn to spill your guts. Let's go. Where do I begin? Let me start on the lighter side, since Julie mentioned that she doesn't diet when she's on vacation. I have a cute food story. The first time I went grocery shopping after both my kids were gone was the first real reality check. I had been used to buying a lot of snacks and large quantities of other foods, enough to feed an army. We had raised two teenagers, after all, and they would bring their friends home with them. My cooking became legendary at their high school. It became known as Debbie Food, affectionately named by a neighborhood kid who happened to dine with us on a regular basis. I never knew how many teenagers would be at my table from one night to the next. Go figure from there. Let me turn back the pages a little bit. Cooking for a young family was relatively easy, except for the fact that I was working full-time. I'd get home at dinner hour, but since their preference when they were little was fish sticks or chicken nuggets, although I wasn't too comfortable with the nutritional value, it was a quick fix. I had gone as far as serving the macaroni and cheese from the infamous blue box. I cringed when I read the ingredients of the powdered cheese mix. I really did believe in healthy eating. I did. 
As luck would have it, one day they asked for macaroni and cheese, and I didn't have any of the instant dinner in the house. I did, however, have a block of New York sharp cheddar, plenty of milk, and a box of elbow macaroni. I proceeded to prepare a casserole for my family the way my mother did, by making a medium white sauce, stirring in the grated cheese, adding the cooked macaroni, and then baking the mixture. They loved it. To this day, I can't make anything from a box. Anything. No cake mixes, no frozen french fries, no instant rice, no canned vegetables, no bottled dressings or sauces. I even make my own chocolate eclairs from scratch. They left for college, and I got lazy. The problem was that for the first few weeks, I continued to shop at places like Costco and BJ's and purchased enormous amounts of food. That might account for the unusual amount of weight gain that followed. I'm reminded of the time my husband came home with some peanut butter. I asked him where the other jar was since it was a buy one, get one free deal. He looked at me innocently and said, we don't eat that much peanut butter. My feeling was that it was free. Might as well bring it home. It wouldn't go to waste. Our pantry is thinner now, and so are we for a lot of reasons. I'm still cooking all from scratch, all fresh foods, but dinner time is extremely quiet. And you know what? I guess we really don't eat that much peanut butter after all. All four of the women smiled and laughed cautiously. Julie tried to gauge their reaction. She glanced over at Debbie and surmised that her story was not a pleasant one, as she abruptly took on a very serious tone. Let me start with Jerry. We are barely speaking to each other right now. In fact, I think he was so glad to get rid of me, he drove me to the airport. We didn't say a word to each other the whole way, but I think he just wanted to be sure I was leaving. Nobody was sure whether to laugh as Debbie continued in a very serious manner. What she said was rather funny, though. Since nobody else flinched, Julie sat quietly and listened. If you remember last year, I told you all that we were fighting tooth and nail about our illustrious president. You know, Jerry's still trying to defend the guy. I just wish the whole investigation would be over already. But somehow Jerry will come back with this left-wing deep state conspiracy and won't accept the findings of the special counsel. Even after all that has come out and knowing what he knows about me and my past, he still defends the guy. Now Julie was dying to know what Debbie meant by her past but didn't dare open her mouth. Did she have something to do with politics? Did she have some kind of bad experience with the president? Or with some other man? What? Damn. She just continued to listen. I'm especially angered about the fact that the bastard talks out of both sides of his mouth. He claims he's going to do everything in his power, and then changing her voice into a mocking tone. And I alone can do it, she spewed. Debbie stopped. Even she had to laugh at herself. Absolutely nothing has happened to stop the flow of opioids into this country. Dumbass Donald thinks building that fucking wall will make a difference doesn't know that the fentanyl, the synthetic shit that's killing our kids, is being mailed into this country from China, for God's sakes. Stopping to take a drink, Debbie was just getting started. And then he turns around and attempts to destroy Obamacare. And by the way, anything that has Obama's name on it, basically eliminating coverage for addiction care. And that's only because they couldn't repeal it because they had nothing to replace it with that was any better. Hey, 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 get off the soapbox and tell your damn story, interrupted Rachel. Sorry, I get my underwear tied in a knot over this so fast. 
Debbie took a deep breath and tried to gather her thoughts to begin again. Jerry and I have been so busy fighting about all of this that we hardly noticed what was going on around us. Debbie stopped. Nobody moved. Nobody even took a breath. Everyone except Julie seemed to know what was coming. Debbie dropped her head. Under her breath, she started slowly. His car was parked in the driveway when we got home. We had been to see the marriage counselor once again, so there was surreal thickness in the air inside the car. We had just spent the last hour screaming at each other, saying horrible things to each other. Neither one of us had the energy to talk after the session on the way home anyway, but we both noticed the car. She picked up her head and arms and rested her chin in her hands. After she settled her elbows close to the edge of the table, we walked up to the house in single file, past the car, and went into the house. I called out to Alex, but he didn't answer. Nikki called out to tell me he wasn't home yet. She took a deep breath. At that moment, Jerry's and my eyes met. We didn't have to speak. We ran back outside, tripping over each other. I already had my hand in my purse, fumbling around, looking for the Narcan, praying it wasn't too late. Julie hung on every word, her eyes fixed on Debbie. The other women were fiddling with their drinks, sipping and fidgeting with straws and napkins. They had heard this part before and were tentative in their reactions. Jerry got to the driver's side of the car first, as he always did. His patience with Alex was growing thin. This, if he had indeed overdosed, would be the third time for Alex. And in Jerry's baseball lingo and in keeping with his tough love attitude, it would be three strikes and he's out. Debbie swallowed hard. I guess he thinks I was the enabler because I wasn't as hard on Alex. Because I didn't want to throw him out on the streets, I'm somehow the bad guy in all of this. Debbie stopped and realized she was talking more about her disdain for her husband than she was about the story itself. When she reached to pick up her drink, it had been sitting long enough to develop condensation on the outside so that she didn't get a good grip. The glass slipped through her fingers like a bald tire on black ice. Startled by the sound and the splash, the girls jumped up from the table to avoid getting wet. Waste not, want not, laughed Rachel. Julie was appalled at the lack of reverence by these women, at the seriousness of the story being told by their dear friend. They were laughing at the expression used by Rachel, commenting how their mothers used the same when they spilled as kids. They were motioning for another drink for Debbie and napkins. Nobody even seemed to care that Debbie's son might have overdosed on a drug and might be dead. I'm such a clod, Debbie chimed in. She also stood, brushing the liquid from her pants. She began to laugh, too. Julie then realized that this, too, was an older story. Her next thought took her a million miles away again. How did these girls get past all these problems? They act as if nothing is wrong and look at what they faced. I gotta find out the rest of this story. Thank God Sophie and Allie never got messed up on serious drugs. I remember the time they came home from that party, a little high from smoking dope. I couldn't even condemn them because they asked if I had ever done it. I wasn't the type of parent to lie to my kids, so I told them the truth, that I had smoked a little in college, but after having a really bad experience one time, I swore I would never do it again. Someone had laced the stuff with something, and I ended up at the infirmary with hallucinations and shit. We never did figure out what it was. Nobody else had a problem, so the doctor told me it might just have been some kind of anxiety attack. I never believed in that stuff. To this day, I blame the pot. Oh, now, that's better. 
Debbie sat back down in a dry chair in front of a dry table setting with a fresh drink. Jerry grabbed the door handle and swung the door open. Apparently, Alex had passed out and was leaning against it, and the only thing that kept him from falling out was that he still had his seatbelt on. She glanced around the table. What junkie shoots up wearing a seatbelt? I guess we did something right when we taught him auto safety. She laughed. The other girls did as well. Julie was now extremely uncomfortable. She squirmed around in her seat, and a deep furrow formed at her brow. I got there just as Jerry sat him back up and was taking his pulse at his neck. He reached back and yelled at me to give him the Narcan. I took the lid off, reminding him to be careful where he touches him because he wasn't wearing gloves. Debbie rolled her eyes. My hero. He always dove into things without thinking. You all know that if he were exposed, he could get sick, too. Sometimes he's such an ass. Debbie reached for her glass, this time with a napkin in her hand. So before he got the Narcan even near him, Alex woke up. He started pulling away from Jerry, yelling at him to cut it out, that he didn't need any of that shit, that he was fine. She took a long sip of her drink. Jerry was so pissed off telling him to shut up that he would wake the neighbors and asking him how the hell was he supposed to know. It's not exactly like he had an angelic history. Debbie took another sip and put the drink down. See, that's the difference between Jerry and me. I trusted Alex, and he didn't. That time, he was just tired and had been talking on his cell to his girlfriend and simply fell asleep. Or at least that's what he said. I believed him. Jerry didn't. Debbie softly shook her head. I hate to admit it, but Jerry turned out to be right in the long run. It was then that the other girls ceased their fiddling, got silent, and paid extreme attention. Nobody wanted to ask a question. Nobody moved a muscle. Debbie put her glass down. I have been off the grid for the past few months for a reason. She slid the damp cocktail napkin from under her drink and wiped her mouth and then her brow. The reason is, she faltered. Hey, come on, Linda coaxed her. It's us, remember? It's so hard to comprehend. But both Alex and Nikki are in treatment right now. Debbie began to weep. Her words became stilted and stiff. Alex relapsed after four years of being clean, and it was Nikki that was behind it. She began to shake uncontrollably. Linda and Rachel, who were sitting on either side of her, draped an arm around Debbie as she cried. It was as if her body was imploding into the chair and she was disappearing in front of their eyes. Linda spoke first. They'll be okay, Deb. They can beat this. Alex proved it once. Rachel picked it up. Are they together? I mean, did they go to the same rehab place? Debbie gathered herself enough to answer. No, the counselor didn't think that was a good idea. Alex went back to the facility where he got clean the first time. She hesitated. We sent Nikki to a place up in Canada that is for women only. Jerry felt strongly that she shouldn't be distracted by a bunch of druggy young men who would be trying to score. She was able at that point to smile. He does know his daughter. Beth had a different question. Had Nikki had an overdose? Nikki was actually new to the drug world. She had thrown her back out at a gymnastics meet during her senior year. Dumbass doctor started her on muscle relaxers, physical therapy, and that fucking Oxycontin. He never bothered to ask anyone if there were any addiction problems in the family. God, Jerry wants to sue him for malpractice. That same sneer came over her face that was there when she was talking about their political differences. 
He thinks you accomplish everything by bullying. When Nicky asked for the third refill, he wouldn't give it to her, telling her she shouldn't be needing anything more than Tylenol for pain by then. She stopped again. Beth asked another question. So is Jerry going to sue, or did your cooler head prevail? He's still yammering about it. It's not the doctor's fault that she's addicted to heroin. He took her off the Oxycontin after two refills. It wasn't an egregious overuse of the drug. I mean, we should have been the ones that were more vigilant, knowing what we know about Alex. I mean, we're not stupid. We've not really been helicoptering parents, but we have always been attentive to our kids. Addiction is a disease, you know, Rachel volunteered. Nobody is at fault here. Your kids are sick, that's all, and you treat them as if they had any other disease. They get the medicine, the therapy, the attention, the whatever. Julie noticed that Rachel had a way of simplifying everything anyone talked about. Her demeanor was always calm, yet sometimes condescending. Julie was trying to figure out why. Is she feeling guilty? Does she think that her problems aren't as bad? Is it some kind of survivor's guilt? I mean, Rachel did lose her husband, but she created her own problems before that. What's her game? Debbie began to weep softly again. At least the political shit took a backseat. The only time it even rears its ugly head now is when the asshole starts squawking about repealing and replacing Obamacare. I swear those damn politicians are such children. Ever since Mitch McConnell opened his trap when Obama was elected and said they were going to do everything they could to be sure he only served one term, her voice trailed off and she again began to weep in earnest. Mental health care has always been treated like a second-class citizen in this country, partly because of the stigma of it and partly because health care itself has always been determined by men who are too fucking stubborn to seek help when it comes to things like depression. It just isn't manly. They say things like man up or grow some balls. It was Rachel who was on her soapbox this time, but the women all agreed. Look, I don't like to get into the politics stuff because you know I'm a conservative, but I do get that health care cannot be fixed by one party. These children in Congress have to learn to work together. Finally, Rachel has come to see things realistically about politics. Beth never got involved in these conversations because the girls told her several years ago that she was so far to the left she might fall off. I won't bring up how I really feel, but thank God you agree that this is a bipartisan issue. Debbie stopped crying. Please, girls, don't. I get enough of this at home. She wiped her eyes. The bottom line is Alex was able to go back to his rehab center for a small fee for food and incidentals. For Nikki, we had to pay the entire fee, but the insurance no longer covers very much of it thanks to, in part, the orange asshole. Um, I'm sorry, the president. She took the last gulp of her bourbon and hesitated to call the server over to the table. You guys ready for another? If we do, we'll have fresh drinks when dinner comes. Yes, yeah, sure, why not? Linda was ready for another beer. She motioned for the server with one hand, holding her empty glass up with the other. What does that make now for? Boy, are we moving fast tonight. Alex had a tough time detoxing. They told us in the family group meetings that usually when someone relapses like he did, they don't just start using again. They start right where they left off. Julie was confused. She knew absolutely nothing about illegal drug use or abuse. She barely knew anything about addiction. She knew a little about drinking too much and drinking to take the edge off and drinking her emotional pain away. Wait, does that mean I have a problem? 
Am I going down a bad road here? What exactly does that mean? It means that when he started using again, he was right back into heavy use, that just a little wasn't nearly enough, and within a few days he was on the streets, stealing from us and doing just about anything to support his habit. And Nikki was enabling him because she felt guilty for giving him that first rock. What's a rock? Julie was in the dark about the vernacular. When she was in school, she knew people who snorted coke, shot heroin, and did LSD on stamps or something. Dismissively, Rachel snapped. It's how they smoke coke. Rachel then gently kicked Julie under the table, rendering her mute for any more questions. Once they got through detox, Alex did much better. Having been through the program once before, Nikki, however, is still balking at it. She's, I guess, in denial of the fact that she's an addict? Debbie was getting restless. She drummed her manicured nails on the edge of the table as she crafted her next thought. Tentatively, she began, My biggest issue right now is that Alex wants nothing to do with Nikki right now. He blames her for everything that is wrong in his life now because she's the one that brought home the coke that led to his relapse. He could have said no, couldn't he? Julie sounded so innocent as if she was a child learning something for the first time. I mean, wasn't it his choice to use it or not? Ha, huh, girl, you have a lot to learn about addiction. Debbie took on a solemn tone. She stared Julie down for what seemed like an eternity. Are you an ostrich? Do you not watch the news? I know the airwaves have been flooded with stories about the opioid crisis, and there isn't much said about cocaine anymore, but come on, wake up! Debbie had raised her voice and was near screaming, Believe me, honey, if you have kids, you better be paying attention. Realizing she hit a raw nerve, Julie slithered down in her chair, a horrified expression plastered across her face. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to upset you. Visibly shaken, she stared straight ahead, deciding at that point to keep her thoughts to herself for the rest of the evening. I don't know these women. I keep putting my foot in my mouth and hurting feelings. They all have had life experiences I know nothing about, personalities I have no knowledge of, and relationships I need to stop trying to horn in on. Geez, I really am a worthless piece of shit. Hey, wait. It's me that should be sorry. Debbie finally responded. You had no idea what you were getting into and it wasn't fair of me to bite your head off. Debbie reached over and rested her hand on Julie's arm to reassure her of her sincerity. I mean it, Julie, please, don't take any of us too seriously tonight. In fact, if you'll promise to meet us tomorrow and join us for dinner tomorrow night, it'll be a whole different kind of night. Julie simply nodded. I'll think about it. I may not still be here, but if I am, I will. I'm still not going to add anything to the conversation. I just can't. These chicks are really bringing me down. Chapter 12. Beth's Story The silence lingered for just a few more seconds when, as usual, Rachel picked up the ball. Hey, come on, ladies, let's finish up dinner. I got my eye on that dessert cart over by the kitchen. Rachel reached down to her waistline. Look, I'm the one who can least afford the calories, but I'm taking up Julie's philosophy tonight. If not now, when? Oi groaned Beth. Of all the expressions you could have used, why that one? Beth sat, shaking her head. As if I haven't heard that one enough lately. What the hell does that mean? Linda jumped in. True what they say about you, Linda. 
You get a little sauce in you and you throw caution to the wind, at least with your mouth you do, Debbie added her opinion. Linda stuck out her tongue and started to laugh, allowing Julie to feel more relaxed. Maybe they were lightening up a bit. Maybe I can tolerate this last story and be able to get through the rest of the evening without harming anyone else's psyche. Julie sat further up in her chair and picked up her knife and fork. She began to cut into what was left of her steak. It was cold by now, but it was cooked to perfection. Beth had finished as much as she was going to eat and watched the women work on their individual plates. She seemed slightly pensive about opening further dialogue and was content to wait until last. It didn't take long until brassy Rachel, with her mouth full of cob salad, a chunk of blue cheese stuck in the corner of her lips, asked her to begin. We haven't heard boo from you, Beth. Give us a tale of intrigue while we finish dining. Funny, I didn't expect dinner and a show. Debbie made a sorry attempt at sarcasm. Beth sighed. I'm not so sure I can dredge one up. Let me think. Beth rested her head back on the chair while the others continued to eat. Okay, so I was a follower of Dr. Spock, firmly believing that children needed discipline to make them feel secure. They needed to hear the word no, to understand that somebody cared enough to set limits for them and teach them to set limits for themselves. Yes, we let the boys all cry themselves to sleep to learn that bedtime was bedtime. Yes, we made them taste everything that was served to them, although we didn't necessarily believe in making them clean their plates. Yes, we punished them when they did wrong. We showered them with neither idle threats nor expensive gifts. And most importantly, we did not let them find themselves at age three. One of the things we felt strongly about was that we did not let them get up from the table until everyone was finished eating. As a result, we did get a lot of compliments on the behavior of our children over the years. I remember one time in the Smoky Mountains, when my husband had gotten up to use the restroom, this lovely southern couple came over to me to sing praise. She said, We just wanted to tell you just how well behaved your children are. Eddie was so mad he missed it. It didn't start out or always go so smoothly. They were polite and well-behaved most of the time. Generally, we could take them anywhere. There were times when they were cranky from teething or just tired. If they acted up or cried, we simply removed them from the restaurant or movie theater so they would not disturb other patrons. One evening, Beth continued, we were dining at a family-style restaurant which allowed children. Eddie and I were appalled to see dozens of children running around screaming and crying with what seemed to be no supervision. We looked at each other and nodded in agreement that our oldest son, age two, was indeed well-behaved. I guess people think if it's a family restaurant, anything goes. We smiled at each other while watching all the other children misbehave, but when we returned focus to our son... We found his face buried in a plate of macaroni and cheese, eating it like a dog. Everyone laughed out loud, including some of the surrounding parties at nearby tables. The women had been getting more and more boisterous, perhaps exponentially with their drinking, but most definitely with their anecdotes and personal stories. They were providing entertainment and likely more personal information than they had intended to many more people than they were aware. Nevertheless, Beth continued, he hasn't done that since, thank God. It is, however, 23 years later. They all laughed again. 
I certainly hope not, Rachel shrieked. We can teach them everything possible, but we never know what sticks. On a more serious note, the things that stick with you, if you don't deal with them appropriately and fully, can bring you down or blow you up, Beth sighed. It was her turn, and Julie sensed that Beth had no desire to go to the darker side of her life, but condescended to do so because it was part of the covenant of membership in this most exclusive clique. I'm not sure I understand what you mean. Beth had commanded Julie's full attention, almost as if this was exactly what she needed to hear but hadn't known it. Julie asked, I mean, what do you mean by blow you up? It's just a figure of speech, I guess. By blow up, I guess I mean you implode into your own mental or emotional anguish over things that either happened a long time ago, haven't happened yet, or that you have no control over. Beth took a deep breath and began. My dear mother, may she rest in peace, was a Holocaust survivor. She was a child when she was taken to and then liberated from Buchenwald. She watched her brother waste away and die rapidly after he had given her most of his food rations. She talked about him her whole life as if he was still with her. I still have the tiny dog-eared picture of him that she held on to all these years. Mama and Uncle Joshua had been taken from their parents right after they got off the train when they arrived from the Warsaw Ghetto. Mama never knew what happened to them. All the children were taken away, or at least that's how Mama remembered it. It was often hard for her to talk about it. Into her 70s, she would still wake up screaming, remembering the sounds of the children crying for their mothers. Beth waited a second and then added, she would freak if she saw what was going on right now at the Texas-Mexico border. Beth glanced around the room. It's funny how we take things for granted so much now. American Jews that were born after World War II, if they weren't educated well and if they came from families that totally assimilated to American life, don't get it. They're the high-holiday Jews. Julie's lips tightened. She was the bat in the attic of the temple. She offered herself up for sacrifice. I think you're describing me to a degree. I'm the one they tell the jokes about. How do you get rid of bats in the attic of the temple? Asked Beth. In unison, the other four sang, Bar mitts for them and you'll never see them again. Although these days, it's not that funny. Beth returned to her solemn tone. With the change in the demeanor in this country and around the world and the rise of anti-Semitism, we need to raise our voices together. There are people out there that deny that the Holocaust even happened. Some are even running for office in this country that hate us just because they hate us. And here in this country, the white nationalist or neo-Nazi movement is growing. Shaking her head slowly, Beth began to weep. Julie leaned over to Debbie and whispered, Is she okay? Give her a second. I'm so sorry. After a minute, Beth began to talk again. I sometimes worry that what Mama and my uncle and I don't even know how many other relatives went through could happen again. Watching what goes on in Europe and here, her voice trailed off again. The waitress rolled the dessert cart over just in time. Rachel's eyes lit up. You're just in time. We really need something sweet right now. She reached across the table and squeezed Beth's arm. Come on, honey. Pick something for dessert. We're all throwing caution to the wind tonight. 
She turned back to the waitress and added, And please bring us another round of drinks while we're deciding. Haven't we already done enough drinking? We've already had five rounds. The practical side of Linda was interfering with her desire to participate wholly. Julie acknowledged this trait in her earlier, but was hoping this was just a passing thought this time. I'm going to need more to drink to get through this and to follow through later. Funny, I hadn't thought about that in a while. Never mind, I'll have another, but I think I'll switch to a dark beer this time. Linda surprised everyone. And order me one of those eclairs. I need to run to the ladies' room. You only rent beer, remember? She got up and slipped away, giving Beth a squeeze on her shoulder as she passed. Julie began to wonder what Beth's whole story was. Seems like there's more to it than this. I guess I'll have to wait until dessert to find out what else is going on with her. I think I like the looks of that chocolate cheesecake, please. After the other three women ordered their desserts, the waitress offered coffee or tea. Maybe later. We have more drinking to do. Rachel gave the directive with a mouthful of strawberry cheesecake. Wow, this is fantastic. Almost as good as Joe's key lime pie. Now that's really saying something, Linda said as she parked herself back down in her chair. Where's my eclair? Oh, she had to go back to the kitchen to get a fresh one. The one on the cart was for show, and she didn't have any others on the cart. Debbie was halfway through a golden creme brulee. Through all of this, Beth sat silently, rubbing her eyes occasionally and staring off into her past and into her future, existing in a paradigm anytime and anywhere but right there, right then. Her skin was clammy, her lips ashen. The only one who even took notice was Julie. Everyone else was absorbed in cocktails, confections, and conversation. Julie was more than addled by this. What the hell? This woman is obviously in pain. Aren't you supposed to be her closest friends? Why isn't anybody comforting her? Should I say or do something? Is it my place? No, of course not, jerk. You always put your foot in your mouth and say the wrong thing. Just shut up and eat your dessert. Hmm, this would be really nice with a cup of hot coffee. Wait, no, don't want to kill my buzz. The last thing I want to do is get antsy from caffeine. Oi. Okay. Beth sat up in her chair. I need to tell you all some stuff. Not only did everyone at the table get quiet, but Beth's sigh and then her pronouncement garnered the intention of the entire corner of the restaurant. Suddenly, there no longer was the murmur of late-night conversation or the clacking of silverware. First, Julie, you should know that because of my mom, I was compelled to spend my life in Jewish communal work. I went to college fully intending to major in Holocaust studies, but didn't really know what I would do with a degree in that. In fact, there were very few universities that even offered such a curriculum at the time, save maybe Brandeis or Boston University. I ended up getting a master's degree in social work, and I've worked in the not-for-profit world now for over 30 years, all for Jewish organizations. I started in Jewish education, spent many years raising money for the Jewish Federation, and now I work for the Anti-Defamation League. Wow, that's real dedication. And that's all to honor your mom and her family? Julie was duly impressed. None of her friends would have been able to be that dedicated about anything, except maybe their manicurists or their hairdressers. It was beginning to dawn on Julie that what she had been missing in her life was substance. You're pretty amazing. Wait. Beth finally took a bite of her dessert. There's a lot more to it. 
my husband is also the son of Holocaust survivors, so it's really a family affair. We met in college in an undergraduate science class. He went on to medical school, and at the time, I toyed with the idea of joining him. That was up until we went to see the movie Sophie's Choice together. The movie really messed with my head, and I started on a tear again, like I did in high school, reading and studying the Holocaust again. I must have seen that movie a dozen times. I ended up having a breakdown, and I had to drop out of school for the rest of the semester. Oh, my. Julie was at a loss for words. A breakdown? What kind of breakdown do you have over a movie? Enough to drop out of school? They said I had major depressive disorder, and I had to take some medication and see a psychologist for a while. After a few weeks, I started to feel better and made the decision not to go on to medical school. I reached the conclusion that for me to cope with my obsession with the Holocaust, my mama, and anti-Semitism, I would best be served doing something productive to address it rather than stay in my head and ruminate about it. She paused and a slight smile crossed her lips. My husband fully supported my decision and my career. So what's the problem then? Julie was baffled. There had to be more to this. So what? So you got a little bent out of shape. I know none of my circle ever give this stuff a second thought. The depression stuff? Maybe it's because they're always with the Xanax or the martinis. There's more. A lot more. Some of which the rest of you don't know. Beth had been quiet all day, and Julie's surmise now it was because she was anticipating this evening. It all started to blow up last summer at my mother's funeral. I mean, she died of natural causes and all, but we were not prepared for what followed. We assumed the funeral would be relatively small. What we did not know was that Mama had been involved in the Jewish Community Services Holocaust Survivors Group. There must have been 200 elderly Jewish people bust in for the service, which was beautiful. But then many of them paid condolence calls to the house. What's wrong with that? Isn't that the proper thing to do? Julie asked. Wait, she has some wild stories that came out of this, Rachel volunteered. It seems Mama had a lot of friends, but through this group, she was able to locate cousins who had also survived Buchenwald, Dachau, and even Auschwitz. Mama's father had four brothers, two of whom had survived and were liberated and made it to the U.S. as well. But Julie paused and glanced around the table. I would think that's all very good and exciting news. Mama never told me or my brother. We didn't know this until after she died. We don't know if she didn't remember or if she didn't want us to know. Beyond that, when we were going through her things and settling her estate, we found some strange things as well. Like what? Julie was now on the edge of her seat. Well, first, in her bedroom, we noticed a terrible odor. We took all her clothes to the cleaners to get them ready to donate, but in so doing, we found all kinds of cookies and crackers wrapped in tissues stuffed in the pockets. On the shelves over her desk, we found pieces of old rotten fruit hidden behind the books, in vases, and behind the knickknacks. Beth took a deep breath and sighed. In explanation, she offered, We were heartbroken. My poor mama must have been living in fear to her death that the Holocaust would happen again. 
She was preparing for the worst, still so unsure where her next meal was coming from, even though she had been living here in New York for 72 years. Linda, while she knew all of this as she had been with the family during this time, was still so moved by the sadness of this fact. How traumatic the experience must have been for a person to carry that fear for so many years, even though everything around her screamed freedom and safety. Mama didn't seem to exhibit anything more than typical senior dementia. That was until she was watching the news one night and she saw the protesters in Charlottesville carrying torches and yelling, Jews will not replace us and blood and soil. That seemed to set something off in her and she receded into her past and remained there for the last two months of her life. She basically shut down in fear. Julie was mesmerized. She, too, had been shaken by the rise of anti-Semitism around the world. Her own identity as a Jewish woman was exhibited in a minimal way. Being that high Holy Day Jew, she didn't really participate in much more. Hearing some of this was making her uncomfortable. My daughter Joy had been very active in the temple and had joined the USY group. She went on one of their summer programs and then went on the March of the Living. It changed her forever and she developed an intense relationship with my mother. Beth smiled a distant smile, yet tears formed in the corners of her eyes. I was almost jealous because Mom shared stories and experiences with joy that she never told me. But that's okay, isn't it? Julie's kids always had a special relationship with their grandparents. That's natural, isn't it? It would be, but some of it was very disturbing. The end result is that they both had nightmares and emotional distress. Beth took a bite of her eclair. Joy ultimately went back to Israel after her senior year in college and studied at seminary to make the transition to become from. She came back to attend graduate school as an observant Jew. It was more than we could grasp at first. Yeah, they were pretty confused. Rachel spoke once again with her mouth full. Beth's husband was against it because it wasn't the way he raised her. It took him a long time to come around to accepting it. Caused a lot of rifts. Hello, but do you mind if I speak? Beth was incensed. This is my story, isn't it? Excuse me for living. Rachel put her fork down. Anyway, Joy came back expecting trouble. I found myself playing buffer for a while. I finally had to tell him that our kids don't shit what he eats. They all laughed tentatively because they knew this was a treacherous time for the entire family. There was a lack of trust and a lot of fighting. We not only got used to it, but began to really embrace it, or at least I did. Joy met and married into a wonderful family. Her husband had a toddler from a previous marriage. They made an instant bubble. And you all know how I hated that. But what really got me was the wedding. I was so moved by the rituals and all their heartfelt and deep-seated meanings. And Israel's mother took me by the hand and explained everything along the way, making it so special. So what's the deal? What happened that is so intense? Julie was expecting something bad based on the rest of the stories. Well, now that Joy is living in and among an Orthodox community, I worry more, especially with the rise in anti-Semitism. They live in Flatbush, and there had been a lot of problems with hate crimes. The baby's daycare had been targeted twice, and there have been two bomb scares. Last month, one of the Orthodox temples was targeted, 
And just yesterday, Beth stopped cold. What? What happened yesterday? Beth? What? They all cajoled her into talking. Joy's best friend's husband, a rabbi, was stabbed as he left the shul. He's in critical condition, the last I heard. Beth's face was white. I know Rabbi Yosef. He is a wonderful man and young. He has four small children. He may not survive. Beth broke down. This time, though, her tears were no longer silent. She sobbed piercingly, commanding the attention of everyone in the restaurant. The manager came running over to see if he could call someone. Even the table next to them, four young men of color, offered solace. Beth was inconsolable. Jeez, Beth, I had no idea you were dealing with this. Why didn't you say anything? Rachel's harsh demeanor had vanished. She was attentive, tender, and understanding. Julie marveled at the change in her. Let me get you some tissues. Linda jumped up and ran to the ladies' room. Debbie scooted her chair around to the side of Beth's and put her arm around Beth. Just let go, kiddo. Let go, but remember to breathe in between. The whole community of Flatbush is in shock. Joy said there's been a vigil all night long outside the hospital. The police are all over the place looking for the guys. Apparently, there were three of them. Beth was hiccuping her story in between sobs. They think that they were part of the same gang that had been defacing the shuls, calling in the bomb threats and terrorizing the community. What I don't understand is why it's okay to hate like that. Julie was an ostrich. She had been living a very sheltered, protected life. Nothing like that seems to happen around my neighborhood, and it's primarily Jewish. You're probably not paying attention, Beth snapped at her. I read a piece in the Times just a few weeks ago about a series of hate crimes right here in Miami Beach not too long ago. Seems like it's gotten a lot worse in the past two years or so. I have a pretty good idea why, began Rachel. Let's not get into it, okay, said Linda. She reached across the table and handed Beth some tissues. Just don't start with the politics, okay? Sorry. Now's not the time, and you know it, Rachel, Linda scoffed. Meanwhile, my husband wants the kids to get out of the neighborhood and come stay with us until things settle down. But they won't. They won't leave the community. They're all sticking together to fight this. That's noble but stupid, Rachel half-whispered. Reminds me of the Warsaw Jews. Shut up, Beth shouted at her. The most insensitive thing you could say. Leave it to you, Rachel. It's true, Beth. You need to convince Joy to get out, even if only for a little while, until the police make some headway. Rachel was no longer being cynical. She was sincere. It sounds to me like things are getting progressively worse. Beth cooled off a bit. She started talking to herself, half in English, half in Hebrew. If we don't learn from our mistakes, we're doomed to repeat them. Lador, vador, from generation to generation. Teach your children that it be a sign upon their hearts and upon their doorposts. Did you say something, Julie asked? I was just trying to remember the exact quote from George Santayana, I think it was those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Yes, Beth, but there's a quote from Mark Twain, which I think is a better one at this moment. 
we should be careful to get out of an experience only the wisdom that is in it, lest we be like the cat who will never sit on a hot stove lid again, but he may never sit on a cold one either. Huh? Julie was having trouble following the conversation. What I mean by that is that this is not the Holocaust. This is 2018 in the United States of America, began Linda. Most Americans will not tolerate this. Yes, there are some sick, stupid people that believe there is a hierarchy in human beings. They don't get that we all have the same skeletons, muscles, blood, and guts. The only thing that separates us is skin color and religion. Those people are usually ignorant and uneducated, or worse, driven by fear. That's right, added Debbie. Even among the five of us, different political views, etc., doesn't mean we'd kill each other. In fact, we'd defend each other to the bitter end. I sure hope it never comes to that. Julie took a deep breath. Man, this has been an experience. The problems, the personalities, the pleasures, they all have their own unique stories and with them, in a sense, their own wisdom. Beth, are you okay now? Rachel asked tenderly. Yeah, I actually feel a lot better now, getting it all off my chest. I'm actually ready to scoff down this eclair. She picked up her fork, took a deep sniff, and took a bite. I can help you finish it if you're not up to it, Rachel volunteered. Everyone snickered. Julie sensed that things were slowly returning to normal. Everyone got back to finishing dessert and the last round of drinks, with occasional commentary on taste and texture. Not another word was spoken about the stories and anecdotes told, except perhaps a lighthearted reflection on one or two of the empty nest stories. Is this how the evening ends? Do these women just spew and then go to sleep? They're nuts, that's all. They're just plain nuts. I wonder if any of them will actually get to sleep after all of this. Chapter 13, Julie's Story I don't really have a story, Julie answered in a panic. Why are they asking me? I'm not one of their crew. I never agreed to be part of this charade. They invited me, but they didn't tell me I'd have to participate in this ritual cleansing. I wouldn't know what to say. Just tell us a little bit about yourself. Here you've been hanging out with us and playing tour guide for a day and a half, and we know little about you. We've just poured out our guts, and we're not expecting you to do the same. Rachel licked the last bit of whipped cream off her finger. Just a little bit, please. Um, uh, well, as you know, I live down here, have all my life. I met my husband in college and worked as a journalist for the Fort Lauderdale paper to put him through medical school. He's a surgeon. I have two daughters, both married. And that's really it. Oh, come on. You can do better than that. Linda coaxed her to continue. No cute story. No conflict. Julie felt her neck going stiff. The next would be her chest pounding, and then the tightness in her chest. Her right leg started bouncing under the table. There really isn't any conflict other than maybe feeling a little lonesome since the kids left. You know, empty nest stuff. I get that, Rachel and Linda chimed in together and then broke out laughing. My girls were, well, my closest friends. Now they're so busy with their own families, they barely have time for me. We get that, too. They were so cute growing up. She stopped talking and glanced around the table. It seemed to her that the alcohol had begun to take its toll on all of them. Maybe I can bullshit my way through this. There were a lot of little stories, but right now I can't remember my own name, much less something that happened 20 years ago. 
Well, when my girls were growing up, they were two totally different girls, my two. Sophie was always confident and outgoing, and we always had smooth sailing. She was so easy. She was the younger of my two. But Allie, a different animal altogether. Julie started to snicker, reflecting on raising Alexandra. It had been such a challenge trying to guess which side of Allie was going to show up on any given day. I had to scream into my pillow on a regular basis just to let out my frustrations in dealing with her. One day I sat down and wrote a poem about it. I may be a little too drenched in Canadian club to remember it all. You guys want to hear it? Absolutely. Definitely. Okay, I'll try. Julie paused. She couldn't even remember the name she had given this effort at creativity. Wait, it's called, um, That's My Girl. Oh, and Sophie had her nose all out of joint because I didn't write a poem for her, I remember. Julie took a sip of her drink. Okay, here goes. Just when I think my patience is spent and I have no more strength to abide, her demands and her mood swings never relent, then she shows me her softer side. Not a lot different from other teens, her room is a mess, her music loud, She'll speak in a language, don't know what she means, then she'll do something to make me proud. She talks about music, running, and boys, waffling from elation to despair. Makeup and warm-ups have replaced other toys, but her life she's still willing to share. She's so busy, she's always gone in a flash, seems our relationship's always on the mend. We misunderstand, we bicker, we clash. Then she tells me I'm her best friend. Julie stopped for a second, her eyes welled up with tears. A little choked up and pensive, she attempted to gather herself. She took one more sip of her drink, which was now near empty. The ice slid against her lips, heralding a wave to the server from Rachel to bring yet another round for the table. Julie took a deep breath and then dabbed her mouth with her napkin. She continued. My fondest hope is to keep it that way. She is truly the light of my life. I'll hold on to her as long as I may, until she becomes some lucky man's wife. Her father will tell her to be who you are, and everything will work out in the end. Just be Allie, he says, and you'll go far. Allie, my daughter, my friend. Julie closed her eyes, picturing her daughter as a young teen, with hands on hips and angry look on her face, replete with rolling eyes. She grinned, still with her eyes closed, followed by a contented sigh. When she slowly opened them, her eyes darted around the table to find her new friends, all of them, silently weeping to themselves. That was just beautiful, Julie, Debbie volunteered. You're quite a talented poet. Yeah, those were lovely sentiments. Do you get along well with Allie now? Beth was curious, having had ups and downs with her own daughter. I guess so. Not really. She never calls. She's so self-absorbed. Maybe we spoiled her. She moved a little further north, so I don't see her as much, and she's pretty busy with working and two small kids, so... Julie didn't feel like going into detail and certainly didn't want to let on how devastatingly hurt she is about Allie's lack of attentiveness to her. What about the other girl? What did you say her name was, Sophia? asked Rachel. It's Sophie. Uh, we actually named her after Meryl Streep's character in Sophie's Choice. That movie was out like forever ago, Linda said. 1982, to be precise, Beth corrected her. You would know. 
Rachel sounded only slightly snarky, but still received everyone's condescending stares. What? Julie carried on with her story. My husband and I went to see the movie for our first date. We were so moved by the film. We talked about it until three in the morning. We've watched the movie many times since. Not lately, but it used to be a thing with us. So then why didn't you name your firstborn, Sophie? Beth fiddled with the straw in her drink. Her interest in baby naming was limited. She thought that Julie's interest in the movie was related to the Holocaust. By the time we got married and I got pregnant, we had lost my dad to a massive heart attack. You know, the kind they call the Widowmaker? He had one of those. He was only 62. His name was Alexander, hence the Alexandra. Ah, uh, I get it. Sorry you lost your dad so young. Me too, Debbie commiserated. Do you have any poems for Sophie? No poems, but I could probably dredge up a story or two. She was a character. The server placed a tray down on the table. This time there were only four glasses. Julie tried to figure out who was quitting. It must be Linda. There's no beer there. Figures. Wasn't she the one that was watching Sugar? Oh, yeah, for the cancer. I don't know how I would ever be able to go through that. If I down this one, one of two things will happen. One, I'll get very uninhibited and therefore very funny and or vulgar. Two, I'll get a little mushmouth and you may not understand me. And three, I'll forget what I'm saying and tell you the same story over and over again, Julie announced. You're too funny, Rachel exclaimed. What was so funny about that? Debbie wanted to know. You didn't notice what she said? You've probably reached your limit, too. Rachel, too, was slurring her words. She said one of two things would happen, and she said three things. All five of the women laughed boisterously as if they had taken the lead from Rachel. They had been sitting in the corner of the hotel's restaurant for several hours, and the place had emptied out except for a smattering of late-night drinkers by the bar, so they weren't disturbing anyone at that point. Oh, I have a cute one, Julie proclaimed. This is a cute little vignette about Sophie that will give you a good idea of the kind of person she was, and still is, as an adult. Vignette! Don't use such big words. I'm too baked to understand those big words. Beth plunked her elbows on the table and planted her chin on top of her fists. Baked? You're not baked. You're frickin' drunk. You only get baked when you smoke dope. Quit trying to act hip. As soon as she said it, Rachel knew she had gone too far, and before anyone had a chance to react, she rectified the situation. Sorry, Beth. I'm a little soused. May I? Julie was learning the friendly sarcasm. Okay. So when the girls were really little, we took them to a Marlins baseball game. It was when they played their home games at the north end of the county in the same stadium as the Miami Dolphins. Allie was, I think, five, and Sophie was three. We always bought the really cheap tickets, so we were seated up high in the nosebleed section. We got there early and were already settled into our seats when a rather large black man and his little boy were making their way up the steps. It's African-American, Beth corrected her. Oh, shut up, you and your political correctness. Rachel had her head resting on her crossed arms on the table. Anyway, Julie went on. Sophie noticed them as they approached. She stood up and pointed to the man and pronounced, He's black. Everyone who was resting heads was now sitting upright. Remember now, this was over 20 years ago. We were stunned. He stopped at the row behind us, guided the little boy from the aisle, and promptly took the seats directly behind us. 
We weren't sure if he heard her, but it was confirmed that he had when Sophie turned around and said it directly to him. You're black. My husband slid down in his seat and looked straight forward, assuming, as always, that I would deal with Sophie and her antics. I turned around and apologized to the man. He wasn't the least bit bothered. In fact, he told us that all she had done was tell the truth. He said, I am black. I love the purity and honesty of children. So, what happened? Well, we never figured out how to teach tact to our daughter. We tried that day. We tried to tell her that it's not polite to point out people's differences. She didn't understand. By the end of the game, she was sitting on his lap, sharing his peanuts, and having a wonderful time. After a trivial silence, all the women tittered and then broke out into full laughter. That's adorable, said Debbie. My kids, neither of them, ever would have done that. To this day, they wouldn't talk to strange people, nor would they break bread with someone they just met. Mine either, affirmed Rachel. In fact, mine are a little bit racist. They would have reacted more like your husband. Is he prejudiced? No, I don't think so, answered Julie. Sometimes I wonder, though. How so? asked Linda and Beth in unison. I don't think I want to go into it, but let's just say we're on opposite sides of the aisle, okay? Gotcha, said Rachel. Discretion is the better part of valor, to put it nicely, especially with this crew. Rachel had already had her head bitten off from going down that road in conversation too many times with her friends. So, is Sophie still outgoing and outspoken? Debbie wanted to know more. Most definitely, Julie said confidently. This is a kid who has always been outgoing and outspoken. She has always taken up for those less fortunate and has always been able to look past people's differences and make a beeline to their hearts. She stopped for a second and then qualified her statement. That has been both a blessing and a challenge for her. What does that mean, exactly? asked Beth. I guess I mean that she has always been a very thoughtful and introspective person. Even as a child, she lived on a higher emotional and spiritual plane, making it difficult for her socially. Her focus when she was eight or nine was on mitzvot or doing good deeds when the rest of her classmates were into Barbies and Furbies. Remember them? Oh, my God, yes, said Linda. Oh, geez, Eddie was all over the city looking for them that one year, moaned Beth. Every kid had to have one. Not Sophie. I mean, she asked for one, but when we told her we couldn't find one, she said it didn't matter. She actually said she had more important things to worry about. Oh, my God. What could have ever been more important than having a Furby? Asked Linda sarcastically. Julie was extremely proud of her daughters, she was realizing. Why is it I never think about this stuff? Both of my girls are good kids. Allie did all this stuff right along with Sophie, even if these projects were all Sophie's ideas. Why is it always in my head that they're so difficult? Sophie had put together a school supply drive the year that Furbies came out. She had been on a visit to a homeless shelter with her father and had noticed a bunch of kids getting on a county school bus with no backpacks, notebooks, or even textbooks. She sat forward in her seat and picked up her drink again, noticing that it was almost empty again. She waved to the server and lifted her glass. She had gone, or I should say, had me take her, to all of the elementary schools in the area. She dropped off a letter to the principal asking that a flyer be sent home requesting that when students come back to school in the fall, that they each bring one extra school supply for homeless children. Wow, she thought of this herself? How old was she? She was nine, and yes, she thought of it herself. 
She told her dad that she didn't understand how the kids going to school from that homeless center could learn much if they didn't have the right tools. So, in the fall, Morty and I went around to all the schools and picked up all the donated supplies. She was invited to present what she collected at a board of directors meeting. It took two of those great big laundry carts, you know, the ones I mean, like the ones hotels use. Everyone revealed a knowing nod as they continued to listen. She made a full presentation to all these movers and shakers without batting an eye. There was even a television news crew there that interviewed her afterwards. I took video of the whole thing, but my hands were shaking so because I was crying. Wow, just wow, said Debbie. You must really be proud of her. And Allie, I'm sure. We are. I mean, I am. I really am. The server put the seventh round on the table in front of Julie. Again, there was no beer for Linda. This time, there were only three drinks. Julie tried to figure out who else quit. She didn't really care. What she did notice, however, was that her bladder was busting. She pushed away from the table to excuse herself. I'll be right back. Hurry, we want to hear more. Julie stumbled away from the table and called back over her shoulder. Not much more to tell. What the hell else do they want to know from me? I better think of something to tell them about me. I don't have any tragic, terrible story to tell them. I don't, do I? I guess that's good. She pushed open the door to the familiar ladies' room, hoping against hope that she would be alone. She wasn't. Once again, there were several young girls in the corner of the vanity area, this time smoking something. Must be some crack or something. I shall not engage with them. Hey, lady, what are you looking at? Want to score a rock? A well-dressed, tall, blonde, 20-something woman picked her head up above the group and directed her question to Julie. Uh, no thanks. Julie kept walking toward the toilet stalls and sinks area. A sinking feeling hung in her chest, and she knew the encounter wasn't over. I'm not looking for a shakedown here. Glad I left my bag at the table, or did I? I did. Shit, I'm drunk. She didn't intend to, but she slammed the stall door shut, alarming the women. Lady, keep it down. Sorry. Julie finished her business as quietly as she could, flushed, and then washed her hands. She breezed by the conclave in the lounge area and tried to hurry back to the table with every intention of telling the girls what was going on in there. Oh, shit, I can't do that. Debbie, shit. What was I supposed to be thinking about while I was in there? Oh, yeah, me. Fuck, what am I going to tell them? What am I doing here? What did I already tell who? Or is it whom? I always get those mixed up. Nobody cares about grammar anymore anyway. I can't get over some of the garbage these new cutesy little reporters get away with now. And that fucking happy talk between all the hard news. Do they even listen to what they're reading? I think not. Wait, what was I supposed to be thinking? Shit. Fuck my life. Oh yeah, that's right. My life. Fuck my life. Julie slowly ambled up to the table and found her new friends arguing once again. She didn't even bother to ask what it was about this time. She tuned it out, slumped down into her chair, and calmly picked up her drink and nursed the ice cubes. There was very little liquor left, but since everyone else seemed to be slowing down, she thought she would be better off saving what was left. Okay, now we know all about your kids. What about the elusive and mysterious Julie? Linda was sincere. We hardly know anything about you. So far, we only know you live here in Florida. Your husband's name is Morty, he's a doctor, and is away at a medical convention. You have two grown daughters who sound delightful, and you work as a writer. Linda sat back. How close am I? 
that's pretty much it in a nutshell. My main career was as a stringer for magazines and the local newspaper. I'm semi-retired, so I do contract work now. Julie thought she was off the hook. Only one part was a lie. She wrote, but for television, and it used to be for herself. And, inquired Rachel, and what? What else is there? Come on, there has to be some sort of interesting thing or conflict or adventure. You have to have some kind of challenge, excitement, or problem? Debbie was trying to be tactful. Why, there are some people who live normal lives, you know, snipped Rachel. No crazy lawsuit, illness, or accident, no nasty neighbor, catty fight with a girlfriend or anything? Beth asked. What is wrong with you people? Julie was almost indignant. Why does there have to be something awful going on in someone's life? My marriage is monogamous, unlike Rachel. There's no cancer, like Linda. There are no addiction issues, like Debbie has. And nobody has inflicted hate crimes or murders in our lives like Beth has faced. Nothing, really. We just are surprised how someone can live over 50 years without facing any really critical challenges. Linda, again, was quite sincere in her explanation. You have a charmed life, honey. Neither your own actions nor things out of your control have gotten in your way. You're a lucky girl, Rachel added. Julie paused for a second. At first, she was angry at these women. She had never really stopped to think about her blessings. You know what? I never even thought about it. But then all of you have faced so much and have survived so much and more. Seemed to be so much stronger for it. Yeah, well, sometimes you don't have a choice. You have to be true to yourself. Like William Shakespeare wrote, to thine own self be true. Rachel allowed the words to slide out slowly, but she looked away. Julie assumed it was because Rachel had made her own bed and still felt some guilt. You do. You always just have to keep going, said Linda. You have to embrace every second you have. My motto is that God only gives us what we can bear. And when things are good, you have to make the best of them. Yep, added Debbie. And you should never do anything to sacrifice the integrity of your own potential. I mean, you never know what God has planned for you. I've seen what addiction can do to you. When you poison your mind and your body, you make bad decisions. Never mind I drank like I did tonight. I think the most important thing is that we pass on our knowledge and intellectual law to our children. Our life experiences, our family traditions, our heritage, our silly little idiosyncrasies. You know, like I said before, Lador Vador, concluded Beth. Half of the history we know is from storytelling. You all seem to have an awful lot of advice to give someone who isn't saddled with any issues that need addressing. Boy, I'm sounding pretty snarky, almost as bad as Rachel. Why am I being so defensive? You know what? I think maybe I'm a little tired, and I know I've had more than enough to drink. What time is it anyway? Almost 12.30, Beth offered, glancing at her Saworski watch. When Julie first noticed it, she thought Beth was one of those jappy, label-conscious women. It turned out it had been a gift from her daughter, who had purchased it in Israel. After finding that out, Julie stopped trying to judge and compare herself to these women. We've been sitting here for four hours, for God's sake. I need to go to bed. Rachel abruptly stood up and brushed a plateful of crumbs off her skirt. Oy, I'm such a slob. She wobbled a bit and then grabbed the back of her chair. 
and a drunken one at that. I'm going up to bed. Rachel turned around to leave, but was yanked back, not by anyone in particular, but by the fact that her purse strap was still wrapped around the back post of her chair. Well now, shit a brick. Graceful as always, Miss Rachel. Linda spoke gently as she carefully slid her chair out. She seemed to Julie to be very cautious in her actions and her statements. Always. Her feelings had been hurt before, probably by Rachel, and she's probably had things she said or done explode in her face. Julie was a little jealous at how measured Linda was. Her life had taught her the one thing Julie has always wanted to learn, and that was how to be responsive rather than reactive. The other two girls and Julie all stood up together as if on cue. Hey, how do we deal with the bill? Julie didn't want it to go on her room. She was prepared to pay cash for her share. The server will split it five ways and charge equally to our five rooms, if that's okay, Beth explained. Can I just give you guys, like, $50 each and then have you split it four ways? Will that cover me? Whoa, that's way too much. You didn't go through that much liquor, did you? Asked Rachel. Let's wait and look at the bill. Linda again was the organizer. Here she comes. Let me take a look. She thanked the server for the bill and her attentiveness and then sat back down at the table. After a minute of reviewing and staring at the ceiling, doing some calculating, she came up with a figure for Julie. How about 160 each? That gives the server around a 19% tip. Each of us will have $200 charged to our rooms and then get $40 cash from Jules. Geez, how do you do that? Rachel always marveled at Linda's math ability. You don't win the blue ribbon for the math contest here, honey. Somebody signed my check. I gotta put my head down. And she was gone. Julie fumbled around in her purse and pulled out her wad of cash wrapped in a rubber band. She slipped it halfway out and rifled through the bills to get to the 20s. I only need eight. Please let me have eight $20 bills. Fucking ATM only ever gives you 20s, and I don't have enough, damn it. Oh, wait. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Got it. Here we go. Can one of you give this to Rachel in case I don't see you tomorrow? I'm not sure what my schedule is going to be. Julie was trying to stuff everything back into her purse without calling any attention to the amount of money she was carrying. I got it. Linda snatched it from Julie. Her room is on my floor. I'll drop it off right now. With the high finance taken care of, the three women started out of the lounge while Julie remained. She had taken a seat at the table again on the premise that she was looking for her key. Debbie turned back and blew her a kiss. Night-night, my new friend. Sweet dreams. Good night, everyone. Thank you for including me tonight. Chapter 14 Well, this is it. There's no turning back now. I got through this whacked-out day without losing it. In fact, I had a decent time. When was the last time I even thought about my mission? I don't even remember. Julie wandered toward the elevator. The eerie silence of the empty lobby gave her pause. All the shops were closed and dark. Nobody was sitting in the overstuffed chairs and couches or standing by the bar. The fountains had been turned off. There wasn't even anyone at the front desk. She felt a chill around her neck as the elevator doors slowly opened. It wasn't a blast of air. There wasn't somebody lurking behind the shiny steel. What the hell is this all about? I probably drank too much. Cautiously, she stepped lightly into the empty car. Turning quickly to be sure nobody else was behind her, Julie pushed the button for her floor. What the hell is this feeling? Why do I feel so scared? There's nobody behind me. She wrapped her arms around her shoulders and hugged herself to try to warm up, 
glancing haphazardly around the ceiling of the elevator looking for an air conditioning vent. The elevator chugged slowly up to the eleventh floor. God, you would think I was on a local elevator. This is taking forever. She spoke in a firm voice as if to be sure someone heard that she was there. Finally, I thought it was going to be the middle of July before I got off this damn elevator. Where the hell is my key? Julie remembered after a split second of panic that she had put her room key in her back pocket. She stepped off the elevator and started down the hallway. When she reached her room, she took a deep breath. A familiar deep sigh of frustration escaped her lips, and then she slipped the key card in the door. Julie opened the door. She flipped on the light switch, slowly walked into the room, and casually tossed her purse at the end of the bed. What am I doing? What am I doing? She asked herself, this time aloud, as if somebody was there to give her a rational answer. Maybe I have some unfinished business. Maybe I need to do a reality check. Maybe I should think this through a little bit more. Great. Now I'm questioning myself. What else is new? The television was still on as she had left it, and she sat down on the bed up near the pillow, careful not to sit on her laptop. Or maybe she had forgotten it was there? She grabbed the remote control from the nightstand and started flipping through the channels, avoiding local stations where she could. She didn't want to see any local news coverage of a missing persons report on her. She just wanted to numb her mind. I know what I can do. She got up from the bed and wandered over to the honor bar. She opened the door to see if had any more Canadian club left. Ah, blessed relief. You would think I had had enough when I was downstairs with all the girls. What did I drink, six or seven? It must have been seven. Julie moved a few of the cordial bottles around but found no Canadian whiskey. There were a few bottles of scotch and gin, a couple of wine coolers, and two bottles of Jack Daniels. I guess the Jack Daniels is close enough to Canadian whiskey. I've done worse than this without getting too drunk. What will be the difference anyway? In fact, it'll probably make it easier for me to go through with this. She half giggled to herself, thinking how Morty used to go on a tirade when people made the mistake of calling Jack Daniels bourbon. It's only bourbon if it's made in Kentucky, he would rant, she thought. Well, here's to you, Morty, Jack, and Jim. Beam, that is. Julie downed one of the little airplane bottles in one swallow. It surprised her. Hmm, maybe I am a bit of an alcoholic. Nobody left to talk to but me. Oh, and my computer. Where did I leave that sucker anyway? Yoo-hoo, computer, where are you? She half stumbled, half danced back to the bed and hunted under the pillow. It wasn't there. Then she checked under the mattress where she had hidden it the day before. She began to feel her heart racing, her throat closing. Where the fuck is it? Housekeeping, or should I say howkeeping, wasn't in here. No mints. Almost running across the room, Julie grabbed the tote she had used to go down to the pool. It was empty. Shit, where is it? I need to find it. Julie stopped cold. What if somebody discovered it? What if somebody read what I've written? Oh my God, I gotta get out of here. No, that couldn't have happened. Nothing else is missing. What should I do? Should I call hotel security? No, they would want to know too much. Think, you asshole. Where did you leave it? You are always misplacing things. You are such a piece of shit. You don't have any business using up air. I got it. Julie quickly returned to the bed and reached under the pillow on the other side of the bed. The laptop was resting as she had left it, fully charged and cool, ready for her to complete her work. I am such a dunderhead. Sometimes I wonder how I lasted this long, scatterbrain. What was it my mother used to say to me? I'd forget my head if it weren't attached. 
A nice way of saying what my grandfather used to tell me. Julie, you'd forget your ass if it wasn't tied on. Once again, Julie found herself taking one of those cleansing breaths. Maybe it was her age, maybe not, but she did find herself doing this more and more often. She had picked this up from that yoga class she had tried. She was never sure if she was really out of breath or just in a panic. Or I could have that COPD with all that smoking I do. She turned on the computer, and while it warmed up, she decided to take care of a few other loose ends. She went into the bathroom, relieved herself, and then packed up everything that she had brought from home and everything that she had acquired in the previous four days while living the life of luxury in that fancy hotel. How in the hell did I manage to amass so much crap? It doesn't even fit in my cosmetic bag. Grabbing the last of the hotel accoutrement, resting them on her forearm, Julie attempted to navigate her way back to the bedroom. Miniature soaps and shampoos slipping off her arm left a trail like breadcrumbs behind her. Dumping everything on the end of the bed, Julie picked up the tote bag that she had thrown on the floor a moment ago when she was frantically looking for her laptop. She stuffed everything into the bag and then traced her steps back, picking up each item she had dropped along the way. I feel like Gretel trying to find my way home. Why the hell am I packing this shit? I won't even be around to use it anyway. Her next mission was to pack the remainder of her clothes, most of which were dirty. She had only hand-washed one or two items since she had checked in, so most of her clothes were in the plastic hotel laundry bag in the corner of the closet. She stopped again, remembering Morty. When they had taken the girls to the Smoky Mountains for a mini-vacation one year, he had gone to the front desk to ask for a large plastic bag to use for dirty laundry, and the clerk was almost indignant. He asked him, For free? Julie laughed out loud. God, Morty, you must have told that story a thousand times. She paused for a second and thought to herself, I think I wouldn't mind hearing it right now. Julie had to shake her head. Like a dog coming in from the rain, she had to jar herself back to the task at hand. I'm not doing this. I'm not turning back. I'm not going to start reminiscing about all the good times that will morph into a moment of weakness that will send me hurling back into that abyss of emptiness. She did stop to glance at her wedding ring, but only for a moment. Stop it. You know nothing is going to get better. He'll be attentive for as long as it takes for him to feel better, and then it will go right back to the way it was. After all these years, after all these chances, he hasn't got a clue. He hasn't learned a thing. He has no idea who I am. Julie picked up the bag and jammed everything as is into the small rollerboard suitcase she had brought with her. She then crammed the cosmetic bag beside it. She stood back and admired her work for a split second and then realized she had forgotten shoes, most of which were strewn around the room and in the closet. I guess I do have a little bit of the shopping bug in me. Why the hell would I have brought four pairs of shoes, along with sneakers and sandals, if I was only going to be here two or three days? She was starting to feel the effects of her imbibing. That, coupled with the hour, found her swaying and stumbling over to the closet to retrieve the rest of her belongings. On her return, she gave in to the sway and fell face first into the bed. <laughs> Julie's giggle was muffled by the soft blanket. She stayed supine for only a few seconds as the room began to spin around her. When the spinning began to affect her stomach and she began to think her dinner was going to have a return engagement, she slid down off the side of the bed to the floor, still giggling. Oops, <laughs> that's not good. Julie grabbed the blankets and pulled herself back up to her feet. I better get this done and get going before I pass out completely. Now where are those shoes? Half of them miraculously made their way into the suitcase during her fall. The rest were on the bed and on the floor at her feet. She gathered them all and tamped them down in every nook and cranny she could find. Her attempts at closing the zipper were in vain, however. 
She tried leaning on it. She tried sitting on it. She put the suitcase on the floor and tried to kneel on it, losing her balance and falling again. By now, she was laughing hysterically. Now I know why people get drunk a lot. I'll just do this later. Julie kicked the suitcase to the side of the nightstand and plopped down on the bed, sliding the laptop in front of her. It was up and running and the last document was open and waiting. Do you want to start where you left off five hours ago? It said in the little box on the bottom right of the screen. Well, I don't rightly know. Where do you think I should start? Where do you think it should end? I think it should end soon, don't you? I mean, I've been dragging this out for days. Julie's outburst had started out silly and sarcastic, but quickly sank into depressed and despondent. I guess I'm not a silly drunk or a sloppy drunk, just a sad drunk. Speaking of which, what else was left in that bar? Julie got another drink. This time she used a glass and nursed the drink while she read back what she had already written in her note. Well, I've said what I wanted to Morty. I guess I really need to say my goodbyes to the girls. This was the one thing I really didn't want to do. Oh well, here goes. Julie slowly began to type what would essentially be her last words to her daughters. She had read so many articles and papers about the children of parents who had committed suicide. This one factor was why it had taken her this long to get to this point. The one person she had dared to talk with about this topic would always use the kid card as a reason not to do it. She also would opine on the sanctity of human life. She, however, wasn't living inside my head. My dears, Allie and Sophie, please don't let this alter the path of your lives. Both of you have been blessed with health, beauty, brains, savvy, and bright futures. You have strong, healthy marriages, beautiful, well-adjusted children, and a wonderfully strong sense of who you are and where you want to be. Don't ever lose that like I did. Please don't ever think that my choice had anything to do with you, other than the fact that I didn't want to hurt you any more than I already have. This is not on you. It's fully and completely on me. If you ever lose your way, and I am confident you won't, but if you do, ask someone to help you find your way back. For me, I was long past the point of no return. There was no way back. Keep fighting to make the world a better place. Tikunalom, I'm sorry. I love you, Mommy. Julie stopped typing. The aluminum glow of the screen reflected off her glasses as she read back what she had just written. She sat frozen in front of the computer. A lump formed in her throat. She swallowed hard. My baby girls, I don't want to hurt you. Please don't be mad at me. I'm not as strong as you are. Julie began to weep softly and then fell back against the pillow. Several minutes passed. Julie had closed her eyes as the tears were full on and streaming down the side of her face to her ears and onto the pillow. The hum of the television was monotonous, lulling her off to sleep. Chapter 15 Julie rolled over onto her side, stretching out her legs. In so doing, she inadvertently kicked the laptop shut, waking her up. She stretched and strained to focus on the digital alarm clock on the nightstand. It was blinking 2.32. I miss the days of analog clocks when it would be about 2.30. Do I have to know that it's exactly 32 minutes after the hour, for God's sake? Julie sat up and opened the laptop. The word processing program had auto-saved her work. She closed the program and turned off the computer. Well, that's done. All that's left is the note and to do the deed. She got up from the bed and without emotion walked over to the desk. She picked up a pen and a piece of the hotel stationery. Leaning over, she penned the following. To Morty, Allie, and Sophie, I'm sorry things ended this way. Everything you need to know is in my laptop. Please grieve quickly and go on with your lives. 
Follow your dreams and find your bliss. Love, Mom. She took the paper and calmly walked it back over to the bed. She slipped the laptop to the edge of the bed and carefully placed the note on top. Then she pulled her suitcase back up onto the bed and tried one last time with all the strength she could muster to pounce on it and close the zipper. Finally, with the weight of her entire body and some perfectly placed wriggling, Julie was able to jiggle the zipper little by little and eventually close the suitcase. She slipped her feet back into the one pair of shoes she had left out of the bag. They don't match what I'm wearing, but why should I care about that now? Julie turned around and stared out the window. This was it, her final moment. She would know the answers to the stupid questions. Moreover, she would be relieved of the endless aching, the nagging, tugging noose around her neck, the empty pit in her stomach. There would be no more holding in tears, faking smiles, acting as if nothing were wrong. No more fighting her demons. Now she wouldn't have to have inner struggles with herself about getting out of bed in the morning. No more holding her tongue and refraining from lashing out. No more crying because she was lonely, yet turning down invitations because she was afraid to be with people. The constant conflicts in her mind would finally be put to rest. Slowly, Julie walked toward the window. The Miami city lights were still ablaze. And I thought New York was the city that never sleeps. I hope there aren't a lot of people down by the pool. I really don't want this to become a spectacle. Maybe I should wait a little longer until those people go home or back to their rooms. She glanced out from behind the curtain. It's a weeknight. Why don't you people go to bed? Julie turned around and leaned her back against the curtained glass. My plans can't be contingent on strangers. I have to just do this. She spun back around, abruptly swiping the curtains aside. She forcefully grasped the window handle, yanking it downward, jerking it open. This is not a dress rehearsal, it's a command performance, and there will be no encore, damn it. Without a thought, Julie clambered up on the desk chair and placed her right foot on the window jamb. She knew she had to climb into the jamb, sit down, and then slide down onto the ledge. She pushed off the chair and balanced herself with both feet on the window jamb while she bent down and slipped one leg and then the other until she was sitting in the window, legs dangling. Her heart was a drum circle in her throat. She almost relished the excitement. She wasn't sure if it was because she knew her pain was almost over or if she was just scared. She sat quietly for a few seconds, attempting to quell the pounding in her chest and head. Could be partly a hangover, too, dummy. I mean, you did drink everyone under the table tonight. I wonder if they all drank more when they got back to their rooms. After lingering a while, Julie wriggled and scooted to the edge of the window, extending her right leg down just far enough for her toes to brush the ledge. She allowed herself to slide ever so slowly until her foot was firmly down, holding onto the inside of the window with her left hand. When she felt safe, she allowed the left side of her body to slide down to meet the right. Funny, I'm here to go over the edge, but not until I say so. God forbid it should be an accident. She laughed to herself. Finally, fully on the ledge, Julie inched her way along the narrow cement shelf several feet to a corner upright shaft. There was a small area for her to stand without holding on. She took a deep breath and glanced down around the pool area. She was situated almost directly over the cabana bar, which was closed, thankfully. The small group of people who were sitting by the pool were now standing. Julie was hoping for two things. One, that they hadn't noticed her, and two, that they were standing because they were getting ready to leave. She watched intently, pressing herself against the wall into the shadow of the cement shaft. She was, after a few minutes, relieved to see them slowly walking towards the hotel entrance. What do you think you're doing? Julie plastered herself against the wall. Who said that? 
Didn't you listen to anything we said tonight? Or today, for that matter? What are you, deaf? Rachel? Julie looked down at the ledge. She knew Rachel was on the same floor as she was, but she couldn't tell from which direction the voice was coming. Where are you? Doesn't matter. Listen to me, you dingbat. After all I shared with you, I bared my soul to you about how misguided I was, about how it took me fucking up my life to realize how valuable time with your family really is. Where are you? Julie was shifting back and forth, trying to see if Rachel was hanging her head out of one of the windows, but still couldn't see her. Um, I came out here to get some air. Oh, bullshit. Don't lie to me. I know why you're out there. Why do you think I'm out here? What do you even know about me? Julie was getting herself worked up. She can't possibly know what's on my mind. I did a remarkable job playing tour guide and regaling them with all my little stories. I'm a master at acting happy on the outside. Been doing it my whole life. Yeah, you can't kid a kid a. You think you are the only one who's ever felt trapped or wanted to end it all? Rachel's voice was wafting in the air right in front of Julie now. Julie found herself talking to just the voice. What do you know about me? Honey, you are me. So what's that supposed to mean? What that means is, I get you. And whatever led you to this moment is just a passing moment. You have to just wait it out. What I mean is, to be honest, I've been exactly where you are right now. Came within an inch of jumping. And Julie's interest was waxing. She found herself uncomfortable talking to a voice in thin air. That bothered her, but she continued. What stopped you from jumping? Don't really know. I just know that I'm glad I didn't do it. It was a very short time before things got better. And now look at me. Ha, huh, I wish I could. Look at you, I mean. Ha, yourself. Least you haven't lost your sense of humor. So, here's the thing. Remember what I told you about what I learned through my experiences? I heard so many stories tonight. Let me think. Julie was being honest. She was confused as to who told which story. Rachel? Yeah, honey. Rachel, you're the Shakespeare fan, yes? Julie asked hopefully. Yup, that's me. And as I always say, to thine own self be true. So think about it for a little before you do anything stupid. Are things really that bad for you? I don't think so. Is there really no hope? I think there is. It may take some work, but I think you're up to it. Do me a favor and just think about it, will you? I gotta go hit the hay. I expect I'll see you in the morning. Rachel, thanks, Julie said, but there was no answer. Rachel, are you still here? Julie leaned up against the corner again. That conversation. It was all in my head. Rachel went to bed hours ago. She couldn't have known I was out here. Maybe on top of everything else, I'm losing my mind. Oh, great. Well, that would be another good excuse to jump. I mean, nobody would blame me for jumping if they knew I was hearing voices. There are no good excuses to jump. Who's there? Now Julie's legs were going weak. Who is it? How the hell could someone know what I was thinking? Did I say that out loud? You didn't say it out loud, but I heard you. Why would you ever consider this? God gave you one life, and you're not done yet. Don't you want to be around to watch your grandchildren grow up? Don't you want to grow old with Morty? There's so much more you have to do in your life. Julie was starting to shiver, yet she was perspiring. Her pulse was racing, but she felt like she wasn't getting any blood to her brain. Was this a hallucination? Am I having a psychotic break? What the hell is happening to me? Is that you, Linda? Where are you? 
I'm right here with you, sweetie. I know you think you don't have any other way out of how you feel right now. I know the feeling. I remember wanting to give up when I first got my cancer diagnosis. People said the dumbest things to me. I wanted to kill some of them. I know they were just trying to be nice, but really all they needed to do was be there. And then when it really counted, they weren't there. I was so alone. That's not the impression you gave us. Julie was thinking back to earlier that evening, other than Rachel's insensitive teasing, which apparently everyone was used to, Linda seemed to be pretty tough. I'm talking about those late night and early morning hours, when everyone else was sleeping and I was alone with my thoughts. There is nothing worse than living alone in your own head, and you seem to do that a lot. It's usually not a very safe neighborhood, you know what I mean? There was an unusually long silence. Julie was actually thinking long and hard about these words. I remember something I heard once that you can't solve a problem with the same mind that created it. That was Albert Einstein who came up with that gem, I think. Made sense then. Makes sense now. That's right. Linda's voice was beginning to fade away. Instead of doing this, kiddo, why don't you go home and find a therapist to talk to? Someone who won't judge you and who has the expertise to help you sort it out. Damn it, how did you get inside my head? Where are you? Are you trying to drive me crazy enough to make me jump? Julie crushed her ears with her hands so tight that all she could hear was her own heart beating. Stop talking to me! Julie sat in the nook on the ledge, slumped in a ball. Gradually, she dropped her hands from her ears to see if there were any more voices. She heard nothing but the bay breezes wafting in between the high-rises. Glancing down to the pool area, she saw no one. Her stomach was churning. She couldn't decide whether it was how much she had eaten and drank or whether it was sheer panic that she had lost her mind. I could just be imagining all this because of the liquor. That's happened before when I've had too much to drink. I know I've been drinking a lot more than I used to. I've even had some days where I don't even remember half of what happened. I figured if I could sleep it off before Morty got home, I would be okay. But I don't ever remember having conversations with the voices. Jeez, how much did I drink anyway? Well, to my count, you had seven with us, and then the two extra you had when you got up here to your room. Oh, shit, here we go again. Julie crossed her arms over her knees and dropped her forehead to rest. She already knew she wasn't going to be able to see who she was talking to. So, who's here this time? Look, I'm the last one to tell anyone what to do. I sat there and drank right along with you, knowing that I have two children in rehab right now. Two addicts to whom I gave birth are currently fighting for their lives, and I was drinking like a fish, so I have no right to tell anyone else what to do. And where's the but? Julie was more than sarcastic. Well, it's not really a but. But here's the thing. People who are addicts, who continue when they have the opportunity and the help to stop, are making a conscious choice to commit suicide on the installment plan, a little at a time, day by day, until it overtakes them, or until they overdose, either on purpose or by mistake. You are out here struggling to make a choice to do it all at once. I'm not struggling. I just keep getting interrupted by a bunch of very nice but nosy women. Okay, I'll give you that. We are nosy. I just want you to think a little harder about the sanctity of human life. Don't do this so easily, because there are a lot of people who love you. There are a lot of people whose lives you have touched and have made better. 
you probably aren't even aware of some of the good you've done. Did you ever see the movie Pay It Forward? Julie simply nodded. Or the movie It's a Wonderful Life. While those are just movies, one kind gesture can make all the difference in the world. My brother told me that when he went to his 30th high school reunion, some guy told him that he'll never forget how nice he was to him on the first day of school. Apparently, the kid was scared to death, and all my brother had done was smile and introduce himself and welcome him to the school. They ended up being friends all through high school, but at the reunion, the guy admitted he had been suicidal when his family moved to the new town and he had to start a new school. So you never know what that tiny gesture can mean. Julie half sneered, half smirked. I was never that nice in high school. Maybe, maybe not. But you did raise two beautiful, successful, and I assume compassionate women. So there is definitely some good in you. So think about it a little longer, if only for me, because I still don't think it's a good idea. Why not, Debbie? What do you even know of it? You have no idea of who I am or how I feel. The wind kicked up and Julie couldn't hear all what Debbie said next, only catching the last few words. Ah, uh, nothing special. What's that supposed to mean? As usually, Julie took whatever she heard personally, not even knowing the whole of the statement. That's the problem. Nobody takes me seriously. That's neither what I said nor what I meant. Listen again. Never do anything to sacrifice the integrity of your own potential. When you lose your integrity, you are nothing special. Debbie's voice got much louder, as if it were being broadcast over a loudspeaker. What that means is when you poison your body, and that includes your brain, you can't possibly make good, well-thought-out decisions. Shh! You wake up the whole freaking hotel! Julie climbed to her feet. Nobody can hear me but you, dummy. Now why don't you go back inside and think about it for a little bit? If you still want to jump, jump. I won't be back tonight. I hope I'll see you at the pool tomorrow. I'll do what I have to do. Julie remains stoic. No total strangers are going to change the course of my life. I've known them a total of a day and a half, and they think they're going to tell me what to do? What the fuck? Julie leaned back out over the edge and stared down. It is pretty far down there. Not long enough to see my whole life pass before my eyes. Funny how important that seemed when I started out this little journey. In a way, my life has passed before my eyes, just in the storytelling at dinner tonight. It was kind of fun thinking about some of those memories of the girls when they were little. They were cute. They must have been. You sure did light up when you were talking about them. I was wondering when you were going to show up. I had to wash my hair. Beth, tell me, what did you do? Draw straws as to what order you were going to show up here? Julie's cynicism was bubbling to the surface again. This time she sat down on the ledge, dangling her legs over the edge. I'm glad you think this is a game. You know what, Julie? None of us think this is funny or sarcastic or anything else. We all showed up here for a reason. You mean you showed up here to scare the shit out of me? No, there was a reason we ended up in Miami for our trip this year, Beth began. Nothing happens in God's world that isn't supposed to happen. There was a reason you met Rachel at the pool. There was a reason you spent the day with us and then heard our stories. And then there is a reason you're still thinking about us all tonight. Thinking about you? Julie laughed nervously. I'm not trying to think about you, for God's sakes. You crazy women are haunting me. 
I came down to this hotel four days ago. If it weren't for that ridiculous Rachel, this would all be over. Are you sorry you met us? I mean, didn't you have fun at Joe's and at the Everglades? Wasn't tonight amazing? Beth believed it was, and she waited for Julie to respond. I, uh, I guess I did have fun yesterday. You people weren't the easiest to get used to, I have to say. We're a tight-knit group, but always friendly. We have a history, but we love meeting new people. Hope you didn't feel unwelcome. Oh, no, on the contrary, I felt more than welcome. I haven't felt that comfortable in a social situation in a very long time. Whose fault is that? Whose fault is what? Feeling comfortable in a social situation. I mean, it's not like you made any kind of effort. You stopped your work at the temple. You stopped going to the club. You wouldn't even go to any of Morty's hospital functions. You made your own bed, girl. Have you ever been treated for depression? How do you know all that about me? Julie started to feel the thumping in her chest again. She was, in part, accepting the fact that she was hearing voices. She was, however, freaking out that these voices were coming from inside her own head. That doesn't matter. It just matters that you have put yourself in a lot of these pickles by your own behavior, and you don't have to live like this. And what about Allie and Sophie? You ache for them, and you don't have to. You know nothing about that. Your family is a much closer-knit family than mine. Julie was convinced she could win this argument. She slid herself back and rolled to her knees. When she tried to pull her first leg up to stand, she missed her footing and it slid off the ledge. The only way to keep herself from going over was to fall forward, so she did a full faceplant into the concrete wall. You okay? Beth seemed to have little concern. That's gonna leave a mark. Julie pulled her knees up one at a time and climbed to her feet, not even noticing that once again, her survival instinct was to keep herself from falling. I know plenty about it, by the way. You must stop standing on ceremony and pick up the phone and call your daughters. You're the one who said they're leading crazy busy lives. They are not not calling you because they don't love you, need you, or want you in their lives. They simply don't have time. And when they do have time, it's probably three in the morning. Call them. If they can talk, they will. If they can't, they'll call you back. Julie leaned back against the wall and began to weep. I just miss them so. Your job as mom is not over, you know, Beth began. And don't roll your eyes on this, but they will need you as they transition through each stage of their lives. You need to continue to teach them about life, but about marriage, about parenting. They'll need a babysitter or a holiday recipe. Not just the Jewish stuff, but the life stuff. Lador Vador for life. Their lives, their heritage, their children. They'll continue to need you and love you until God decides it's time for you to go. That's just your religion talking. I told you I don't go for the organized religion stuff. Julie was trying desperately to blow Beth off, but this was getting under her skin. That had nothing to do with religion. It had to do with family and how Jews view family. I'll say one more thing. How dare you decide to take your own life? You are a Jew. Haven't we lost enough lives? Fight back and live your life to its fullest. It's your right and your heritage. It's not your decision to make anyway. God will take you when it's your time. I really believe that. I don't take this lightly, you know, Beth. There was silence. Beth? Not even the sound of the wind blowing through the alleys between the buildings could be heard. Julie thought for a split second that maybe she had already jumped. 
and the dead silence was the in-between life and death for her, she called out again, Beth? Debbie? Nothing. Rachel? Linda? Julie leaned back into the corner, her thoughts jumbled. This is surreal. Were these people even real? What day is today? Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, to thine own self be true. God only gives us one life. Make the best of it. Joe's Stone Crab Key Lime Pie. Did that really happen? Never do anything to sacrifice the integrity of your own potential. Everglades National Park. If we forget history, we are doomed to repeat it. How long have I been gone? Did I shower today? Lador Vador. You can't fix a problem with the same mind that created it. Key lime milkshakes. How much did I drink? I'm so confused. Julie, honey, just come home. We'll straighten it out together. Morty? Where are you, Morty? Her heart skipped a beat as Julie plastered herself against the wall. Her eyes darted back and forth, but she couldn't focus on anything. She couldn't cope with the idea that it was only his voice, so she clenched her eyes tight and screamed out one more time, Morty! Let's just talk, just the two of us, and we'll see what we need to do to make it better for you. How did you know I was here? That doesn't matter. I just want you to come home more than anything in the world. I miss you. Julie began sobbing uncontrollably. In between gulps, she tried to talk. I miss you too. Julie took a deep breath and inched her way back to the window. When she reached her room, she backed her way in down to the window jam and collapsed on the floor, where she lay howling and writhing. When the energy of panic finally drained from her body, Julie crawled her way back to the bed, climbed up and pushing her laptop to the side, scrunched herself up into the fetal position. She began rocking herself to sleep with her eyes shut tightly. Her head was pounding, her stomach churning. Still, she rocked. Precipitously, as if she had ordered it to happen on cue, a fine white light appeared in the darkness of her mind. Her rocking began to increase in intensity. The light got brighter. The rocking got faster. Her hands clutched the sheets and she clung to them as if she were hanging out the window, holding on to them for dear life. The light intensified. She began writhing with the rocking, the bed beginning to move and bang against the wall. Julie rolled over on her back and grabbed her chest. She tried to call for help, but when she opened her mouth, nothing came out. She thought she was yelling, help me, but there was no sound, like that last prolonged silence on the ledge. At that moment, Julie would do anything to hear the voices again. She tried to take a deep breath. She couldn't tell if she was breathing or not. She wasn't sure of anything. It was at that moment that she gave up, relaxed her entire being, and sunk into the bed. She decided there would be no more fighting, no more pain. Her legs stretched out, her fingers went limp around the sheets. Even the muscles around her clenched eyes relaxed. When Julie consciously made her mind up to take these steps, her heart rate slowed to normal and the light disappeared. Chapter 16 There was a slow but discernible sound of a click from the other side of the room, followed by a hollow knock, echoing from the empty steel door. A condensed but squeaky and loud voice called, How keeping? No answer. The squeaky and loud voice called again. How keeping? Oi. Julie rolled over on the rumpled bedding and tried to make out the numbers on the digital clock radio. She thought it said 1016. The laptop was still perched at the edge of the bed with the handwritten note resting atop. Her overstuffed suitcase sat lopsided next to the bed. 
The window on the other side of the room remained open, a soft breeze lightly blowing the curtains. There was a third knock. Outkeeping! You can come in! Julie slowly sat up in the bed at the Intercontinental Hotel in Miami and stretched her arms. She swung her legs around and placed them firmly on the floor. Short of a hangover headache, she was feeling energized. She jumped up and nearly trotted to the bathroom. The maid came in and rushed around, straightening the bed, complete with fresh mints, checked the honor bar and replenished it, closed the window and fussed with the drapes. Fresh towels, missus? No thanks, I'm fine. Julie looked at herself in the mirror and she saw a different person. She smiled. For the first time in a long time, she liked the person looking back at her. She brushed her blonde bob every which way until she was pleased with the way it sat on her head. Gee, I hope Morty likes it. If not, it'll grow out and I can always dye it back. The housekeeper was gone by the time Julie emerged from the bathroom. Julie scurried back out to her suitcase to find whatever was the least rumpled and threw it on. Half put together, Julie left the room and headed for the elevator. When the elevator doors closed behind her, she could hardly stand still. Julie began to hum. She wasn't sure she even knew the melody, but it was a catchy tune. The doors opened into a bustling lobby. It was Friday and the front desk was humming with people checking out and checking in. Julie waited her turn, and when she got to the front of the line, she asked the young lady behind the desk, Could you please tell me in what room is Rachel Goldstein staying? Just a moment, let me check that for you. The clerk typed a few strokes on her computer. I can't seem to find anyone by that name. Could it be under another name? I don't think so. What about Beth Stein or Elizabeth Stein? Julie asked. Again, the clerk typed and searched, but nothing came up. Julie asked her about the other two girls and then waited. Still no success. Could they have checked out this morning, maybe? Is there a way to check that? Julie was starting to feel extremely uncomfortable. I'm not showing anyone with any of those four names were even registered here at all this week, ma'am. I'm sorry. May I help you with something else? Julie was frozen. Ma'am, is there anything else? Uh, no. Um, yes. Uh, please check to see if I'm up to date. As has become her habit, she showed her room key as identification. You're paid through tomorrow, and there's a credit still on your incidental account. Julie turned away from the counter without acknowledging the clerk. Her eyes darted around the lobby. She started walking toward the back of the lobby to the hallway that led to the pool. She walked out to the pool area, frantically trying to spot at least one of the four women who had changed the course of her life. There was no one there. She ran back into the lobby and over to the bar. She investigated the back of the restaurant to find the table where they sat last night. There was no round table there. Julie was in full panic mode. She ran back to the elevator bank and frantically pushed the up button. She paced back and forth in front of both elevators, waiting for one to open, nearly knocking other hotel guests over. When the door finally opened, four women noisily engaged in conversation exited the elevator. No Rachel, no Linda, no Debbie, no Beth. Julie rushed into the elevator and pushed the 11 button three times, as if trying to speed the process. She nearly forced the doors open and bolted from the elevator when it reached the 11th floor. The door of her room flew open and she lunged for the desk. She desperately dialed the phone. Morty, it's me. I need help. This has been Voices from the Ledge, a novel by J.T. Fisher, narrated by Mandy Grant Grierson. Copyright 2023 by J.T. Fisher. Production copyright by Quippy Quill. About the author. J.T. Fisher writes for people who have a hard time talking about what's on their mind. Her third novel delves into something with which she has battled. 
the concepts emptiness, depression, and suicidal ideation. Every book she writes introduces the reader into serious concepts, but in a lighter fictional way. Most people think about ending it all at least once in their lives. Judy is glad she didn't. Her writing began as an empty nester blog to fill time that was previously spent tending to her husband and two children. As she wrote and gained followers, she decided to try pure fiction. Judy felt that a lot of women, especially of her generation, struggled with many fears, questions, and issues growing up in the 1960s and 70s, and many still carry those fears coupled with the shame, embarrassment, and skeletons that affect the way they live their lives even today. She was one of them. With two grown children, she now resides in central Florida with one four-legged child named Mitzi and her husband. She enjoys reading, writing, live theater, and playing with her granddaughter, Amelia.